Welcome to the mop-up for February 10th, 2021. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 48 degrees and sunny, so they say. Just be safe from now on. Joe Rogan announced he will be deleting his latest episodes before releasing them. Talk about that later. Prince Charles has been placed in isolation after once again testing positive for the coronavirus. But earlier this month, Charles got a piece of good news from his mother, the queen, who said that when he becomes king, Camilla could be his queen consort. The queen did have a piece of bad news for Charles, however, and that bad news is she's feeling perfectly fine. Meanwhile, the Queen last week celebrated her 70th year on the throne. She is the first member of the royal family to go platinum since Prince Andrew's cover of Kisses, Christine 16. According to a new book by New York Times reporter Maggie Haberman, Donald Trump was ripping up so many documents and then flushing them down the toilet, he created a plumbing problem for the White House. Trump reportedly violated the Presidential Records Act by incessantly tearing up and then flushing documents down the toilet, documents as important as a CIA intelligence briefing or something as mon mundane as the United States Constitution. The National Archives say Trump can't claim ignorance of the law as every new president is provided with manuals on how to preserve presidential records. Unfortunately, Trump flushed those down the toilet as well. Donald Trump, as we know, is completely broke in debt, but when it comes to reasons to indict, he's sitting on an embarrassment of riches. And yet he goes free. And yet his family goes free because this country is all about being free. This country is all about freedom, the freedom to flout all our laws so long as you're a rich white man. You got to love the GOP. You got to love the Republicans. They love freedom so much they're hoarding all of it for themselves. They love the cops so long as the cops are cracking the skulls and shooting the backs of unarmed black men. But if you come after the richest 1% or their ignorant flunkies storming the Capitol, then it's the deep dark state impinging on our freedom. We must protect freedom of speech as long as it's the right to say the N-word or storm the Capitol. Even storming the Capitol is now being called the Republicans are calling storming the Capitol, I'm not making this up, engaging in legitimate political discourse. That is what the, the GOP said the storming of the Capitol was. It was engaging in quote unquote legitimate political discourse. Guns, handcuffs, pepper spray, smearing feces on statues and sending hundreds of cops to the hospital. That's now legitimate political discourse because the GOP loves freedom of speech. They can't get enough of freedom of speech, except when it comes to teachers being allowed to teach our children about homosexuality or evolution or the Middle Passage. 
the the right wing, the conservatives believe in the freedom of speech that's guaranteed to all of us, unless you want to say the earth is more than 5,000 years old, or that people are born gay, or that Rosa Parks is an American hero, or that the South seceded because they wanted to keep slavery. That kind of speech, that's verboten. They're passing laws now in Florida to forbid the teaching that homosexuality, you're born a homosexual. You can't teach critical race theory. That freedom of speech, that's verboten. But the right to say the N-word or the right to storm the Capitol and, and threaten to kill Nancy Pelosi, that's participating in legitimate political discourse. Now, look, freedom of speech has been my lifeblood since I've been 22. As a comedian, as a comedy writer, I have been playing with words and politics since I was 22. Without freedom of speech, I am nothing. Well, I'm still nothing. With freedom of speech, I'm nothing. I'm just nothing. But I need freedom of speech. I wouldn't be able to do this nonsense without freedom of speech. So I don't appreciate freedom of speech getting hijacked by right-wing trolls who hide behind the First Amendment to spread lies and hatred. Lies and hatred in America are protected until they become a danger to the community. You cannot hide behind freedom of speech if you are a danger to the community because community comes first. Community comes first. We have a Federal Trade Commission an FTC that prohibits advertisers from lying about their products. Lying about your product is not protected by the First Amendment. We have a Food and Drug Administration that forbids snake oil salesmen from selling you drugs, prescriptions that will kill you. We have a FDA that forbids you from telling your patients to use I don't know, uh, uh, a horse dewormer to, to kill COVID. We have an FCC that was set up by a Republican named Herbert Hoover, an FCC that prohibits people from going on television and radio and promoting miracle cures like ivermectin. That's what the FCC is, is there for, to protect the airwaves from fraudsters who will get you killed. That's not a First Amendment right. These are laws that came to us from Republicans uh, like Herbert Hoover or Teddy Roosevelt, who knew that while people should be allowed to say anything, they are not allowed to promote phony medical ideas that will get you killed. That's not censorship. You can't advertise that my brand of cigarettes won't give you lung cancer. It's against the law. That's not a freedom of speech issue. That's not a violation of the First Amendment. Your government is there to protect you so charlatans don't sell you tobacco that they claim won't kill you. The well-being of the community comes first. You cannot tell people to uh, attack somebody. You can't stand in the ellipse outside the White House and tell thousands of Neanderthals to storm the Capitol. That's 
criminal conspiracy. It's incendiary. You can't tell people to take arms against your government. That's treason. That's uh, you can't organize groups of people to kidnap a governor. That's not protected by the First Amendment. You can't order someone to kill someone. That's not freedom of speech. That's our drone program in the Pentagon. If you work for a corporation, you can't hands, hand over inside information to an investor. Telling someone that your company is about to beat estimates on the street and that you, you, know, you should go long on this stock, that's inside information, that's not protected by freedom of speech. Yes, freedom is important, but in America, it is not the number one priority. The safety of our community comes first. The safety of our community comes first, and that goes all the way back to our founding document, the Constitution. The safety of the community comes first, before freedom. I am not allowed to give Alex Jones's home address out and tell people how to kidnap him. Not all speech is protected. The community comes first. The community comes first. When you kill someone while screaming the N-word, that is worse than just killing them. That is hate speech. And hate speech in some states is considered terrorism. When you explicitly kill someone because they are black or Mexican or LGBTQ, that speech is terrorism and it, it poses a threat to the entire community. And that's why a hate crime is worse than just a general crime. It's why we have hate crimes in some states. A hate crime can only be judged a hate crime by what you said in the lead up to that crime. What you say before you commit any crime determines whether you're charged with first degree, second degree murder or manslaughter. They don't know how, what kind of murder you committed until they get the mens rea to figure out what your intent was. And the only way to figure out your intent is to find out what you said before you committed the crime. What you say before you commit a crime is not protected speech. Now, the community comes first, and our founding fathers got that. Please pay attention to this. Our founding fathers wrote the Constitution. The Constitution is what every elected official swears to, an oath on, to uphold the Constitution. It is the law of the land. All laws flow from the Constitution. OK, the opening lines to the Constitution, right? You're opening, you, got, you know, you, you got to open big. That's really important. The opening lines are the priorities of our founding fathers. You state up front what you prioritize. They are, and I quote, we the people of the United States 
in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity to ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America, okay? This is the top priorities of our founding fathers. We the people to form what? A more perfect union. That is their first objective. The first thing our founding fathers believed it was the goal of this nation to create a more perfect union, a community to create a more perfect community. Our founding fathers believed that what is first and foremost is figuring out a way for all of us to get along. That means something resembling a republic or democracy, because you can't have a more perfect union unless we have uh, the majority of the people in the community setting the agenda. Okay, that's first community. What is best for the community, right? Second, to establish justice. That's what the, the opening lines say, is to establish justice. Those are the exact words, establish justice, because without justice, without fairness, we can't get along. And if we can't get along, we lose the number one priority of our founding fathers, a more perfect union, right? The community. Number one is a community. Number two is justice. Without laws that are fair for everyone, the nation becomes less perfect, okay? What is third? Promote the general welfare of the people. Welfare, welfare. Those are the, the top three priorities of our founding fathers. It's in the constitution. First, unity, community. Then comes justice because you can't have community without fairness. And then comes welfare, taking care of each other. This is Old Testament wandering in the desert for 40 years stuff. This is Mosaic law, okay? How do we get along? How do we be fair to one another? How do we provide welfare for those of us who need help, okay? This is Old Testament Mosaic law. And then, and only then comes number four, quote, the blessings of liberty, unquote. Liberty, 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 freedom comes forth. The right wing wants you to believe otherwise. The right wing has moved liberty to the front of the line. You ask any idiot on the right, they will tell you the Constitution is about liberty. It's about freedom. The Constitution is not about liberty or freedom. It's about the loss of liberty. It's about the loss of freedom. The Constitution tells us specifically what freedoms we are entitled to and which ones we are not. The reasons we have this Constitution is to limit people's freedom. 
We have a constitution. We have laws to make sure my idea of freedom is protected from your idea of freedom. But the right wing, these ignoramuses, they twist freedom. They use it as a cudgel to crush the three other things our founding fathers cherished more. Community, justice, and welfare. Freedom comes forth because you can't have freedom unless you have set up a society that has a community, justice, and welfare. But the right wing, they don't want unity. So they don't want community. They don't want number one. They don't want a more perfect union. They're about dividing and conquering. They don't like democracy and more because more democracy is not in the best interest of the ruling class. And they certainly don't want number two, which is the establishment of justice, right? Fairness, because real justice, real biblical justice would mean Donald Trump and the inside traitor, Paul Pelosi, the, the criminal husband of our speaker, Nancy Pelosi, they would be behind bars right now. So no, 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 no. A more perfect union and justice or welfare, the right wing, the ruling class, they will never lead with that. They do not want to promote the general welfare of the American people. That means providing for those who are less fortunate, paying a livable wage. If you, They know that if you provide for the less fortunate and pay a livable wage, then you end up with a less compliant workforce. So the ruling class, they don't want that. So they move the fourth to the first, lead with number four, liberty and their twisted version of liberty is the freedom to rule over our workers to the freedom the liberty to take advantage of the powerless to exploit it's the freedom to promote disunity to promote injustice and not provide for the general welfare of the american people that is what the Cato Institute with their freedom studies. That's what the Cato Institute does. The Heritage Foundation, they twist the word liberty and make it about the freedom to be left alone, to do whatever I want to those less fortunate. The right wing corporatist bullies want the freedom to build homes wherever they want as big as they want to pollute our environment, not to pay taxes and not to pay their employees. That's what their version of freedom is. And they lie. They lie and say freedom is what our nation was founded on. No, it was not. No, it was not. It was one of the things our nation was founded on. But our founding fathers understood that you can't be free unless you had community, justice and took care of the the welfare of the community uh the uh the federalist society the right-wing bigots who gave us all three of donald trump's supreme court picks uh they all call themselves strict i think the term is strict textualists i think that's what it's called original intent they believe the constitution is not a living or breathing document that the founding fathers believe what they believed and they're originalists they believe you must take the Constitution as it is, 
don't interpret it, right? Scalia. And yet, and yet, when it comes to the very first words of the Constitution, which establishes our founding fathers agreed upon priorities, right? Those being number one, community, number two, justice, number three, the public's general, general welfare, and last, liberty. These originalists believe the founding fathers put liberty last because that had to have been what they believed in more than any, anything else in the world. That's their logic. That must be their logic. Liberty, that's why it's number four on the list, because everyone knows when you make a list, the thing that you think is most important, you always place fourth. Uh, hey, I have something that means a lot to me, but first let me talk about some useless shit, and then I'll get, you know, just to warm up, and then I'll get around to what's really important. Yes, freedom. Our, our founding fathers only cared about universal freedom, which is why the Constitution was ratified without outlawing slavery. That's how much our founding fathers cared about freedom. They forgot to outlaw slavery. That's how important liberty was. They signed the Constitution knowing that the slaves would not be freed. They couldn't even stop the slave trade in the Constitution. And this is really important to understand a society needs uh, priorities. This is the genius of our founding fathers. This is the genius. They knew that we couldn't address liberty until we built a more perfect union. The founding fathers postponed the elimination of the slave trade in the Constitution. They postponed the elimination of the slave trade for 20 years. That's in the Constitution. You cannot discuss the slave trade. No bills can be introduced to eliminate the slave trade for 20 years. In the Constitution, they wrote, wait 20 years and then we can discuss the slave trade. Because in our Constitution, the opening lines, they believed that liberty must wait. A lot of our founding fathers were against slavery. And a lot of people in the South thought slavery was about to die out because of the business model. They thought the slaves were not going to be uh, needed as much as the Industrial Revolution took hold. But then the cotton gin was invented and Suddenly, cotton became a wildly profitable crop and you needed slaves. After the Constitution was ratified, the South needed their slaves. But it, when, it, when it was ratified, they thought, we'll get to outlawing slavery in about 20 years. Let's put liberty on the back burner for 20 years. Let's first prioritize and build a more perfect union, a community establish laws and justice, provide for the general welfare of the public, give it about 20 years, and then we can tackle liberty and free the slaves. That was the original intent of our founding fathers. Again, this is the Constitution. When, when you're sworn in, you promise to uphold the Constitution and right up front, the Constitution tells you explicitly what you need to prioritize, and liberty does not come first. No. The very first words of the Constitution are genius because they telegraph that citizens 
cannot be free. The American people will never possess liberty until we have a community where we work together to establish justice for all citizens brought by providing for their general welfare. And only then can we be free. But the bigoted liars on the right who want to protect the moneyed class, they twist the words of our founding fathers. They call themselves originalists, but they're twisting the words of our founding fathers by insisting, uh, no, 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 just give everyone freedom. Our founding fathers believed that if you just give everyone freedom, all the other stuff will follow. Just make everybody free. All goodness flows from freedom. Anybody who's ever had kids knows that that's bullshit. The genius of our founding fathers is they understood that freedom and nothing but freedom, just freedom, turns a community into a Hobbesian nightmare where the rich and the powerful decide what is just, what is fair, what makes people feel safe and secure, and most importantly, what the definition of liberty is. Freedom without community justice and the general welfare of the American people getting taken care of is no freedom at all. And that is where this country is either moving or has arrived. You show me a rich person. You show me a rich person or a tool of the rich, and I'll show you someone who thinks this country is only about liberty. And that is why Republicans only stand for liberty. Liberty, 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 freedom from community. That's what their version of liberty is. Freedom from community. Freedom from responsibility to anyone but themselves. Freedom to smoke cigarettes, cigars, wherever they want. Freedom to pollute wherever I want. Freedom from the wants and needs of others. Freedom from the general welfare of the community. This is un-American, un-American and unacceptable. The very first commandment of our Constitution is community to, perf to, to perfect, a, to create a more perfect union. That is why the Kochs, the Mercer family, Rupert Murdoch, they pour hundreds of millions, if not billions, into think tanks and universities and publications to twist history and convince ordinary Americans that our founding fathers prioritized freedom over everything. They have spent hundreds of millions, if not billions, trying to convince ordinary Americans that the measure of a society is how free it is. But the truth is, what they're measuring is how free the ruling class is. To them, the market is free if only a handful of people can control it. Now, I believe in freedom. Obviously, I believe in freedom of speech. I don't believe in censorship, but I do believe in community standards. Because in the Constitution, community comes first. To 
form a more perfect union. Number one priority, a more perfect union. As our nation's founding father, Ben Franklin said, we must all hang together or most assuredly, we shall all hang separately. Why, that's communism. Ben Frank, we must all hang together. What is he, a beatnik? We must all hang together? Or most assuredly, we shall all hang separately. He was smoking the Constitution because it was printed on hemp, and I think he was smoking some of that shit. The community, the community, the community. So Joe Rogan should be free to say the N-word or denigrate the mentally disabled. But to create a more perfect union, I can use my freedom of speech to call him a bully and a, a bigot and a booger, uh, a booger head. Uh, that's my freedom of speech to to call out Joe Rogan as as a uh, a bully. And like a typical bully, he immediately claims victimhood. It's a political hit job this week because uh, what we don't want somebody uh, making fun of the mentally challenged. We don't want somebody uh, dropping the N word or comparing Harlem to the planet of the apes. What well, we're just in, in the name of freedom of speech, you're not supposed to correct it. You're just, you know, E equals MC to the third. You you go ahead. That, that It's not, I, I know that it's E equals MC squared, but I'm not gonna correct you. That, that would be wrong. That would be censorship. The community has standards. Joe Rogan is free to have anything come out of his mouth until it's COVID. Then I want him to wear a mask and stay the F away from me and shut up. The community has every right to promote safety. Now, the government can't shut Joe Rogan down. That's speech that the First Amendment protects stupidity. Uh, but the community has every right to uh, light pitchforks. Uh, the unvaxxed, the unmasked, they are a threat to the community. And people who promote the idea of not getting vaccinated or wearing a mask, that makes us less safe. The community has every right to protect itself. Not calling for censorship. I'm calling for talking back. And the problem is good speech, as I said on uh, Monday show, is drowned out by bad speech. Always is. Good speech is always drowned out by bad speech. Because bad speech is promulgated by the rich and the powerful. They have more money to amplify their speech. Dave Chappelle has the right to say categorically in front of millions of people on his Netflix special that gender is fact. And I have the right to say categorically that while Netflix has every right to run Dave Chappelle's special, I have every right to state categorically that Dave Chappelle is a danger to the transgender community when he says that gender is a fact. That is not censorship. That's just a fact.
That's my freedom of speech. And Dave Chappelle, good old Dave Chappelle, is back in the news. Dave has his own community. Community is really important. He lives near Dayton, Ohio, in a small town known as Yellow Springs. It's a small community of a couple of thousand, and Dave is investing millions to keep that community going. That's his community. And by his community, I mean he thinks it's his. He's building a comedy club, a restaurant to encourage local businesses. He's spending millions on this, and he's gotten approval from the Planning Commission of Yellow Springs, Ohio. Now, he's been promoting his investments in Yellow Springs, and in December, uh, he said, I'm building a comedy club and a restaurant, he's spending millions. Uh, Dave said, and I agree, he, he said, and I quote, quote, the way we treat each other in this community is an example for the rest of the country. This club will put us in a position to inspire people to put their best foot forward. This is kind of a 10th Amendment kind of thing, a kind of state's rights, devolving power down to the community kind of thing, right? You know, forget Washington. This is like a good conservative idea that we on the left should be adopting, you know, think globally, but act locally. And uh, and Dave is absolutely right. The way you treat each other in a community sets the example for the rest of the country. It's a laboratory for democracy. And he said his club, his restaurant will, quote, put us in a position to inspire people to put their best foot forward. Well, it turns out Dave Chappelle and I uh, might disagree on what constitutes putting one's best foot forward. Apparently, Dave Chappelle puts his foot forward to kick low-income people out of his neighborhood. Don't know if you saw the new video this week of Dave Chappelle showing up to the Yellow Springs, Ohio City Council and demanding they scrap plans to build affordable low-income housing. And guess what? It is his community because they did what he demanded. They voted to scrap plans to build lower income housing in Yellow Springs. They wanted to build low income housing, but Dave Chappelle said no. And Dave is investing millions in the community. And so they chickened out, hence the yellow in Yellow Springs. Dave won, which proves you can fight City Hall so long as you're on the side of money and power. Dave threatened to pull the plug on his multi-million dollar investments if the town of 4,000 went ahead with plans to build affordable housing in his beloved Yellow Springs. This is part of the discussion now where I will be accused of being a hater, right? Haters have to hate. Why are you hating on Dave Chappelle, hating on poor people? That's hateful to hate on Chappelle for hating on poor people. And I can hear the interview with Chappelle a year from now, how it, this is all being taken out of context, that he's not opposed to low income housing in his neighborhood, that he doesn't hate poor people. I'm not a bully. Check out the video of Dave Chappelle dressing down his city council of Yellow Springs. And you tell me whether or not the man who states 
categorically that gender is a fact, you tell me if Dave Chappelle is or is not a bully. Yellow Springs planned to build affordable housing so that people working in Yellow Springs could also live there. One member of the city council back in uh, the autumn warned that by not building these affordable homes and apartments, the starting price of homes in the area would jump by $100,000. Been talking about this, and I'll continue to talk about this. They were building low-income housing because housing was unaffordable in Yellow Springs. One of the council people said, by not building this, the price of homes will jump by $100,000, which, of course, is why we have homelessness. This is the reason we have homelessness. There aren't enough homes, and the ones we do have are investments that are unaffordable for people to buy and or rent. So to bring down the cost of housing, Yellow Springs wanted to increase the supply. But Dave Chappelle said no. He threatened to pull his multi-million dollar investment. So now the development <clears throat> will be 143 single family homes that are not listed as affordable housing. The plan was to build smaller apartments and townhouses, but Dave didn't think the congestion would be good for the city. He also complained the development would be behind his big farm. In December, he stated, I'm adamantly opposed to this. It, this being low-income affordable housing in Yellow Springs. He said, obviously, I live behind this development or the proposed development. I do have many business interests in town. I've invested millions of dollars in town. If you push this thing through, what I'm investing is in no longer applicable. If you build low-income housing in Yellow Springs, I will pull my millions of dollars and I will not build the restaurant and the comedy club. And again, this week, watch the video, he threatened to take away his millions if he ended up with low-income housing in his neighborhood. He doesn't want low-income housing in his neighborhood, as we've discussed. And I will continue to bring this up because I have to see homeless people wherever I go. Not, and of course, it's not about me seeing them. It is the, about the plight of the homeless. There is a shortage of homes in America because of the Faircloth Amendment, which was passed in the late 90s. <clears throat> it is against the law for any public housing agency to accept federal dollars for low-income housing unless they promise to turn over older low-income housing to developers. We rely on developers to build low-income housing, and they don't. And a member of Yellow Springs City Council said if they didn't force the developer to build smaller homes and apartments, the starting price of a single home will jump by $100,000. It's all out there. That is why we have homelessness. What more do you need to know about homelessness in America? It is caused by this artificial scarcity 
of homes. If you own real estate, you don't want affordable housing because more homes means a bigger supply. The bigger the supply, the less of the demand, the less of the demand, the lower your property values. That's how you end up with people like Dave Chappelle, who says he doesn't want low income housing in his backyard. That's how you end up with NIMBYs, not in my backyard. Dave Chappelle will tell you he has no problem with the government building low-income housing, but just not in my backyard. And they will say anything to convince anyone to vote against low-income housing. The lie is uh, low-income housing brings down property values because it brings in low-income people. That's what they've convinced Americans, that when you build low-income housing, the people who live in low-income housing destroy the property values. That's what the ruling class wants. You know, let's not take care of one another and stay away from poor people. They, they, uh, you, you must be convinced that you, you do not want low-income people in your neighborhood because low-income people bring drugs, crime, and most importantly, they will ruin the public school systems, which will then destroy the property values. And most people believe this because they're ignorant, because the ruling class has trained most people to fear poor people because most people have been made ignorant by our corporate-owned media. Here's the truth about uh, the schools, the truth about sending your kid, your precious idiot kid to school with low-income students. If you send your child to, your idiot child to, uh, to a school with low-income kids, they are less likely to turn to drugs and alcohol than they would be if you sent them to an elite private school or a public school in a good neighborhood. When Brett Kavanaugh was the rapist, was being confirmed for the Supreme Court, we learned that he drunkenly attempted to rape a woman while attending an exclusive private school. Go back and listen to my shows back in the autumn of 2018. We talked about Georgetown Prep. That's where the rapist Kavanaugh uh, went before he went off to Yale. That was a private school, cost something like $45,000 a year to send your idiot, racist, rapist kid to Georgetown Prep. And by the way, if you're in the position of hiring anybody and you see Georgetown Prep, do not hire these people or Yale or Harvard. So Georgetown Prep was the private school. It cost $45,000 a year to say, do you realize what 45, each kid, each idiot kid, $45,000. Do you have any idea what $45,000 would do for the school around the corner for me? Uh, and these schools, the drinking, the underage drinking off the charts. It turns out there's an epidemic of drinking and drug use at the elite private schools. It far surpasses statistically the drinking and drug use at poorer inner city public schools. Kind of interesting. This is according to the British newspaper, The Independent, and I quote, People who go to the best private schools are more likely to end up with drug and alcohol addictions in later life, new research has suggested. 
Privileged students, they go on to write, who live in affluent areas and attend elite schools are at a higher risk of turning to cannabis, cocaine, and ecstasy, this group of researchers claimed, as well as being more prone to alcohol abuse. Has something to do with money. Rich kids have money to buy this shit. And of course, the freedom and the privacy to use it. But we've been conditioned to believe that low-income schools are the hotbeds for drug use because the truth runs counter to the narrative of the American dream, which is work hard, make money, move to a safe, secure part of town, and surround your kids with other well-heeled kids, and all the problems will disappear. You only become a drug addict or an alcoholic if you're around low-income kids. So no low-income housing in my backyard. I must protect my idiot kids and, of course, my property values. Low-income people bring down property values. No more homes for low-income people in my backyard. I need to protect my kids and their inheritance because they're idiots. So Dave Chappelle wants Yellow Springs to create artificial scarcity. He doesn't want just anyone to be able to live in Yellow Springs. What did he say when talking about investing in his community? The way we treat each other in this community is an example for the rest of the country. That's what he said. Dave that kind of inspiration we don't need. We've, we've been getting that inspiration for 200 years. This is how it's done. It's always been done. It's always been done this way. Rich guy has all the money in town. He dictates the zoning. I'll tell you what is new though. The older robber barons understood the value of having the bad side of town. At least there used to be a bad side of town. The older plutocrats saw value in the wrong side of the tracks. Now, there's no more wrong side of the tracks. You're poor, you, you just live on the tracks. There was a time when the people who controlled the town knew they needed to house their workers. I'm not saying that housing was pleasant. My grandparents lived in it, but it, it beats being homeless or in your car, living in your car, which is what more and more low-income people do. If you work for McDonald's, if you work for Walmart, there's a good chance that you're either living on the street a homeless shelter, or if you're lucky, your car, because nobody can afford to rent. Close to 50 million Americans right now are in danger of getting evicted, right? But Dave Chappelle doesn't want any low-income housing in his neighborhood. In America, money is speech. That's what our Supreme Court says. Dave has a lot of speech millions and millions of speech, more speech than I could ever imagine. And he chooses to suspend his speech on insisting on things like gender is a fact. Well, here's a fact. One in five transgender Americans, Dave, say they have trouble finding someone willing to rent to them. Trans women of color are deprived housing more than any other group in America, unless you count, of course, being housed in a jail since trans women of color are more likely to be arrested for prostitution than any other group of Americans. So there is housing for trans women of color prison. But Dave chooses to spend his speech on telling us gender is a fact. So it doesn't surprise me that he also doesn't want low-income housing in his neighborhood because it's all connected. It's all about 
your priorities because life is priorities. There are only 24 hours in a day, only 60 minutes in a comedy special, and you can use that hour in your comedy special to tell us gender is a fact, or you can use those 60 minutes to talk about the greed and prejudice that makes homelessness such a stubborn problem in America, especially for people of color. Seems to me the latter is a better use of one's speech than saying gender is a fact. In fact, it doesn't seem to me, I know it is. I know it is. I know that if you have a platform that reaches millions of people and you use that platform to talk about how much harder black people have had it than transgender people, if you use your platform to say that instead of talking about how hard both groups have had it and how we need to fix it, then you're wasting your speech, your time, and your money. Joe Rogan makes $100 million, has 14 million listeners, and he and his comedy buddies are still having the same conversation in front of 14 million people that I had with my son and his friends when they were six. The conversation is, why do black people get to say the N-word, but white people can't? I had to have that conversation with my children when they were six. I'm watching Joe Rogan talking to a comedian about how unfair it is that the N-word is only for black people. And I'm thinking $100 million, 14 million people. This is stuff I discussed that I had to clear up for my kids and his friends when he was six years old in the back of my minivan. No, but I, I listen to Joe. I trust Joe Rogan. I trust Jimmy Dore because he sounds just like me. Yeah, stupid and limited. And Chappelle, well, uh, just because you're African-American, it doesn't mean you're a lefty. And just because you're a comedian, it doesn't mean you're particularly smart. Shouldn't come as any surprise that so many comedians are right wing. Bill Maher, Rogan, Dennis Miller, Chappelle, to name just a few. Those are the ones who are willing to admit that they're fascists. I can't think of a profession more hyper uh, individualistic than stand up. And that's why I think it tends to breed a, a right wing fascist mindset. A, a comic is a one man business. And once you get famous, you need pretty much nobody. You just stand on stage with your thoughts and it's pretty much a license to print money. And success from stand up makes you wonder why it's so hard for others to achieve what you have achieved. And, and audiences reward this kind of contempt for others. So. The, the really successful comedians with a few, there are a few rare exceptions, they get caught in a feedback loop that reinforces the values of hostility towards others and hyper individualism. I would urge comics like Bill Maher, Chappelle, Joe Rogan to consider that maybe what works for them doesn't work for healthy people. I would ask Bill Maher, Chappelle and Rogan uh, to ask them if it's really what they think is working for them is really working for them. You, you have fame, you have money, but you appear to be intellectually and spiritually stunted and incredibly angry, as am I. I don't think it's working for you. Most importantly, what is it that got you to where you are?
I can't speak for Chappelle, but I know Rogan and Marr, Miller, a couple of other people, uh, they succeeded because they have a dark, 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 inky black side. Their rocket fuel is contempt for humanity, cleverly cloaked in mediocre attempts at comedy. I can assure you that Bill Maher and Joe Rogan mask a deep hatred, contempt, and mistrust for humanity. Joe Rogan, you don't spend all your adult life training for mixed martial arts and then make a lot of money being the announcer for ultimate fighting. If there's not a main streak, how can you, that, have you seen, try to get through a minute of ultimate fighting and tell me how that is anything but man's inhumanity to man. You can't succeed like that unless a huge part of your soul is deadened. So uh, this is about uh, the community. Ultimate street fighting or mixed smart, whatever this thing Joe Rogan uh, makes his money off. Uh, you tell me if that's a, a good thing for the community. You tell me if that's something that you would want your children watching. I was watching a man doing ultimate fighting against a woman. And I, I thought, no, this can't be real. And it got censored. And you know when it got censored? He was punching her in the face, kicking her in the face. It got censored when her top came off. Uh, that's what Joe Rogan does for a living when he's not uh, pressing uh, you to buy his brain supplements. I hope uh, he's getting brains. Can you imagine how stupid Joe Rogan would be if he weren't uh, getting brain supplements? Uh, you know, I'm tired of hearing comedians are the truth tellers. This is what I keep hearing. Uh, oh, you're the canary in the coal mine. The canary in the coal mine. If by bird brain, then yes. Most comedians, 99% of comedians are not truth tellers. Uh, I watch comedy at best for germs of truth but I'm not looking for some grand unifying theory to explain the world. You're not gonna get that from Joe Rogan or Dave Chappelle. The stuff that makes me laugh is, is wrong. It's wrong. Whatever is wrong makes me laugh. When someone is evil, it's funny. When someone has an overinflated sense of oneself and says things that are ill-informed, to me, that's funny. Comedy is great. Rogan, Chappelle, and Bill Maher, though, are not teachers. They're not even good students. At best, they're class clowns. And as funny as the class clown was, eventually, unless you shut him up, he's going to drown out the teacher and make the class stupid. All right. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. David Feldman Show Dot com, And we do office hours every Friday night. And please join us starting at 8 p.m. That is uh, 
where we exercise our freedom of speech and listen to each other and learn. We are going to talk, I hope, to Jonathan. I, our guest is not here yet. When we come back, we will do Community Billboard. Please stay with me. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comments too. The Taylor Dirty Joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a human man with an enemy right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Yes, it's time right now on the David Feldman Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. I'm doing much better with a touch of Tourette's. I'm traveling light. Just need a clean room in a Motel 6. Not too close to downtown, but not out in the sticks. I need my pen and teller magic kit so I can do my tricks. Got my favorite pillow. Which I call Mr. Fluffy Four kinds of allergy pills In case I get stuffy A pound of Epsom salts Cause my ankles get puffy I'm traveling light I got two pairs of socks and shorts In my little valise A couple of passports And my sex doll Denise I'm staying real quiet So they don't call the police I'm traveling light sedatives and my antipsychotics a high speed parallax motor cause I'm into robotics and my little red speedo I like to do aquatics I'm traveling late got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill a copy of Lolita and my little blue pills a Navajo blanket in case I get a chill, I'm traveling light. 
a 50 tequila in case I go on a bender. My attorney's number in case I want to change my gender and travel in light. Wrinkle cream, my Emmy statue for my self esteem. I'm traveling light. I got my podcast mixer and a fancy microphone, my exercise bike so I have a place to hang my pants, my very valuable Hummel collection, a menorah made of dishes, a Christmas tree. I like to keep my options open, don't you know? A shoe shine kit, a skill saw, a crossword book, a large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read, some scripts. <laughs> Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Professor Mike Steinel, the brilliant Professor Mike Steinel. I'm getting some texts from people. Feldman's for censorship. Feldman, I didn't say it was for censorship. I'm for correcting bad speech. The the conservatives, they they, they always the way they they'll hide behind the troops to justify a bad war, and they hide behind the First Amendment to justify hateful speech. That's what they always do. The conservatives, they're always about freedom of speech until they hear something they don't want to hear. Till like they're for freedom of speech until you criticize their speech. Then it's censorship. Joe Rogan, hey, he should be allowed to say the N-word, but uh uh, I don't hear him or any of the conservatives uh, helping teachers teach kids about the origin of the the N-word. They don't want the N-word, uh, uh, the, the middle passage taught in our schools. You know, critical race theory, that's not a freedom of speech issue. Uh, Joe Rogan, Jimmy Dore should be allowed to say vaccines don't work. But anyone doing business with the government... Uh, they're not allowed to promote the boycott of Israel because of its treatment of Palestinians. Uh, the, the conservatives are all about the censorship of anybody who criticizes Israel. It's like it's law in some states where you if, if you're a contractor with the state and you've promoted uh, boycotting Israel because of the Palestinians, you, you lose the contract. So the conservatives don't seem to care about that freedom of speech. Uh, you know, Dave Chappelle uh, should be allowed to shout from the rooftops that gender is a fact. But Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, the big defender of Joe Rogan, tweeting out, don't listen to them, Joe. Uh, he's a big defender of uh, freedom of speech. 
But he's also all in on this new bill that would bar school districts from encouraging classroom discussions about sexual orientation or gender identity. The right wing is all about freedom of speech, except on the important speech, the stupid speech they're all in on. You're, you're allowed to say anything you want in America unless you want to list the companies that are union busters, right? You can't, if you're a comedian and you have a routine about uh, listing the companies that are union busters, they're going to say, no, no, Starbucks, Amazon, they advertise, no, 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 you can't say that. But, you know, if you want to say gender is a fact, we'll give you a Netflix special. But you can't even go, a serious journalist can't even go on the news to talk about the companies who are destroying unions because uh, the news industry is destroying unions. MSNBC, I think Rachel Maddow's writers finally went union. Freedom of speech is in the eye of the beholder. Donald Trump can call Mexicans rapists, right? But if you call one of his wives a porn star, then he sues you for slander. Donald Trump rode into office on the backs of the anti-PC police, right? But when you know, like you ask a Trump supporter what the most important issue is facing America, they'll say the cancel culture. They are all in on the First Amendment. Meanwhile, Trump uh, insists that you should be able to say anything you want, but let's change the libel laws in America to make it easier to, sur to sue journalists uh, because they said something that you don't like. Nobody's talking about the, the, the journalists who are getting killed. More and more journalists are getting killed around the world. We lost four journalists in Mexico this month, and it's only the 10th. David Hale is doing time for leaking information, detailing the murder of innocent civilians by our military. The Biden administration is trying to bring Julian Assange to trial and violating the Espionage Act for leaking videos of our military killing innocent civilians. Newspapers are dying. Investigative journalists are drowned out by bad speech, by corporate mouthpieces. In America, that, that's not freedom of speech. We don't have to worry about that. We just have to protect Joe Rogan's right to say the N-word. That's, that's what it's all about. That's the only conversation, because it's a slippery slope, right? Once you, you, once you tell Joe Rogan he can't say the N-word, then what? You can't go on network television and expose Starbucks for its union-busting activity? We're already there. The slippery slope, it's flat. We're there. It's bullshit. What a stupid country. What a stupid, stupid country. I'm, I'm being called the, uh, the guy who's for censorship. Well, the good news is Henry Williams is here. Henry will. Oh, good. He had to see us fight this way. I was trying. To, I didn't know he was here. <laughs> OK, the Gravel Institute is a nonprofit founded to continue the life of Senator Mike Gravel, a great American who doesn't get enough credit for exposing the Pentagon Papers. He read the Pentagon Papers into the congressional record. Very few people know that. Uh, Mike Gravel advocated for direct democracy in order to achieve a just and equal society. Go to gravelinstitute.org and learn about its mission to build the institutions the left 
needs to win. Joining us is Henry Williams, who I believe you are the director of the Gravel Institute. Henry, what is your Hello, t- yes. Uh, co-founder of the Institute and currently I serve, we have a uh, three directors, but I work on press relations and strategy and fundraising. Well, thank you for coming on here. Uh, Mike Gravel, who we lost, I believe, last year, was last June, yeah. uh, dragged kicking and screaming uh, running for president. You, you forced him to run for president. In 2007, he threw a rock into a lake and late night comedians made fun of him. He is a true American hero. You changed your website. He posted his platform for president. Where is it on the hmm. website? Oh, we still, yeah, we still have it. So this is this is from the presidential campaign website, which is no longer up. But if you search it, it's still public. I have a link to it, which I can I can find and send to you. Okay, that is the it's Bible. Still out there, though. It's the Bible. He was on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour a, a year or two ago, and I started reading his platform, and I thought, well, here you go. This is this is the pathway to to perfection. How did you uh, get involved with the Gravel Institute? Absolutely. Well, first first of all, real quick, I would love to hear what you think what's what are some of the things in the platform that you that you that you are interested in but let me i'll introduce the gravel institute first because okay. i would love to get into it and i actually just found it and i will share with you right now okay but uh the gravel institute was an outgrowth of the campaign in 2020 and the story of the campaign is obviously a bizarre one uh it was that mike was retired he was living at his house in seaside california and some friends and i contacted him from his website and started asking him if he wanted to run for president again after he had in 2008. And at first he's like, this is a crazy idea. I don't want to be president, first of all. <laughs> I can't win, second of all. And we say, that's not a problem with us at all. The reason that we wanted him to run was for the same reason he ran in 2008, which is he was able to stake out a position that no other candidate was willing to take. And he stood up there on stage with the leading figures of the Democratic Party in the decades since then, you know, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, and Hillary Clinton. And he took them to task over the Iraq war, which all of them were incredibly squishy on and unwilling to say the things that most Americans even believed about it. And those clips, I mean, the clip, uh, you know, from that debate is immortal, I think. And you can say it's been viewed millions of times since he first did it. He was a gadfly and an outsider candidate. And yet something about what he said and how he said it and who he said it to made an impression, even in the minds of people like me who were nine years old when it happened. And so when we discovered that and found him, we started talking to him. And in those conversations, we basically told him, you know, where you were, we are now. There is a left now. You know, there's something now. And young people are thinking the way that you were talking then. In 2008, he was the first candidate to ever march in a gay pride parade. In the 1970s, he was the only person in Congress to favor gay marriage. He was endorsed by the National Harvey Milk Club every time he ever ran. They even gave him a award, basically, as one of the only national politicians speaking out for gay rights in the 1960s and 70s. So Mike was somebody who was out ahead of the curve his entire life. And what we wanted to tell him was, you know, the world has caught up to you to some extent. Maybe not the world, young people, the left, whatever has caught up with you. And uh, if you tried to run, I think people would respond to it. And that's what happened. Right. Uh, And so the Gravel Institute came out of that. He told us, if we do this campaign, I want you to commit that you're going to 
go somewhere with it. It's not just going to be a flash in the pan, you know, that there's going to be some end goal. And after the campaign, we thought, what can we do with the social media following? What can we do with the people who are interested? And uh, the goal was to make educational YouTube videos online explaining the core tenets of the left politics, history, economics, and giving people the education that they're not going to get otherwise. And certainly not the education that PragerU and the right wants them to get. So he was from Alaska. He was a, a congressman from Alaska. He spent most of his life in democratic politics, right? He was like speaker of the house in Alaska, uh, most of his adult life was in politics, right? Yeah, so he actually, when he graduated college, he wanted to go into politics. He was very against the Vietnam War and he was very politically engaged, but there was really no path for him. He was from Massachusetts and there were too many Kennedys there. That's what he said to me. Right. And so he said, there's two new states coming out, uh, you know, New Mexico and Alaska. And uh, well, New Mexico had just been founded, but you know, Alaska was the new one. He said, well, mm -hmm. I'll just flip a coin and he flipped a coin. He decided on Alaska. He went there, no job, started as a railway brake man. 10 years later as the speaker of the Alaska house. And then he was its second ever Senator. Right. So you, you would ask me, what is it about Mike Gravel uh, that I liked in his platform? And I, if you're going to send, I don't have it in, in front of me. It's been a, a year since I read it. I think I doubt, I think it was like a Google doc that I. Yeah, I just, I actually just sent a, a link in the, in the chat if you want to. Yeah. Is, is there a too. way for you to put it up on the website? What, what I remember uh, being struck by was you cannot separate uh, what we do overseas from what we do to ourselves here in America. That how we treat Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Saudi Arabia, Israel, uh, South Korea, how we sell, the way we sell arms and remain in a military footing, you cannot separate from how we treat our own. How the It should not surprise us that 1,000 Americans, more than 1,000 Americans were killed in 2021 by the police, that we've militarized the police. You cannot separate a war economy from underfunded schools and uh, the high suicide rate in this country. It's all connected. And uh, absolutely. So that that I that's what struck me. And then ways to reform our voting. And uh, obviously, he was an environmentalist who did not think too kindly of corporations. And he goes all the way back to the Pentagon Papers. This is the guy who got his hands on the Pentagon Papers. I think he read it into the cons the uh, congressional record before the Washington Post and the New York Times published it. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. And actually, so basically, you know, he, the reason he was written out of the story um, is because- Tom Hanks uh, wrote uh, him out of the, the story. Washington Post. Uh, yeah, exactly. The Washington Post, the New York Times, that was their hero moment and they wanted to seize it. But the reality was they only started publishing it after he had set a legal precedent, which is that it was in the public domain because senators can say anything they want on the House floor, uh, on the Senate floor. They cannot be punished for it. And so if you read something that's classified, it becomes unclassified by reading it. Mm -hmm. His act of doing that, for which he almost went to jail. It was a Supreme Court case, United States v. Gravel. And he was pretty worried about it uh, at the time. 
And yet uh, we don't even make a, a hero out of him. We make a hero out of Catherine Graham from The Washington Post and uh, some and Daniel Ellsberg from uh, the Brookings Institute. Uh, right, right. And, and really, they were actually bit players in the legal question, because, again, they were not the risk takers. He was the one who took the risk and they came along behind and, and, and took a lot of the credit. And to what you said before about connecting the war abroad to the war at home, you know, uh, uh, it was first in his mind in that era because it was the Riverside speech from Dr. King that was, of course, what, I mean, some people believe precipitated his death and was the act where he connected the Vietnam War to the racial and economic struggle at home. And after his- You're talking death, about the Riverside the Church, King's, the Riverside Church. Yes, speech. Riverside Church in, on the Upper West Side, um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he went to the Riverside Church about three weeks before he died, and he gave a famous speech where he tied the war in Vietnam to the war on poverty and the war on racial inequality in America. And he said, we cannot fight that struggle here while fighting this one abroad. And it was first in the mind of a lot of, uh, uh, of the left of that era. And, and another aspect of Dr. King's legacy that is totally written out is that he was in favor of a jobs guarantee. That was actually what the March on Washington was originally connected to. And his widow, Coretta Scott King, did a, a ton of tremendous work on looking at how America paid for Vietnam and how it paid for the Cold War and asking why can we not use these same tactics, these same techniques, to pay for a jobs guarantee and a war on poverty at home. Mm -hmm. And the reality is basically you can't do both, right? You have to choose. And the choice that we made was imperialism abroad and, and not social policy at home. Right. By the way, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, who does our eight o'clock hour every week, was at that speech at the Riverside wow. Church. So we'll, we'll talk about that later with him. You're wearing a Patagonia sweatshirt little product I, I, I found this actually in a I didn't mean to I, I was just this is well, Patagonia is a good company for me. Isn't, isn't Patagonia a good company one of the one of the better ones but I, I'm a little wary of it signing them any uh and giving them too many brownie points we, we had the, but this is my laundry day shirt I had the founder he passed away the founder of Patagonia um oh, very cool. he, he was people should look up Patagonia I don't endorse any companies but the founder of patagonia who he was on my show he uh was a good steward if such a thing is possible of capitalism there's a way to is there a way to do capitalism right well this is i mean does the left gigantic, the yeah. left the left you 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 you're out front saying you're a leftist did gravel identify as a leftist throughout most of his career he did. I mean, he had a complicated relationship to it, but he started on the anti-war left and the anti-poverty left. And he went through a long journey of, I mean, you have to say he became disillusioned with both parties very deeply. And after he left office, he was essentially in the wilderness as a gadfly. And as a gadfly, he was focused on the things he cared about, nuclear disarmament and on the America's foreign policy and, and, and ending it and changing it. And for those, he focused on the people who were his allies, which happened to be libertarians, which I mean, basically anyone at that era. And there was very, very few people who were speaking out. But, you know, once politics had rearranged a couple more times, by the time we got to today, uh, he very much identified with, with the political left. And certainly in 2020, I mean, you know, I, I challenge people to go take a look at that platform because that was us sitting down in a room with him and hammering out what do we really believe in. And it, it came down to these core planks. So that was okay. fundamental political reform. Do you mind if I ask you a personal question? Policy, uh, Do you mind if I ask you a personal question? 
Yeah, absolutely. Are, are you 19 years old? I'm 21, 21. Help me. That, that I, so as I understand it, you and your friend were listening to Chop, the Chapo tra, Trap House, correct? Is, is this <laughs> this the, is how we had first heard of him, yeah. You, you were listening to a podcast, a left-wing podcast. They mentioned Mike Ravel. And then you and your friend, you were, what, seniors in mm -hmm. high school? What year is this? I was in college. My friend was a senior in high school. And yeah, we, so we, we heard about him there first originally. And actually, so we, I right at the time been reading a history of the Pentagon Papers and the Vietnam War mm -hmm. and um, the two kind of threads connected and we were like, holy crap. And then we saw the 2008 debate clips was who we came to and we became obsessed with this guy, researched him a bunch, found his personal website and we emailed him. I mean, we assumed no way that he would reply to us. He replied to us within about 10 minutes after we sent the email because uh, he was just hanging out and I don't know, you know, it was back and forth about three, four weeks. We spoke with him on the phone, just telling him what we believed, what he believed and trying to convince him that we could accomplish something with it. And then, yeah, he eventually agreed to it. Amazing. Do you mind if I ask you what I'm curious, uh, you're 21. Mm. Uh, your definition of being on the left what how do you define it well i think since the emergence of you know industrial society i mean since the emergence of capitalism as we call it throw the word around i mean what does it mean what do we mean when we say it about 2021 2022 that's a complicated question but there's a tradition which has said that the collective human agency basically us serving our own interests our own ends versus artificial ones that we create and imagine and project like money and commodities and production and ownership. These are ultimately fictions, myths that we invent and then they come to have a fake reality and existence outside of us and then they dominate us. Those and in order, to justify the, in order to justify them, you have to create more fictions and more exactly. myths, hence the New York right. Times, the Washington Post and Rachel Maddow. <laughs> Exactly. And you build an entire society around taking a set of myths and pretending that they're realities. And when you naturalize them, you forget that they're made by humans and they can be unmade by humans. And in some deep sense, the people who have been saying that since the beginning have been the intellectual tradition of the left. And what that is today, what that means today is certainly not the industrial proletariat, because it's not a thing that exists in the way right. that it once did at another era of history. And so what we even mean when we say these things is a little bit more open-ended, but the underlying tendency, which is to say humans can choose their own destiny collectively, and we should do so and not let some dominate and others suffer by virtue of myths, either whatever, whether those myths are feudalism and religion or whether those myths are commodities and exchange. Right. They're all just different mythologies that we use to take human power and human choices and pretend that they're the acts of nature or of God and out of our control. What and do you me, think? What, the people what, who've been saying that, that's what I, I identify with. That's where I come from politically. Yeah, In terms of marketing, which is a bad word, what are the, the lies that are repeated constantly that the left has to counter with marketable, uh, almost aphorisms, truths. You know, they, they, the mm. right says supply side economics, you lower taxes for the wealthy, 
it boosts, it stimulates the economy. And that's received wisdom. That's a lie. The, the right says the Taliban, the Afghanistan people attacked us on 9-11. It's a lie. You, you, if, you can't even say that. You can't even call that a lie. You're, you're, it's a disservice to the troops. Uh, right. That uh, Keynesian economics creates inflation, that, that, that a safety net will destroy the value of the dollar. Uh, and we just accept this as received wisdom. What are the truths that we need to repeat over and over again? What, what are the basic mm. truths that... Right, right. Well, here's what I say. I mean, you're an American, you love freedom. Let's say, that's what you imagine it, okay? So break down the hours in your day for me, okay? Eight hours in, eight hours, I don't know, doing whatever, eating, uh, cooking, all the things you have to do to maintain Brood. your life with your Most, kids, mostly raising your family, etc. And what do you spend the other eight hours doing? What do you spend actually the majority of your productive adult working hours in your entire lifetime? 80 to 100,000 hours or more of your entire life doing. And where are you doing that? You're doing that at a workplace. And let me ask, how free are you there? Because when you're at work, your boss is your dictator. They're your lord. They have total control over what you do. The people who own the industries that you work in, they control it. And maybe there's some regulations and OSHA that'll step in and make it a little less bad for you. Maybe, and in all likelihood, probably not. Let's ask another question. I mean, about theft, maybe you really care about crime and about theft. Well, the majority of all theft in the entire country every year is employers stealing from employees. You know, on the other hand, we talk about our legal system and how it's great for individuals or how it's so free, whatever. At the same time, let's say I take 200 bucks out of my boss's cash register on the job. They can call the cops and send me to prison. If I resist, they can shoot me while they're doing that. Okay, let's say my boss forces me to work a couple extra hours and doesn't pay me or takes $200 out of my paycheck. And I want to do something about that. I can call the cops and the cops will say, fuck off. Right. We don't control that here. We don't do that here. So what do you have to do? You have to call up the Civil Rights Bureau. You have to tell them about a wage theft complaint. You got to get a lawyer. You got to submit it. If it's under $2,000. They're not even going to touch it. They won't even start. If it's over $2,000 or you got a bunch of people together, or maybe you just complain for a really long time, they'll start the process. That's going to take about 10 months beginning to end. Okay. Maybe at the end of that process, they get a thousand dollar fine. That's it. That's it. But if you steal from your boss, you're going to go to jail and it's going to transform your entire life. Our legal system, the basic structures of our government and society are designed to privilege people who own and control and wow. disadvantage ones who don't. Wow. And again, the people who own, why do they own? They inherited it. They got it from there. Or, oh, they, they earned it through education. But how did they get into that elite education in the first place? How did they get all these things? Uh, when you start breaking all these things down, you have to say, how different is what we have from feudalism? How different is it from a social system where I control and I own and you don't? But again, I mean, people will then say, oh, you're doing class warfare. You're doing this or that. At the same time, what I'll also say is, we have an interest in society itself succeeding and flourishing. And so long as we are crushing our most talented, so long as we're underutilizing people, can't get an education, whatever, we as a whole are also worse off. I mean, it's not just me versus you, whatever. We all collectively are worse off. I got another one, which I always bring up. You know, you love your car and your house and everything, but you don't love your commute. You don't love all your other cars. The reality is you like your car, but you don't like cars. You don't like other people's cars. You don't like roads. You know, cars, they're like villas on the sea, right? It's fun if you have one, but if everyone has them, there's no room, right? There's no space. And this is the fundamental problem. We built our entire society 
around the geometry problem, which is you have one person for one giant metal box and you want to build a city, you suddenly can't because you need a place to store all those giant metal boxes. And so you don't have cities. You have these giant spread out suburban agglomerations where you're alienated, separated from people. You don't have a community. You don't have a neighborhood. You don't have the kind of social bonds that kept that for which people of the past lived for, you know, anyway, these are the things that I'm always throwing out there because I think if you actually take people's stated values, freedom, independence, autonomy, all these things, you don't get any of that today. That's not the right. deal you're getting. God, you make me feel great. I, I'm so Thank you. tired of being tired. <laughs> I'm tired of people who are tired, who aren't angry, who aren't. Uh, will you will you will you come back? We, I, I want to promote. I'd love to the, the institute and our professor Harvey J.K. is going to be here later. I believe he gave a talk. Love Harvey, absolutely uh, love Harvey. He Harvey came to J. Video with us on FDR's most important, most forgotten speech, where he said we need a second Bill of Rights. And uh, again, another classic story, which you should ask Harvey about and get him to talk about, is that uh, originally uh, FDR's vice president, um, uh, what's his name, Henry Wallace. Uh, who was a, a crusading social reformer, land reformer, proto-socialist type, uh, he almost became president because he was his vice president. And when he was running for re-election in 1940, uh, 1942, I'm forgetting which one, but when he ran for re-election, they made him take off, take him off and put on Truman, the 40 bosses, because they realized FDR was in bad health and they were very afraid of, of Henry Wallace becoming president. And if he had, we would be living in a very different kind of country. Yeah. Um, Harvey's a great person to ask about that. Yeah, well, you're a great person to ask about this. Uh, do you find people saying to you, because they say it to me, you're a child. But I, I, I'll say something like, "How instead of bombing uh, Syria, why don't we just drop bombs and books and medicine? And people say to me, well, you're a child for thinking that way. And I can't figure out why... Mm -hmm. That's childish. Do people call you naive? What what is what some of the condescending pushback that you right, get? Right, right. Oh, I, I get it all the time. I get it all the time. And listen, I also have a privileged background. And people will talk about that and they'll say, well, listen, I mean, hypocrite, right? Hypocritical from the beginning. And listen, I, an aspect of this is true because I'm able to say this stuff because I started reading a bunch of books and I started getting into it and now I believe what I believe. And people will say, well, you don't really know the world. You haven't experienced it. You haven't seen it. So I take what I believe and I throw it up against the world. I mean, I go to bars and I ask people, you know, coming back from a days where I'll ask them, how do you feel about your job? And I'll show our videos to just random people I meet just to hear what they say about them and what they think about them. To me, the thing about adults in the room, the thing about people who are serious is that when they come in contact with what actual Americans believe, what the actual average person believes, I mean, to be fair, I mean, this is one reason why people like Joe Rogan are so hated and not that I have particular love for him, but it's because they represent the kind of basic both incoherence, but also populism of average people, which is that they have a sense that they're being screwed. They have a sense of deep distrust. You know, the adults in the room, what they'll tell you is, well, you're not an adult. You're not serious because your ideas don't align with the powerful. You know, the powerful say Syria, we have to bomb. The powerful say we need this security perimeter in Ukraine. You know, the powerful say this is how economics works and this is how society works and how law works. But the powerful have created the last 20 years of American carnage that we've all lived through. Right. I mean, they precipitated 2008. And guess what? They're still there and they're still the adults. They're still the serious people. But how much trust does the average person still 
still have for serious people, for authority figures. I mean, it is shattered. If you look 30, 40 years ago, there's these polls where they'll ask, do you have basic trust in American institutions or the media, the mainstream media? And it used to be 80, 90%. And today it's like 20, 30%. I mean, there's been a utter collapse in trust in those serious people. And it's because they were utterly wrong and they created 20 years of suffering for the rest of us. And so I take being on serious, being outside the club, that's a compliment to me right. because ultimately the people in the club have been fucking it up for pretty, pretty long now. What I love about Mike Ravel and what I loved about your your campaign as president was the platform because it's not a critique of America. It's this is how we fix it. I, the, my complaint about right. uh, the Democratic Party and liberals is the most you can get for them is they'll acknowledge the problem, but they're not willing to offer up the solutions. I'm going to bring in Professor Ben Burgess. I think you're going to do. Have you been on a show yet? I haven't, but I love I love uh, uh, Professor Burgess, and I think we've spoken before. Although yeah, I'm not, I'm not be sure when. I, I'm going to bring him in. You should be on his show. So, what are speaking to uh, Mike Ravel's platform? What are the issues that will fix? What 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 are the the bills in Congress? What what are the solutions? Well, there's one that, that, that comes ahead of everything else and precipitates everything else. What you just said, which is that Democrats will agree with the problem, but aren't willing to go through with the solution. And that's because one of those solutions is totally upending our constitutional order because the Senate and the Electoral College and the way that districts are apportioned and even the way that states have this inordinate power, all of it makes no sense. I mean, all of it is grounded in the political economy of a slaveholding, colonial, agrarian society that is utterly unlike the one we have today. And those political structures remain a permanent and fundamental barrier to that ultimate progress. I mean, people talk about the rotating villain, you know, the one person they always blame to say, oh, we can't have healthcare because Joe Manchin or this or that. But the structure that allows them to do that in the first place is the Senate, the filibuster, the electoral college. We have to start there. I mean, if those things don't change, nothing else is truly possible. I, I think and even if let, you let were me push to, back on that, and then I want to bring Professor mm -hmm. Ben Burgess in here. You're right. I just don't see us getting rid of the Senate. Well, this is why it's a stretch goal for me. You right. Know, so, like, you what, start there like and with the planet <laughs> negotiate down? I, guess. I know, but so like the planet has ten years left, right. and we need uh, to we need leadership. We need a candidate who's going to storm the Democratic Party. I believe. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's really up to you. Uh, I'm old, but I think we need uh, to to storm the Democratic Party, take it over, uh, do a purge and have three issues that are non-negotiable. Uh, where if you're not for Medicare for all, if you're not for uh, the Green New Deal, Get out of the party. But what what do you, what do you mm -hmm. think right now? I, I, I understand. I agree with you that the Senate is a leftover, as is the filibuster from the Jim Crow South from slavery. Right. I, I, I but I don't think. But what can we actually do? You yeah, know, like overturning Citizens United. We're not. I don't believe we we should invest our energy into overturning Citizens United. I believe that our candidates should just not take corporate dollars, mm -hmm. period. Right. So what what can we do right now that. Right. Right. 
Well, I agree with the premise, which is you you surge into the party with a candidate that comes from outside of what people imagine to be the political establishment and the political structures that comes in with issues and with a platform that's unheard of and breaks every boundary and rule. I think that's where you start. I think if you have that moment, you need to use it to do structural reform of one kind or another, however far you can go. I mean, if it's the filibuster, it's the filibuster. If it's the electoral college, it's the electoral college. The electoral college, by the way, with the state the, the, the state level uh, compact is actually possibly quite close to being overturned. Yeah. Like so there's, or, there's some optimistic states. things there. Yeah, you're right. It's like um, one but, or two states. But, Let me just bring in Ben right. Burgess. He is the yeah, author of Christopher Hitchens what he got right, how he went wrong, and why he still matters. He's also the host of Give Them an Argument. And Henry Williams is one of the founders of the Gravel Institute. And Ben, I, Professor Ben, I'd like to introduce you to Henry. Anything you'd like to say about Mike Gravel, the great Mike Gravel? Any questions? Uh, I actually had a really good conversation with Branka Marketich about uh, Mike Gravel uh, shortly after he passed uh, for uh, for Gizman Argument. I would recommend people check that out. He wrote a really good obituary of him for uh, for Jacobin. Um, and uh, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think I think he I think he's somebody who showed a lot of political courage. Um, I, I don't know what else I have to say about that uh, off the uh, off the top of my head, but I don't know. I've been hanging out for a couple of minutes. I didn't hear anything I disagreed with. Okay. Well, uh, let's have Henry come back next week. And are you coming to office hours to organize us, please, on Friday night? I, I'd love to. Let me, I'll, I'll follow up uh, with, with email. Excellent to meet you, Ben. And uh, it was great coming on the show. Oh, yeah. I this hope to come back in, future, in the future. The, the, you're, you're really are a... Uh, a gift and give the uh, email address. How can people support you and how can they support Absolutely. the Gravel Institute other than going to gravelinstitute.org? Absolutely. First thing I would just say, go to youtube.com, type in the Gravel Institute. It's spelled gravel, G-R-A-V-E-L, the Gravel Institute, but it's pronounced Gravel. Go watch some of the videos, subscribe, see if you like them. If you really like us and you really want to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash Gravel Institute and support the work of the Institute. We don't get any other donations. We're completely crowdfunded. That's how we make the videos to begin with. If you really, really like it and want to go further, you can reach me at henry at gravelinstitute.org. If you have an idea for a video, someone we should work with, a presenter we should have, that sort of thing. We, I mean, uh, Professor Burgess, we'd probably love to have you in a video at some point. So any of those kinds of things, you can reach out to me directly. Uh, but otherwise, I would just say check us out on YouTube and, and see what you think of the videos. And if you have thoughts, you can also email them to me, and I'd love to see them. Thank you for taking time to, to be with us. Go to the Gravel Institute. Go to their website, gravelinstitute.org. Read some of their papers, like The Leisure Agenda. It's a policy paper outlining yep. how overworked we all are. And uh, <clears throat> there, there's, some great, there's some great writing over there. And Professor Harvey J.K., you can see Professor. Of course, Harvey. I would tell him a little for me. Say yes. we love him and we'll have him back for a video Thank in the you. future. Thank too. you for taking time to do this. Very good. Thank you so much. Bye -bye. Well, Professor, that's Henry Williams. Amazing. Professor Ben Burgess joins us. Uh, you have a piece over ja your columnist for Jacobin. Did you know that? Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I like Jacobin. Yeah. Jacobin's a great, great, great nice. magazine, which everybody should subscribe to.
the piece you have, I believe your latest piece is entitled, The Supreme Court is an anti-democratic monstrosity. We should break its power. Instead of celebrating yeah. Stephen Breyer's retirement, we should be weakening the Supreme Court's power. Very quickly, isn't, sure. isn't the best way to do it is to not replace Stephen Breyer? Just have eight people uh, on the Supreme Court, have it be an even <laughs> vote so everything gets remanded back to the lower courts? <laughs> Well, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be an even vote. Of course, uh, it would be even more lopsidedly conservative than uh, than it is right now. Oh, I forgot. Yeah, um, yeah I, I mean, I think that there. I mean, I think there are different strategies you could use to to try to do that. I mean, the, the big thing I'm arguing, you know, I mean, I'm I think you know, I think that the you know, I think the court reorganization plan that FDR had in the '30s was a good idea. I, I, I think that. Um, I think that, you know, you could actually just have, you know, uh, Congress, you know, pass laws uh, clarifying, you know, the court's areas of authority, uh, which has never really been done. Uh, I think there are lots of things that you could do to to bring about this goal of, of weakening and, and, you know, the power of the Supreme Court. But the big thing that I was trying to argue in the piece is just that that should be the goal, right? That the, that like, we should be trying to weaken the power of the Supreme court, because this is a, this is a hideously anti-democratic institution. And I think this is one of those areas where a lot of Americans, like even, even like pretty progressive Americans have this kind of myopic, you know, perspective where, you know, we sort of forget that the rest of the world exists. Mm -hmm. uh, we do that a lot in America, right? Uh, where so, uh, you know, the same way it was kind of ridiculous in like, I remember, I remember like being amazed in like 2016, by the way, everybody was talking about how Medicare for all would work as if it was this like speculative hypothetical uh, that, that didn't already exist anywhere, right? You right. know, that there weren't, there weren't any real models. And similarly, if you say, uh, the United States shouldn't have uh, what's called strong form judicial review, which means that uh, the Supreme Court has the power to simply like overturn democratically passed laws with with no recourse or, you know, or, or basically rewrite them, take parts out, um, you know, that because we're just so used to that here and because we tend to forget the rest of the world exists. Like PSA, oh no, but like, you know, if the uh if we didn't have that, I mean, you know, what 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 protection would we have against, you know, horrible authoritarian things happening and wouldn't the rights of minorities be trampled and you know, this and that. And, and I always just want to say, like, guys, Canada exists, right? Like Canada doesn't have strong form judicial review. They seem to have thus far successfully avoided fascism. Uh and uh and you know, most other advanced democracies don't the high courts don't have anything to Can like I tell the you what, power. What, what the argument is? Yeah, the argument please. is they're not the policemen of the world. We are. We cannot be the policemen of the world if we allowed the American people to vote on whether or not we're going to be the policemen of the world. And that really is why we're so undemocratic, is you cannot be the military power that we are. Uh, if it were put to a vote. Yeah, I, I think the two are definitely connected. I mean, this is this is what Danny Bester has always pointed out, that the, the way that the American national security state is, is, is constructed really 
uh, to a pretty unusual extent, you know, globally, um, really freezes out any kind of public discussion or involvement. And even though that's, you know, a slightly separate issue than the Supreme Court one, I mean, I think they're both part of a larger problem, which is just that we we really accept like a shockingly low level of democratic participation in this country that, you know, that, that we have, like, if you just sort of go through all of the, all of the mechanisms that we have to stop the popular will from being done, you know, ranging from strong form judicial review to um, this bizarre system for, uh, you know, portioning, you know, congressional districts where, you know, as, as your friend Ralph Nader, you know, as has put it right, you know, congressmen, you know, choose their districts much more than the other way around sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, that the two through, you know, like you were just talking about uh, uh, with uh, with the uh, guy from the uh, Gravel Institute, the, uh, you know, to, you know, just, I mean, the existence of the Senate really, but I mean, especially, um, you know, but especially the fact that, you know, we have this, this ridiculous, filibuster and like a particularly ridiculous version of the filibuster right now right i mean this is i wrote about this for jacobin last year but like you know people hear filibuster and they think mr smith goes to washington but literally you could just have a staffer send an email and say oh my senator's filibustering that that's all you have to do like uh, through the fact that we have this imperial presidency that conducts foreign policy with very little participation, even with from Congress, right? Never mind from any any sort of uh, broader form of public consultation. So, um, you know, like the the kind of thing that Smedley Butler advocated, where he said we should have to have like a national referendum, you know, every time we go to war. In fact, I think his suggestion was that we should have to have two, and it should have to pass both, right? One is with the public as a whole; the other is with people who'd be eligible for the draft. Uh, but, if only the, if um, only the Constitution yeah. gave Congress and only Congress the right to declare war, if only that were written into the Constitution. Yeah, that, would, that would be nice. That would be nice. Yeah. I, I mean, it's amazing, right? Because like in the uh, in the 70s, uh, you know, we got the, the War Powers Act, which was treated as this like big limitation of the imperial presidency. But is itself wildly unconstitutional because 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 it because it does allow you know the president to engage in war for a little while until uh, until Congress you know says okay it's okay you can keep doing it which is like particularly strange right because like the last time that you know I mean. I think Afghanistan, people think of in this light, but I think it was a lot more complicated if you start looking at the details. But the last time there was truly a war where, you know, the United States was attacked and, you know, and, and, and went to war because it was attacked. 1941, we still did a declaration of war from Congress because back then people thought you had to, you know, or, I, you, uh, I, or, you, or you, could, you, could, you couldn't start a war. So, so, yeah, I think the extent to which the public is frozen out of all these, all of these, I think they're all linked to each other. I think that I think that they are linked, as you say, to the sort of imperatives of, of global hegemony since World War II. Uh, I and I think they're also linked, as you were discussing with the previous guest, to the the fact that this was like up until the mid nineteen sixties. You know, this was just unambiguously an apartheid country. I mean, that's the you know we we, we had racial apartheid, and if you have that, I mean, you can't afford to have too much democracy. You know, like that's so so obviously that both of those are big parts of the, uh, you know, of the of the equation. And and I and I think it is really troubling. You know, when like even so many progressives accept one of the biggest limitations on democracy in America, which is strong form judicial review. And I do just want to really briefly say on that, like. 
Uh, one reason I think so many people accept that is because I think a lot of sort of vaguely left liberal people in their heads, when they think about the role of the Supreme Court and its ability to overturn laws, what they're thinking about is, you know, Miranda rights and Brown versus Board of Education and, you know, like a this, this like you can um, list off like a handful of other like really good Supreme Court rulings. But what it gets down to is they're really talking about the Warren Court, right? You know, that that's, you know, that which, which we had in the 50s and 60s. And yeah, Warren Court did great things. But like the problem is liberals get it into their heads that the Warren Court is just the sort of like standard, like way that the Supreme Court works. And everything else is an aberration. But if you look at it in a long historical view, the Warren Court was the aberration, you know, that like mostly, you know, yeah, sure. The Supreme Court can step in to enforce civil rights or try to, right, as a Brown versus Board, which wasn't really enforced until the Civil Rights Act. Uh, but it can, you know, so yeah, it can invalidate, you know, invalidate segregation laws, but it can also invalidate uh, civil rights laws. And it has tons of times, right? You know, the Supreme Court stepped in to stop, uh, you know, Congress or, you know, states uh, from uh, from imposing civil rights legislation, you know, like like the reason affirmative action is as limited as it is, you know, has to do with Supreme Court rulings. And 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 I think if we're going to be really honest about it, um, the uh, the fact, like, you know, when people have this idea that you know the Supreme Court is going to step in as the as the guardian of vulnerable minorities, I mean, I'd say. You know, at best, the record is severely mixed, right? Because again, there's it's just as easy to step in in the opposite direction. So, well, liberal rich white men are a vulnerable get, minority. They've done a good job. Well, that's the thing. That's the thing. I mean, I think historically, the 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 minority that the Supreme Court has most often intervened to protect has been rich people, like consistently, like through like throughout its history. That like, I mean, read like what Eugene V. Debs wrote about you know about the Supreme Court or said about the Supreme Court. You know, like he. Uh, like, why was it that FDR, well, you know, wanted to reorganize the court, you know, like his, 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 with a few sort of happy moments of exception, right? If anything, if it, if it's going to overturn laws, I mean, that's the that's the top reason why. I mean, it's it's like this weird, it's like the um, you know, like Iran has the you know Islamic Guardianship Council. It's like we have the Capitalist Guardianship Council. Right, right. It's interesting about the war. Powers Act and Congress's uh. our, our founding fathers saying that only Congress should declare war. When the nuclear weapon came around, they decided that a president has to be able to declare war at a moment's notice. And yet <laughs> war takes months, years in the I mean, look what's going on in Ukraine. <laughs> the the buildup of soldiers. Uh, getting ready supposedly to attack Ukraine. Look how long it took to invade Iraq and Afghanistan. We could vote on it. It's not like we go to war <laughs> in a moment's notice, but that's how the, absolutely vote on that. That's that's how the president was able to take that power away from Congress. I have to be able to move our troops in, in 24 hours. They never do that. They can do an airstrike. Uh, yeah, but like, but they're not going to start an invasion like it's you know right. from like planning the execution in twenty four hours. And you could say, well, um, 
you know, our, our enemies would know about it. If, you know, if we, if we had a vote, but it's like, yeah, yes, sure. I mean, I don't think we should have secret wars, right? You know, they, uh, I, I think that if you're going to have a war, like if there's anything that should be a democratic decision, I mean, that should be it. And, um, and the, you know, the idea, especially for a country like, you know, like the United States, I mean, realistically, um, you know, the idea that we're going to, I mean, we're bordered by Canada, Mexico, and a couple of oceans. And, you know, I know that the big 9-11 cliche was, oh, see, that doesn't protect us. But it's like, well, sure, it doesn't protect you against crime. No, what protects us right? is the commander-in-chief who reads intelligence briefings entitled Osama bin Laden intent <laughs> on flying planes into buildings. That's what protects us. Sure. Yeah, that, that is theoretically supposed to be part of what would protect you. But like, also, it's like, yeah, sure, like the oceans in Canada and Mexico being the borders – that doesn't protect you against like people carrying out like sort of individual terrorist attacks, but that's not a military issue anyway. Right. I mean, like it's, it's uh, that's, that's not something the military would, would be able to stop. Right. I mean, like you would, would stop, you know, as you say, there are things that, you know, there are lots of uh, issues you can raise about how, how the Bush administration handled that, but like, it does. It damn well does stop you from being invaded, right? You know, right. I mean, like that would, uh, you know, like like who, who's you know who's going to invade you, and like and how long is it going to take them, and and so the idea, and again, when the Japanese actually did bomb Pearl Harbor, you know, there was still at least a congressional vote, you know, about about going to war there. You know, there's there's no, I mean, that was like much more of a genuine emergency than any of the stuff that's happened in the last several decades when they've asserted, you know, that you have to, you know, be able to order huge troop movements and, you know, six hours or whatever, you know, so, so you can't afford to have anybody outside of the executive have any sort of say on it. And maybe being an imperial power and taking over islands in the Pacific may not be the best way to keep your country safe. That just, you know, that, that kind of stretches, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You're, kind of stretches you a little thin. We've, we've learned that from history. What do you think uh, we have a couple of months before the midterms? What uh, do you think is the most important issue that like we, I, I worry that we don't prioritize. What do you mm -hmm. think is the thing that, will galvanize the left, get them to march in lockstep. What is the issue without the critique? We, I, I understand the structural problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, 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 what's, but yeah, no, I mean, I think we definitely do need to be better about um, sort of consolidating, you know, be hot, like, like really having, you know, like there be like one or two sort of core issues that are associated um you know, with the left that people can get fired up about. So it's not just a Christmas wish list that like none of it stands out above the rest. Uh, I, I think that is important. I mean, I think part of the problem is that I think arriving at that isn't just a matter of like what sounds good to me or what sounds good to you. I mean, like there's, there's a kind of like what's going to like sort of fire the imaginations of, of a large number of people. I mean, I still think Medicare for all, you know, should uh, should be, you know, a big part of that, because that that just seems like, um, you know, I, I, I think that's just so easy to understand. Even, nego so even Medicare so negotiating the prices of pharmaceuticals. I was watching Amy Klobuchar, uh, of all people, and Bernie, yeah. 
on the, in the Senate yesterday introducing legislation that would give Medicare the right to negotiate with Big Pharma. How is that not the number one story in America? That that what we pay for for insulin for these drugs. Oh, sorry. I, I thought you were still. Uh, no, no. I was just saying. Like, why is that? I I think. I I wish we could focus on. Yeah, I mean, on, I, I mean, the, I, I think that like, I mean, I think part of the problem is in terms of like galvanizing huge numbers of people like let Medicare, you know, negotiate for lower prices, you know, like, I, I don't know if like as a demand, you know, that's really going to have that effect. I mean, I think certainly the fact that it's being gouged in this way uh, is, is certainly a good like talking point to talk about the, the obscenity of, of having a for-profit, um, you know, healthcare system. But I mean, I, I also think to just, just being able to say like, it, it just seems like you should be, I, I just can't believe like, I mean, I know that the issue has like receded from public attention a lot of, you know, since the, since the 2020 election, but I, I just can't, I just can't believe that we can't um, like that. We can't, like fire people up about this and, you know, and, and it, cause it, it just seems like such an overwhelmingly simple sort of case. That's like, this is just a moral outrage that, you know, that, that you don't, that you have to pay, you know, for, uh, for, for healthcare, you know, that that's not just provided as a, as a right to citizenship, like having the, you know, like having the fire department come to your house if it's on fire. Um, and, and I think that it's something that again, anybody who's ever had to, anybody who's actually had health insurance, who's had to use it has, has had the experience of like fighting with them about, uh, about things. Do you know what anybody rehab who, costs? Have you ever priced rehab for somebody? Uh, no, no, I haven't. We, we have this That's, big uh, war on drugs in America. I'll ask Dr. Uh, Hershenfeld about that in a second. Uh, yeah. But yeah, yeah, we, we have this, we have this big war on drugs, but we're not, uh, you know, but like it doesn't mean that we're, you know, we're giving people free uh, drug rehab, uh, which, which is also, you know, I think, uh, I mean, I think this one's a little bit, you know, touch here, but I mean, like, I, I also think like if, you know, if you look at debates that happen about housing and like, crackdowns and homeless encampments and things like that. Um, I think sometimes on the left, we make the mistake of talking about that issue as if the only thing you need, if you're homeless is a home, that that's it. I mean, obviously that, that, that does have to be the, the start of it. Right. But uh, we're also talking about huge numbers of people who in order to like get their lives together and have a second chance, like they also need, you know, in tons of cases, mental health services and addiction counseling and you know and and that's I you know, nobody wants to okay you, you I, don't I think, think you, you don't know, think a lot I, of people I, need that i think what causes mental health issues is precarity i think living on i think if you i think if i were living I, on the street god forbid god has to forbid it because my country won't if i had to live on the street i would be mentally ill that would cause mental illness 
Sure, but that just because that's what causes it doesn't mean that the second you take away the root cause, the effect goes away. Like, like, like in other words, like if I, you know, if, if you're, you know, I don't know, if you're a service bit and you're sent to a rock, you know, your leg is blown off because you were, you know, because you were in a war zone, but that doesn't mean when you get back to the United States, you know, you're, you're, you know, if only we had a get... psychiatrist who could answer this question for us. <laughs> yeah. Is there a psychiatrist in the house, Doctor? I don't know. We should we should ask in the chat, you know, see if any of them have any insight onto this. Doctor Philip Hershenfeld joins us. Yes. What can, what what can I do for you, gentlemen? Homelessness, if you don't mind. Uh, and there's there's do, Ethan Hershenfeld. Do we, do we mention Heather Cox Richardson you're, you're on kicking. this program, or is she not left enough? Leslie, my. Leslie, my Leslie keeps saying I should have her on the show. Yeah. Okay. I think it was she this week, although maybe it was somebody else who pointed out that in this country, we actually despise the poor and the weak and children who are also poor and weak. And I think there's something to that. Well, there is. I hate all those people. <laughs> <laughs> so I, there's at least one person who. Uh, well, so well, how, how do you help the homeless? Yes. Um, it's really hard. And it's a really long. Have you ever read Ironweed? I saw the movie. Kennedy? Okay. Kennedy, yes. So it's, it's a trilogy. It's really good. It takes place in the Albany area in the 30s. And some of it has to do with homeless people, what were called bums in those days. And there's one scene where there's an encampment of homeless people living in tents. And they are physically attacked by the good people of, uh, you know, of the town. As they burn the tents, they attack them, they have axes, they have this and they have that. Now we and have the police to do that in Los Angeles. The police in, do that. Well, they did it then too, as, as if it's contagious and that right. everybody else is going to catch homelessness and poverty and whatever else. I befriended a, a homeless guy on the street. Here. Did, he, did he have you over? Not yet. He had been. <laughs> I'm waiting. Well, if he didn't have you over, how'd you meet him? <laughs> <laughs> Giving him dollars and buying him food and okay, stuff okay. like that. Oh, I get it. Right, right. Okay. And and I asked him, I got to know him, first name basis, My, Michael, why do you sit on this street corner? And he says, you see that apartment up there? This is on Third Avenue in the Upper East Side. Used to be mine. It's where I grew up. I said, so what happened? He said, well, I went to Tulane. There, there say no more. <laughs> I mean, that's just it's a drinking school. They're frats. Say no more. I mean, we need to put an end to the frat epidemic in this country. The frat. Okay, sorry. Go on. You can. And he ended up as a jazz. Trumpet. Jazz. Don't get me started. Jazz. 
heroin, women, late nights. All of that. Jesus. Jazz and Tulane. You might as well just you might as well just jump off a jump off a of a pier. That's terrible. Yeah. Okay. So that's how we ended up on the street corner. Very nice guy, well spoken, very sick. And I think he's probably dead now after knowing him for a couple of years. He suddenly has disappeared. Right. But there's nowhere for a guy like that to go. In the old days, when I first trained in psychiatry, we had big state hospitals. And, oh, we don't like them. They're terrible. Well, you you know what? There were some good ones and there were some bad ones. And for somebody who needs shelter and food and protection, it's not a bad. It's certainly better than being on the street. But then a bunch of politicians, along with some uh, well-meaning psychiatrists, said we have to get rid of these hospitalizations because we have all these wonderful new medications and let's make halfway houses and let's treat them out in the community and let's put on. And the politicians said, this is great. We can close down all the big hospitals, fire all those people, which they did, but they never put the money into the halfway houses and the apartments and the social services. Right. Because this was even cheaper to throw them out into the street or put them in jail. I don't like half the whole halfway house idea is bad right from the get go, just from the name. You can tell half. I don't like half and half. I don't like half time. I don't like halfway houses. Just don't do it halfway. If you're going to build a house, build a house, not a halfway house. It's insulting. You can already tell it's 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 50 percent bad. I don't like it. And halftime shows, they're horrible, aren't they? They should just, I, I, we went to a show last night, saw something on Broadway for the first time in a long time. Saw the David Byrne musical, American Utopia. There's no halftime, no intermission. It was fantastic. It was just a full show. No, you don't need a halftime or an intermission. And That's he didn't play any quarter halves either. His music was devoid no. of quarter halves or half notes. No, no quarter notes. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And, and by the way, you're not going to get off the hook this easily, David, tonight because we're going to have some heavy negotiations. Do you have a fan club? Yes. David? I'm going to say yes. Well, I have a fan club now. I got a phone call this week from a viewer. Nameless? Nameless, except his name is David. His name is also David. Ah. He's not you. Okay. And this guy said he's my really big fan. And he's asked David Feldman to have me on more often, which, of course, I never heard a word about. But I said to this very erudite, (laughs) I said, would you like to be the president of my fan club? And he said, absolutely. Oh, this is good. I have a president of a fan club. I don't know if I have any members, but I have a president. I have a Fuhrer. So, Mine, ha- there's a Fuhrer to my. But go ahead. Well, how do we how do so we create I, the Dr. Philip Hershenfeld fan club? I want to I want to renegotiate my salary on the basis of that. Hang on, I this know how to. Called, hang on, I got to go to the playbook. Hang on, you want more <laughs> money? Let me go to the playbook. Here. Uh, yeah, right. 
Did you know that when you're on the numbers, we lose people between the ages of 74 and uh, 75? We lose our female viewers when you're on? Did you know that? The the urban areas, I don't the numbers go down. I don't believe down. it. Okay. We've got a lot it. of complaints about you. I, I didn't we want to say had Ethan over for dinner tonight, and I went to a fancy Italian restaurant to pick up the dinner. And there were three drunk ladies at the bar trying to hit on me. Oh, Jesus. Well, if all three of them watch the show, you should be good. <laughs> all right. Uh, all right let me, let's wrap up let's Professor Ben Burgess. Yeah. Prof yeah. Prof do you have his book? Or you're, you're yes. not? Not with me, but ah, okay. okay. We Christopher Hitchens, what yeah. he got wrong, what he got right, and why he matters. Something like that. Yeah. Go buy that go. book. It gets the Feldman guarantee. If you buy the I, book, I'm sorry for massacring the title, man. <laughs> no, the name of the book. Well, <laughs> let me let me plug the book. Christopher Hitchens, what he got right. right, how he went wrong, and why he still matters. Go to Emma's. RedEmmas.org, RedEmmas.org, and buy that book along with all of Professor Ben Burgess's other books. Please read them over Jacobin and listen to his podcast. Give them an argument or watch it. Give them an argument. Thank you, Professor. Thank you, comedian. Thank you. The Hershenfelds, you look like brothers. Oh, hello. Oh. So I, I want to stay on the topic of homelessness being a psychiatric condition. There is a shortage of homes in America, period. Nobody can afford rent. Isn't it kind of like a chicken and an egg thing? I mean, the the chicken is a chicken because the, he has no egg to be in. And then you, I don't know if that works. Help me out. No, no. It didn't. It's, it's close, David, it's close. But, but not exactly. No, but um, uh, it's a, I think it's a strategy. <laughs> not enough houses Not enough houses are built, which uh, keeps supply low, demand high, and prices high. And, uh, yeah, it's not humane, and it's, it's part of a, an entire syndrome of cruelty in our country. That is I just saw in the post, I just saw none other than Dave Chappelle, man of the people, speaking up in a town council meeting in his town in Ohio, speaking out against an affordable housing element to to a project. No, he was, he, he was threatening. No, no, come on. But he was threatening. He was threatening to remove his investments on some other projects if they went ahead with it. Why, I don't know. That's why would he his, say uh, that? Is it I would assume that Dave Chappelle would be ultra, ultra left wing and on the side of the working class. Well, I mean, to a degree, I, I can I can smell the sarcasm even through my the computer. But <laughs> but but yeah, at least that's just extreme. That was extreme to me. That was bizarre. But he he threatened to pull millions and millions of dollars out yeah. of uh, the city if they built affordable housing in his backyard. Yeah. NIMBY. That's the NIMBY thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, not in my backyard. So, Dr. Hershenfeld, uh, in this country, if you have a substance abuse problem, I was pricing this for a substance abuse problem for a friend of mine, which is always good yeah. to do, 
Ethan, explain why that's a smart thing to do before you start doing drugs to price rehab centers, right? Yeah, that's called that's advanced planning. That's, you don't want to put the card. And when it, it's specific to the heroin addiction, you don't want to put the cart before the horse. <laughs> like you're thinking of, should I try heroin? Should I get addicted yeah. to Oxycontin? Maybe I want to be an alcoholic. You should shop around for rehab centers to see what the most affordable is and then pick your poison. So that's what I That's was, a good idea. Yeah, yeah. this is uh, being a smart consumer because patients in the end are consumers. Bain Capital has bought up, Mitt Romney's Bain Capital has bought up all the rehab. It's You can go to, it seems to me, you can go to Alcoholics Anonymous, or you check into a, a rehab center for somebody quoted me a price of two thousand a week. Yeah, is is that really that the solution to drug? If you have a, if you're addicted to opiates, is that what you have to do no. in America? It's a solution to Bain's Capital's need for more capital. <laughs> But, but it but it's not it's not necessarily true that those places don't work but it's 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 part of it's part of a, a solution right it can be part of a solution yeah. staying home and not drinking can also be part of a solution i've seen all sorts of seriously addicted people decide i'm not going to drink anymore i'm not going to i'm not impressed by a lot of these rehab centers, long-term results. I'm just well, not. So what I is can attest from my, from my own halva addiction <laughs> that it's very hard. Once you have a taste of that stuff, it's it's very hard. And so you you're know saying it's you had a halva, a lot of halva. Is that what you're saying? A halva lot. <laughs> my father used to bring halva home. <laughs> Yeah. as a treat and i hated it because you can't eat a lot of it you, yes he was a good father he would bring yeah. it home but it's like you you can't pig out on alva it just you, exactly you, what you is i just did i just brought some i just brought some here and i ended up eating like 90 percent of that <laughs> stick of halva. you're right you shouldn't be able to but i'm able to i love that oh, i could and i like to pick out so what is the solution if you're let's say you're you only have, I don't know, a hundred million dollars, and one of your kids is addicted to opiates. Two thousand dollars a week to go out to. Yeah. I mean, what 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 do you do if you only have a hundred million dollars? Seriously, where where do you go? Well, you, I would buy an island. You buy an island and put the kid on the island where there's there's no drugs. Then you right. then that's real real isolation. Yeah. But what it's is the really solution? Hard. What is the solution? I don't know that there's one solution for everybody. There are um each person is an individual. No man, no man is an island. No man is an island. Some people are helped by these centers. I've seen I saw a kid, I don't know, cured is the right word. He was asleep in his bed in manhattan a couple of special ops barge into the house 
I don't know if they put a bag over his head, but they drag him out of the house to the airport into a plane. To I think this is he's actually just describing a destination bar minister. <laughs> Mazel tov. <laughs> Welcome to Oman. Mazel tov. <laughs> he ended up on top of a mountain, a rocky mountain. I think the place was called Rocky Mountain Academy. And when he got there, the first thing he was told is, if you'll notice, there are no fences here. The reason we don't need fences is if you is because if you leave the premises, the wolves will get you. So don't even think about it. And he didn't, and he spent a long time in the, there. And uh, I, I think mainly what happens, and this is to teenagers, who are mostly nuts, teenagers. If they can be put in a safe place to get to be 19, for example, then, you know. So if the earlier they try these drugs, the harder it is for them to kick it. That's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is lots of kids try drugs. Only certain ones get really into trouble. And I think those are the ones with more underlying issues, more anxiety, more, less of a More friend, friends. More friends, right. Friends are terrible. And um, I was lucky because when I tried and, and it was successively. I tried peppermint schnapps on a ski trip. <laughs> Disgusting. I tried Cointreau on a class trip to D.C. And then rum and coke at some point. <laughs> All these drinks are disgusting. So to get that first objective sense of how disgusting the whole thing is, that's actually an advantage. Now, what in all seriousness, what is the advantage to teaching kids how to drink? Some parents think... Fine. No advantage whatsoever. There's, there, there, it's, a, it's a crazy concept. You don't teach kids how to drink. What you say to kids and what you show them is you're not going to drink in my house or in my knowledge until you're of a legal age, period. And there are going to be strong consequences if you do. This idea will do it at home. And, and that'll make it less mysterious. That's all bullshit. <laughs> and um, and they're going to try it anyway. But but if they see a parent who does not get sloshed, him or herself, because that's one of the biggest uh, um, dangers to a kid is to have parents who abuse anything. What but about see a parent? who doesn't, and he's told, no, you are not going to do it. You move out, fine, you're on your own. What about the parents who said better they should smoke dope and drink in the house so I can keep an eye on them? Yeah, bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. I, well, I don't know. 
I don't have any. I don't have any. My uh, mother. Any I, I. I. Full disclosure. I haven't had a drink since 1988, and I haven't done anything. You look at. I could use it. I know my knuckles are are white, but I'm. I don't want to get into. It's too dirty to tell you why my knuckles are white. But uh, my mother cured me of my drinking. She said to me, "I came home drunk," and she said, "You're killing me." Um, and I said, "Oh, then I'll stop." <laughs> <laughs> All it took was my mother saying, "You're killing me," and I went, "Well, then I must stop drinking because, uh, hmm, we spend a lot of money." fighting drugs, locking people up for uh, drug dealing, but none on treatment. We don't pay for treatment. Right. Treatment helps in certain situations. There's not, uh, you know, one size fits all. I once worked with a guy 30 years old a very talented guy, very smart guy. No and names. No names. <laughs> no names. What would you do without him? What would you? I, I, I'd spill the beans. So anyway, so Ed, yeah. <laughs> just, just by the virtue of being in treatment, that somehow allowed him to stop. He would have a couple of blackouts a month. And that's serious, especially for somebody 30 years old. Especially for a pilot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And to this day, if he's at a dinner party and he's very successful, if they offer him wine, he says, I'm sorry, I'm an alcoholic. I can't drink. I haven't had a drink in 34 years. And they're like, a, a simple no thank you would suffice. <laughs> no, he was a, we don't need to hear all Megillah every time. <laughs> right, right. It's uh, it's tough. I, I, my heart goes out. A friend of mine has somebody who needs to go into treatment, and you start pricing it, and it's... It's impossible. It's it's cheaper to just keep drinking. (laughs) Well, is what about moderation? What's it called? Moderation management. I have a bullshit. Bullshit doesn't work. There's there's no example of people who say I can have a little. Maybe one or a lot of people. A lot of people say I can have a little. And a few months later, the little turns into a court. Right. I've noticed that there are a lot of people I know who are very successful and they drink a lot. But I look at them and I'm thinking privately, you're very rich. You're very successful. I I drank less than you did and I quit. There are people who who seem to be okay functioning after, you know, and then at seven o'clock they are, but you know, they start and then by 10, you don't want to talk to them because they're belligerent. 
David, I'm really surprised that you, for all your left-wing credentials, you have fallen for the what I think is the, the, the worst aspect of the American myth. You say these people are very successful. It would be more accurate to say they are rich. I would say they are not successful in their lives. If you come home and get plastered, every night which a lot of people do they have two martinis a bottle of wine a nightcap you can't have a relationship with anybody else in that state are you familiar with the are you familiar with the responsa that, that went back and forth between the rabbis of mesopotamia oh, yeah, sure, and, sure. and the jews who were left behind after the destruction of the temple, the the uh, the rabbis in Mesopotamia wrote exactly what you said, that the definition of success is happiness, not how much money a person has. And the responsa was, yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I know, I know. We both know. Yeah. <laughs> If listen, we, we get a lot wrong in this country as well as a, a lot right, but our definitions of success are uh, not geared to what makes a person actually happy. I mean this from the bottom of my heart, and I'm not joking. I would rather a woman love me because I'm rich and famous than kind. Anybody can be kind, but to be rich and f I'm being serious. If somebody says, when my kids used to say, Daddy, I love you, I would say, because I'm rich and famous or because I'm kind to you. And they didn't understand the I'd rather they live in fear of me that I'm rich and famous because any parent can be kind and loving, but it takes a certain wrong. time. Wrong. It's really hard to be kind and loving. Then why? But why isn't that? Why don't we 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 commodify everything? Why can't we put a price tag on if it's so hard to be kind and loving, then that would you be able to get paid for that? OK, forty nine ninety five. <laughs> Same as downtown. Yeah, Ethan, what would you rather someone love you for? In all honesty, you're a comedian. Be honest. I want to be loved for my looks. <laughs> that too. No, no, uh, loved. You know what? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is forgiving. Love is a many splendid thing. <laughs> love is wow. Love. Is, love. <laughs> Love is a four-letter word, mm. but above all, love is a verb. People think of it as a noun, but it's a verb. It can also be a gerund, a loving. <laughs> it, can be, it can be an adverb, lovingly. It can be a past participle, loved. It can be a reflexive verb, I love myself, but you don't want to be reflexive like that on the subway. <laughs> What I'm trying to say is that love takes many forms, many of them really disgusting forms. <laughs> but, 
it's it can be really atrocious so, <laughs> so it's a big subject a lot of people wish it was bigger um, <laughs> but no matter how big it is the important thing is that you love in your own way love is very personal now and do you it's per- very personal like there's no one else there i mean it's just <laughs> it can be lonely love can be lonely what about you above all above all love is it's not a coincidence that in the word vulnerability if you if you were playing boggle and you took the letters of vulnerability and you rearranged them with an algorithm or a computer or someone the word love is in there you must be vulnerable to to love and to be loved there's no Oh, in vulnerable. I'm terrible at spelling. I've always been bad at spelling. And I didn't even go to Harvard and I picked that one. Uh, oh, vulner, vul, vulnerable. Vulnerable. I thought it was vulnerable. It's vulnerable. <laughs> it's vulnerable. I feel like if you rearrange the words of vulnerable, the word lawnmower is in there. <laughs> <laughs> teaches us nothing oh, wow you could do that is an hour special of you uh, remember leo buscaglia who t- would talk for an hour about hugging the motivational no. guy from the 80s and 90s oh. you could do an hour oh, on like hugging hugging workshop kind of yeah thing. like you but i could see you doing another comedy special where you're just pontificating about love as uh, thug thug jew is a masterpiece last question then we have to wrap it up uh what is the best piece of advice your father gave you growing up having having uh, you have a beloved father he's got a fan club i'll tell you what it was well we were at the doctor we were in the we were in the waiting room and he said when you go in there and when she says to you, turn and cough, do it. <laughs> then he said, God forbid you just turn and don't cough or cough without turning. Turn and cough. What about cough? So you're saying coughing and turning that. Just do it. Do what the doctor tells you. That's basically. Okay. Uh, so it's, yeah. it's turn oh. and then cough. Don't cough. cough. But don't turn. Don't turn while. Don't cough while turning. Right. It's not turn while coughing. It's turn and then cough. Turn <clears throat> and then cough. And at night, can you toss and turn, or can you toss and turn and turn and toss, or is there an order is to that? that? A, who is that? Chubby Checker. Who's saying that? That was a good one. Tossing Listen, Feldman. Don't think I haven't noticed that you cleverly misdirected the money this whole evening away from my salary negotiation. I, I want to talk about your toilet training because it's my understanding that money issues and toilet training are intertwined is that well, you true? know what i'm going to give, give you i'm going to tell you honestly the really good piece of advice he gave me very recently we were just talking about it at dinner i had a situation with someone where they were doing something that was really causing um some tension and some aggravation. And I was 
getting to my wits end. And he said, and this was a trick from his, from the quiver of the psychoanalyst's quiver of arrows. It was an arrow of them. He said, why don't you ask that person how you can make it easier for them to solve the problem? In other words, in, instead of continuing to come at them with my suggestions and my ideas, put it on them. And the advice totally failed. The person ignored my email. <laughs> Now, but yeah, sounded great. But it was, yeah. but it was a very good idea. I thought it was a good idea. Now we keep our arrows in a quiver. Yes. What is in your quiver? You have your arrows. What else do you keep in your quiver? You got you probably have a sandwich. You want to have a sandwich? Get <laughs> hungry while you're out hunting with toothpicks, just in case you run out of arrows. Yes. You can fire those. Yeah. 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 And also a cell phone. You want to have a cell phone in your quiver in case mm -hmm. you get lost. Yeah. Yeah. I, I need it's time for a new quiver for me. Absolutely. My yeah. quiver's getting old and wrinkly and saggy. Uh, oh, um, speaking of quivers, next Friday night, I'm going to be on stage in person. It's a, a seven o'clock show at Gotham next Friday night. So uh, the 18th, please uh, take, you know, send me a message if you're interested. How do people I'll, contact I'll, I'll, you? I'll get you a drink. Uh, contact me uh, through my website. That's my name.com, ethanhershenfeld.com. Send me a note through there. And if you're in New York, come to the show. I guarantee the laughs and we'll get a drink. Fantastic. I love you guys. This is, I, I'm telling you, it, it, this was perfect. This was, oh, it, it, this was I, oh, perfect. Oh, can I plug my, girl, my girlfriend's amazing. That's a portrait painted by my girlfriend of her wow. grandmother. Wow. Yeah, it's a gorgeous. Yeah, so you should look up her art. Her name is Kirsten Rolfs. I'd rather look I'll up her, her grandmother. That's well, a, it's it's only the, the painting stops right there, so you can't. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. How do, how do we look? I'm sorry. Give me the address for that. Uh, her name is Kirsten, K-E-R-S-T-I-N. And then Rolfs, R-O-O-L-F-S. Kirsten Rolfs, art.com. She's a... Uh, Quite an amazing artist. Wow. Wow. Yeah, there it is. All right. This was perfection. This I this, this was perfection. In, uh, in part because you didn't talk too much tonight. <laughs> oh what? Let me say this also. God bless America. Yes. God bless our troops. Yes. And also, honestly, God bless the other the other troops from the other countries also. Why is it just our troops that get blessed? Exactly. It's a sucky job to be a troop. Bless the troops. The troops, yes. God bless. Yeah. Yes. God bless and you. God bless everybody. Yeah, yeah. God bless everybody. Thank you, yeah. Hershenfelds. Thank, Thank you. Let's work on that fan club. Oh, sometimes I look at myself and I think, what happened to you? You're listening to the David Feldman show. Emil, are you here? Yeah. There you are. How did unmute yourself, please? It happened to you. I, that was such a great segment. I'm glad I'm coming coming on to, to bring down the, the festivities. I just have my my gong to offer, but Harry, you look good. You look ah. good. You know, you're talking you're talking about love. You know, my daughter once said to me. I agree with you in some ways. My daughter once, my youngest daughter once said to me, dad, I think you should have sold out. She said she, and, and she meant it. She meant, cause I, I was, you know, she was, she was asking me for money. 
I, I didn't have any, but. Hey, you know what? What's worse than not selling out? What's that? Me. I sold out. That's worse. <laughs> I found out what my soul was worth. I sold my soul to the man. I was a stand-up comic for 12 years, and my kids were born. I said, you know what? I'm going to go be a comedy writer. I sold my soul. And and it's pretty bad when you sell your soul and you end up like me. It's the, it's the Faustian bargain, but you got you got a, a steady stream of stuff, right? As opposed no, to no, I, I, have you seen what people who sell their soul get for their soul? Did you see Jeff Franklin, the creator of Full House? Did you see what his soul got him? The house oh, what, that he's selling, one of it. I mean, my God, so, I. Whatever, I want to renegotiate my Faustian bargain. Can we do that? Uh, Well, hey, speaking of Faustian bargains, how about the the San Francisco Asian American who is, you know, doing the Olympics for China? Is that a Faustian bargain? That's a Faustian bargain that I've been thinking about. Okay. Emil, let me give you a proper introduction. Okay. Emil Guillermo is host of the PETA podcast. People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. I want to ask you about the implants that Elon Musk has been testing on oh, yeah. chimpanzees, I believe. Yes, 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 yes. yes. I, I, I'm going to do something on that next week. I know a little about it now, but apparently he was caught. He was caught uh, sort of like trying to cover, and then a reporter said, hey, what about these monkeys? And, you know, and, and he, he had to, like, reverse himself. But, yeah. And you are also you're also the a columnist for the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. So where do we start? Well, you know, first of all, it's it's good to talk to you. Uh, I I uh, just uh, I've been caught up with that Uyghur thing. You know, I've been I've been Uyghuring for the last couple. I've been using the word more. And over the last week than I ever have since 2017. I, I mean, I and I'm feeling a little guilty that I'm enjoying the Olympics as much as I am because of, of the Uyghurs. And so I I just want to put that out there. I give a gold every time I watch. I give a gold medal to the Uyghurs. I respect them. I honor them. And I think about them. Because what's going on with the Uyghurs? Well, who knows? I mean, China says it's not happening, but we have Uyghurs here saying it's happening. We're being tortured. It's a, it's a, it's a prison. It's an open air prison that we're that we're in. So, anyway, uh, and what do and you think? Watch, what do you think is the truth? Well, I think I don't believe China. I mean, how can you believe China when they they put up a, a you know this this shield where it protects their own people from the truth? How can you how can you think that, you know, they they're they're saying any truth at all? I, I just think that the human rights community has enough evidence from people who've survived, who've gotten out of of the reeducation camps. And I just think that um, I, I think a lot of times the, the Uyghurs have only come up within the last uh, I mean, it's, it's been an issue since 2017. But we only still see uh, stuff just because you know, now we're in the Olympics. And so I now what I is think the difference? To- <clears throat> what is the difference between Apple getting its phones made 
from Uyghurs in detention facilities and the work that's being done by 40% of our prison population. What is the difference? Well, uh, you know, there's, there's probably no, well, the, the Uyghurs, the Uyghurs aren't incarcerated in the same way that our prisoners are. Uh, I, I think that I think people who are familiar with the loophole in the Thirteenth Amendment, I, I would think people of color would disagree. Mm. Would you yeah. agree that we lock up the reason there are two point five million prisoners behind bars is because of the loophole in the Thirteenth Amendment, which says slavery is forbidden unless you're behind bars? The famous loophole in the Thirteenth Amendment that prompts police officers to find any reason to lock up a person of color. What's the difference? Well, I mean, I'm not saying I'm not trying to excuse anything that the United States does, uh, but I am saying that there is a, a slight difference between what's going on in China and what's going on here. Uh, I, I think that it, are the Uyghur, you got to ask, are the Uyghurs free to move around? Are they, are they, you know, they're in, these camps uh, that are called re-education centers, uh, they, their existence was denied, but they are real. Uh, people who've left those camps have said their, their torture goes on. I just think that people need, this is a moment where people need to look at the Uyghurs and what's, what's going on. Uh, Biden has, there's this diplomatic boycott. You've got uh, Linda, uh, Greenfield Thomas, uh, you know, the ambassador to the UN saying, you know, Uyghurs are being tortured. Here's an African-American woman who's out there in front. She's taking the lead at the UN. So I've got to be open to my government. I got to see more proof, but I think there's enough proof to know that the word genocide is not being tossed around casually. So I think I'm I, 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 just for the sake of hosting yeah. a show and hosting sure, a conversation, sure. and I, I, I'm not arguing with you. I know, I know, I, I know. I'm I just, know. I'm, I'm asking you because I really don't know the answer to this question. It seems to me that it's easier, and I don't mean to be disrespectful because I, I really, I mean this. It, it seems to me that it's easier for us to criticize conditions in China than Rikers Island, which is like three miles away from me, where yeah. where, where you have people, it, it's been called, it's now almost officially what is called an insane asylum. The, yeah. the police are locking up, they used to, we were talking earlier, we used to lock up people who had mental health issues and put them in state hospitals. Now we just lock them up for loitering yeah. and they and and look and they're yeah, dying in done, there so i've done i've done stories at rikers uh i wonder if I, you were to do a google search of the press here in the united states i wonder if they spill more ink in america worrying about the uyghurs than they do prison conditions here in the United States. I suspect I, I don't I doubt that. I oh, I, 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 I don't think we hear about prison labor, prison rape. We don't well, talk about I, that. I do. 
I do recall the the Times did a couple of things on on Rikers over the last over the last year. I know that there's people who have looked at prison reform, and you know, the, look, the prisons are one thing. I don't think we in America people really understand what's going on with the Uyghurs. Like I said, I've used the term Uyghur more in the last seven days than I have since 2017 when we when it was exposed that there are these you know, concentration camps or these, these re-education centers that China first denied. And then, you know, you know, aerial photographs show that, yes, right. in fact, you know, they, but in they're, terms they're of there. Priority. But I, 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 I think you're of, right, though. I, I'm not arguing. Look, I don't absolve. I, I don't absolve the. I'm not doing whataboutism. I'm not doing whataboutism. Yeah. I'm not because. Look, I know. I know you're not. But I what, what I'm saying is I don't absolve the U.S. for for Rikers. I don't absolve the U.S. for Guantanamo. I think, you know, I'm just I'm just a citizen here trying to see, you know, these uh, these issues come up. And I say, what about the? I don't know. Any, I didn't know anything about the Uyghurs until maybe a month ago. And here's the spotlight on. And I think there's probably more truth than not that there's something happening there. And it, it only shows the true nature of what's going on with China and mm-hmm. their people and the truth. And, you know, it's a heavily centered society. You see the crackdown on on the the pro democracy movement in Hong Kong, and then you see what's going on with the Uyghurs, and you just have to ask yourself, what's going on with the San Francisco eighteen year old who won a gold for who was born and raised in in California and is is skiing in the free skiing event for China, and I just think that, you know, I I, I like this kid Eileen Gu. She's a, she's like she reminds me of my kid. She's biracial. And she's really, I'm not saying this to be sexist, she's beautiful, she's a supermodel, China loves her. But what kind of, to go back to our conversation, what kind of Faustian deal did she strike, that she and her mother, who is born and raised in China, she came here, Stanford MBA, made a ton of money when, because look, US capitalists are this way. They look at China, they see markets, how do we do business with them? How do we, you know, they're all marketeers, right? They all want China's money. And they don't want to hear about butchers of Beijing. I'm still upset about 1989. I'm still upset about Tiananmen Square. But, you know, we, people talked about it for a while and then. Right. So nothing. if I, I were, I, I, I try yeah. to filter this through <clears throat> a fantasy of running for office. Maybe I think you should, except. Uh, no, I think there are things in my past that the murder yeah you know, <laughs> uh, one or two one is okay dick i make leopold and Loeb look like learner and low that's how <laughs> i uh yeah a cup anyway uh sure. i was eileen <laughs> warren <laughs> warren getaway driver that was my uh, claim to fame if, if I, I, I honestly believe, this is what I honestly no. believe, if I were running for office and this was an issue. The Uyghurs? Or, yes, or, and you asked me about the Uyghurs. Yeah. I would say priorities. That, that okay. there are only 24 hours in a day. There's only so much time we can devote to healing the world. America has lost its moral authority. There was a time after World War II, despite the internment of the Japanese here, despite 
our treatment of African-Americans, despite our uh, treatment of Mexicans who were sent, you know, Operation Wetback, that's what it was right. called, you know, despite mm -hmm. Operation Wetback, despite turning the Jews away uh, when they needed. Philippine American uh, War, toss that in there too. If Don Rickles were here, he'd go, eh, but <laughs> so, okay, despite <laughs> all that, uh, yeah. we no longer have the moral authority that we had right after World War II. We lost our moral authority in Vietnam, in Laos, yeah. in Cambodia. We have no right to say to other countries, clean up your act because we're responsible for a lot of their mess. And so clean your own home. Uh all right. And, I, I and if, I, if you, so I'm not doing whataboutism. Yeah. We've, and I want to keep talking about the Uyghurs. I really do. And mm. Tibet. But three miles away from me is Rikers Island. We are investigating January 6th, the destruction of our capital, but we are not talking about the prison labor being used to rebuild the capital. Nobody talks about the fact that, that by law, all the furniture, the window panes in the United States Capitol ha has to be provided, fixed through prison labor, getting something like, if they're lucky, a dollar an hour. Dave, I'm I'm all for that too. I'm I'm all for but trying see, like, to, but to, to fix. So I'm not I'm not trying to be disrespectful. Yeah. I'm just saying if I were the you, president, yeah, your priority. My priority would be no such thing as prison labor in America. Uh, Illegal. Right. I'm not. I'm not absolving detention what's centers, going on here in the United States. Ice, like de ICE detention centers, which. When Trump, I'm not absolving that. I'm not absolving when, when, Guantanamo. I'm not absolving any of that. Let me tell you something. I'm saying that. Well, hang yeah. on for one second. When Trump yeah. was president, Holocaust experts all agreed that what was going on on the border with these privatized detention facilities were, by definition, concentration camps. See, a lot of idiots, right. a lot of Jewish idiots said, how dare you call these concentration camps? And then turns out, by definition, the Holocaust Museum and rabbis from around the world had to correct these idiot Jews and say, no, 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 no. By definition, what America is doing along the border, those are concentration camps. They yeah, still and exist and they're still concentration camps. Yeah, and you know the the Holocaust Museum. The folks over there have also determined that what's going on with the Uyghurs is uh, they are they are concentration camps as well. So look, but my tax dollars are not being transferred yeah. to private detention to, to, facilities in China to right. And, you, but, and we're glad for that. We're but, glad. But we're, we're right glad now we're happening. doing it to undocumented Americans. In okay, this country, right, and look, we have a I, shortage of undocumented Americans. We there need. There should be something done about all these things you're saying. But all I'm saying is that right now, you know, when Beijing holds these games, these winter games, the focus is on China and 
I, I think it's right to have this diplomatic boycott and to, to, to point to shine a light on the Uyghurs. It's it's Uyghur week. This is when we pay pay attention to that. You know what, America, and, America know, complaining after this. Huh? When I was an alcoholic, I was you the, were. Yes, I was the first one to say, you know what, Emil, you need yeah. to stop drinking. You need you have a problem. I, I'm not going to. I know I'm I know that I had a drink, but you yeah. forget me now. And we're talking about you. You yeah. need to clean up your act. I, I think that's who America is. We're the, the we are the America. drunk. We, you know who America is? We are the drunken drug dealer who's telling yeah. the, his customers, don't don't use too much of my cocaine make you sick hey, david we're not saints we're i'm not saying we're saints i'm just saying that uh let's just shine a little light on this situation that we're going to forget about in a couple weeks and let's look at what let's look what's going on in china with this Uyghur situation and because like i i haven't let it stop my enjoyment of the games and that's what i wanted to talk about how yes this please is, the, the, the olympics is it becomes sort of like the asian american super bowl I mean, I don't care. I mean, there's no Asian American. I don't believe any Asian Americans playing in the Super Bowl. But this, you know, what's going on with Nathan? There are Shane no Asian American playing? football players. Well, I don't say there's none. I'm saying, well, there, there. I don't believe there's any in the rosters of the L.A. Rams or the. Uh, there was a. I mean, there's a kicker. There's a kicker who plays for the Atlanta Falcons, I believe. There, there, there are you know a few Asian Americans here and there. But uh, the the big Asian American NFL issue now is uh, Roman Gabriel was the first Filipino and an NFL MVP for the Rams in the '60s, quarterback MVP, and he's been shut out of the Hall of Fame, and he really should be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, not in Canton in. Uh, that would be like Asia in Canton or Ohio. So, but look, David, I'm telling you. Asian Americans are not seen as the most athletic, but these games have shown Asian American prowess. Nathan Chan, did you see Nathan Chan do his thing? No. You know, in, in the free skate, I, I, he's wearing a, Vera, a, a red Vera Wang. It looks like the print of the cosmos. Hmm. I mean, he's like exceptional. He is so great. He, cru he crushed it. He's so great. And this is dominance in a... a a legacy winter olympic sport and who's a top no one does what he does he does this quadruple hop whatever the, you know he's like no one does this he does five of them in a routine wow he is the greatest of all time every young asian american boy or girl would probably want to wear that vera wang red cosmos jersey just like they would wear a tom brady jersey because they're proud mm -hmm. of nathan chen and that's just nathan it, Chloe Kim, did you see her? She yes, double. No, I, I don't. I don't Chloe. watch sports. Oh, David, you could you learn a lot from sports. I mean, here, I know Chloe it's a Kim. it's a character flaw. It is, look, I, and I don't know. Plus, I've only seen I've only seen just like that three times. The entire just like that. The, yeah, the I, new I, I, the look. the reboot of Sex in the City. Oh. Oh, the, oh, I've only yeah, watched yeah. I it don't, three times each episode. I haven't. I don't have time for sports. <laughs> See, look, that's I'd watch. Look, 
someone just mentioned all the things that that Chloe Kim did yesterday, and it's it's just amazing. You know, ten eighty the the amount of circles that you do three sixty ten eighty. I mean, she did a she tried to she won with a ten eighty, and she tried to like. Do a twelve sixty. Wow! In the air on a snowboard. Look, have you ever been snowboarding, David? No. Oh, I try. I like Jackass though. I, I I'll watch Jackass. <laughs> I love Jackass. Jackass. That's like snowboarding without the board. But I tried uh, snowboarding years ago. Once you fall, I mean that's the key. Can you get back up? I you know. Once you fall on a snowboard, it takes skill to get up off the snowboard once you fall. And, and that's why I'm looking at Chloe Kim. I'm seeing her spin around, death-defying kind of aerial stunts. It's it's amazing. And then and then Nathan, Nathan Chen on on, on ice doing the the, the the quad the quads. Five in in like a five minute uh, space. He is the GOAT, the greatest of all time. That's why I say, you know, here's the here's the bad thing. People look at these Asian Americans, they might say, oh, these Asian Americans, these guys are metal minorities, you know, and they think that this is the new stereotype, right? Mm -hmm. The new stereotype. And, and, and sure enough, there was the NBC announcer saying, oh, Chloe Kim goes, goes to Princeton and, and Nathan Chen, he goes to Yale and he plays the violin and, you know, and he's gold medal best in the world. And Eileen Gu, you know, she's, she's for China, but, but she's going to Stanford at 1580 in her SAT, not quite 1620 in aerial, you know, kind of thing, but 50, you know, 1580. And I'm thinking this only feeds the idea that has really plagued Asian Americans, which is the model minority myth, right? Right. That, that we, this is the new stereotype that like, and, and I'm here to say, I've fallen down on a, on a snowboard and haven't gone up. I go to an ice rink, I'm clinging on to the wall. Are you, you know, those guys who cling on to the walls at the ice rink? That's me. You're Klingon. I, I'm a Klingon. I appreciate Nathan Chen. I appreciate Chloe Kim and what you what you did, and what I hope they do is they make people realize that Asian Americans are you know have the there are these exceptional Asian Americans through hard work they are the best in the world, but you know the spillover effect is that people finally see us they recognize us they see Asian Americans human real part of society, and this the 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 real I think importance of this. The games when Asian American success is so big comes at a time when, you know, the stop AAPI hate, you know, the instances of Asian American hate were over 10,000. So, you know, we're not for Asian Americans. You know, they're, we're responsible for two of the first three gold medals at the, the Winter Olympics. So anyway, I, I just wanted to get that off my chest because it, it's a significant thing when you were seen or rather when you're not seen, when you're considered on a fringe, when you're not considered, you know, a, a real part of America at times, you know, there are exceptions, but this is, this is Olympic diversity. And the, the, the great thing about this, about seeing Asian Americans who are Asians in, or who are Americans in Asia, Right. There's a distinction between Asian Americans and Asian and, and Americans in Asia. Look at the Uyghurs, the Uyghurs 
there are there are 55 ethnic groups in China, right? Or 56, I think, ethnic groups. But the Uyghurs are Muslim, and they get targeted, and that's the kind of anti-diversity we see that's in the shadow of Asian Americans going there and dominating. So it's kind of an itch. I, to me, I'm, I look at the games and I don't participate. I don't say, oh, that's me on the mountain and that's me on the half pipe. I just think it's just, you know, this is an example of a kind of diversity that America has that China doesn't. Right. Well, so. Emil, well said, and I appreciate that. Uh, my people, while we don't necessarily follow the Olympics, we're always going for the gold and the silver, whether in the form of coins, bars, <laughs> or rounds. Gold hey, and silver, the- excuse me for one second. I just want to say that gold <laughs> and silver is a prudent decision for investors and wealth <laughs> protectors alike. Go for the gold, go for the silver for more information pick up my book david feldman's guide to beating inflation through gold and silver go to davidfeldmanshow.com and pick up yeah. my new book going for the gold and silver <laughs> bullion hey, david this is this is why i have the, the gongs my inflation edge yeah have heavy metals heavy hey david you hear what marjorie taylor green said about uh, the gestapo she says it's a dish best served cold yeah, <laughs> I just want to keep her away from the, the the Chinese food menu. She might think that egg drop soup has something to do with abortion or something. It's egg drop soup. It has, you know. Anyway. Knock, knock. Soup. Who's there? Gestapo. Gestapo who? I will ask the questions. <laughs> All right. She called it, she called the Gestapo gazpacho. Yeah, she she did, and it's like I guess that's the smartest she thing she ever said. <laughs> that's the closest thing she ever came. To. She wanted to, she wanted to stay liquid. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So uh, anyway, D- David. Um, but we have two so minutes I, before I, the Reverend comes in. Oh, two minutes. Okay. So uh, David, you're not even going to watch the Super Bowl. Uh, well, the halftime show looks pretty. Snoop, was it Dr. Dre and Eminem? Yeah. How about, well, how about, wouldn't you be curious to watch if, if that trucker in bar or the trucker blockade moves down from, they're, they're planning to move from Canada down to LA. I, I, think, I, I think, honestly, yeah, football is... It's time to evolve past these childish sports that create brain injuries, CTE, concussions. Every time I pick up a a newspaper, I'm reading about a football player or an ex-football player having a, uh, in crisis, some mental health crisis. And I know that when we look at their brains, we will find CTE. This is as bad as tobacco. I watch football. I see a lot of controlled violence. It it doesn't uh, sit well with me. Yeah, I, actually, I I have come to that conclusion. I still like watching, but every now and then the the best games. But you know, you know, I told you I, I was a football player, right? You were a football player. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a football player. I, I, well, Pop Warner, but you know, I had a small brain, so I didn't have to. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't allowed to. I wasn't much. allowed to play football as a child. You weren't allowed. Oh no, I I no. was allowed to play football from ten. 10 years old to, I played till I was like 15, five years. That was my football window, five years football window. And that's, I'm worried that uh, I'm going to start losing it. I'm going to start, I, and I was playing, this was real football. This is pads. I'd like walk home after practice and say, mom, rub some Ben Gay on me. And she didn't have to rub, right. Icy hot mom. It's tough, tough. That's, that's how I grew up. Well, it's one of the reasons America is a nation in decay it's decadent yeah. it, it really is yeah. what well, makes it, it's it's it it really is everything that's wrong with america football football yep. uh well i i think you know we talked about the brian flores suit you know i i think there's some problems with it. i i i still think of uh, what's happening what what didn't happen with kaepernick and uh but i i think that I I wouldn't feel sad if it went away. Uh, I I I think baseball wouldn't be sad if it went away. Uh, in fact, you know, because suddenly baseball is no longer. I mean, they called it the America's pastime, but it's, well, it's not past. America's pastime. That means it's, it's past. past. It's it's past. <laughs> Emil Gilliard. I, I hope I wasn't arguing with you. I just. David, it's okay. Look, I I know when I mention I know when I say Uyghur, you'd want to you want to you want to talk about Rikers, and or uh, you want to talk about you have prior. I I get it. I just think that this is the Uyghur moment. I I I've never mentioned Uyghur more, like I said, in the last uh, ten days than I have. You know, uh, and I think this is important to cast you know, the, the light on it so people understand. Because let me, we'll let me bring the Reverend Barry. I'm going to ask, we'll wrap it up. Uh, yeah. I'll, ble I'll stigmata into the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. <laughs> I like to have the two, the two guests stigmata into each other. I think that's the term they use in show business. The Emil Guillermo is the host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And read them over at ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. And follow Emil Amuk on Twitter. Watch his live stream. How do people watch your live stream? They, they live stream the show on either on Twitter at Emil Amuk, or they can go to my uh, pitiful YouTube channel, uh, which is called Pitiful Emil Guillermo YouTube. <laughs> Uh, and and see just how few people actually go there. But you know, David, I I got that I got makes you more valuable. That's scarcity. Scarcity is value. Yeah, <laughs> I, I know. Or they can see it on Facebook, <laughs> Facebook Watch, or Facebook Live. But I discovered this trick. You know how like because I've been watching my wife when she appears on these cable shows, and you know how they 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 transition. They go and they have that that Tucker. Image your wife. Flip your wife is sound. your wife is on Tucker Carlson all the time. Well, not all the time. I have to kick her off Tucker Carlson every now and then, and then the rest of the time. But they have this flipping graphic, right? And and, and it's always accompanied with something like th like this. Oh, yeah, right. See, I like need, that. That's my trick. That's my trick. It's it's the, the Emil swoosh. I like it's, that. So so instead of like and then don't. Right. I like that. See. Yeah, so I, I, Emil, Emil uh, 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 Rachel Maddow, 
has the page. Hey, does she have one of those? She has a page. Turn. Does she have one of those? Yeah. She has a page. So I say something like, and then Donald Trump was dead. Right. And this <laughs> is Sean Hannity's. Yeah. And now we turn to. <laughs> We're back to the Sean Hannity show. Hey, um, the, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn joins us. For nearly a quarter of a century, he ran Americans United for separation of church and state. Besides being an attorney, a member of the Supreme Court bar, he is also an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. Welcome, sir. Let me ask. It's nice you, to be here. Thank you. Here's here's a question I wanted to ask you about uh, priorities and and the Reagan years. Am I wrong? The answer is yes. But one of the reasons Reagan got elected is because of the conversations we have on my show. I think there's a tsunami of issues that the left is throwing at the American electorate. Emil today is talking about the Uyghurs. Uh, I, I would say... If you listen to this show, there are going to be seven hours of 20 different urgent messages. Reagan got elected because of Save the Whales. The, the cliche, the joke was by 1980, our side was making everybody feel guilty about everything. Everything was an emergency, so nothing mattered. It became a joke. Don't we need, first of all, is that true? And secondly, don't we have to just focus on three things this, the way the other side focuses on one thing, money? Don't we need to figure out what's really important? It's a good start, but I mean, it's. I don't think that you're correct in the assumption that Reagan was became president because the left was throwing out too many different issues. I don't believe that that's why Reagan beat Jimmy Carter. I mean, Carter was, uh, I mean, in retrospect, people revere him. But as I've been writing this book of mine and talking about Carter and some encounters that he had in his complete misunderstanding of foreign policy, um, I just think he, he couldn't articulate any vision of his own. And he, as you may remember, also got in trouble early in his campaigning when he would go and stay in people's houses and then he would make up the bed when he was about to leave. And people said, well, he's not coming back. Does he not think that people are going to wash the sheets? That this was the kind of, it was cute for a while, and then all of a sudden it became a punchline also. Right. And I think there was a lot about Carter that was was punchline. But I, I think we, we within limits, we have to connect issues to people and to make those arguments so that we can see that there's a connection between foreign policy, economic policy, civil rights. They're all connected. And uh, that doesn't mean you have to have every organization take on every issue. I'm as annoyed as anybody when I get 57 different appeals for money from 57 people, all of whom claim one of two things. 
they got the most important issue in the world and they're going to need my dollars to make sure it happens. Or the people who say, you don't know me, but I'm running against Marjorie Taylor Greene. Send me money. Right. So, yeah, you can get overkill. But I don't think that's what that's not what elected Ronald Reagan. He was facile. He was articulate. He certainly knew how to push the hot button issues in the ways that the left hated. But, you know, I just I don't think it's the left's fault when it tries to be consistent and tries to bring people together on a variety of issues and say they're all important. Okay, I'm going to say goodbye to Emil. Thank you, Emil. See you, Emil. Thank you. Thank you. Can you give give a message to your wife? Pardon me? Can you give your message, a message to your wife for me? Sure. Go ahead. Yeah. She works for PETA, doesn't she? Yeah. 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 Have her come on with you. Okay. Sure. I I mean, she's the Reverend Barry. The Reverend Barry has uh, brought his wife on. Well, We'll make it a foursome. Okay, I'll. I'll, I'll I'm just I'll, saying I'll that if, if your wife yeah. can go on Tucker Carlson, she can hold her <laughs> nose and do my show. All right. Yeah. Well, she may not have to hold her nose, but yes, I I will ask her. I, I want to, and would, then I want I, her to tell me where she feels dirtier on Tucker's show or mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends on where you stand on the Uyghur issue, I think. Okay. Thank you. Priorities, David. Priorities. Thank you. Thank you, Emil. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Reverend. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Stay Thank you. well. Reverend Barry W. Lynn, I want to talk about whatever you want to talk about, as always. But it seems to me, you, you've been in Washington, D.C. You're... you're entire a long time a long time by the way we had a a gentleman from the gravel institute who kept talking about dr martin luther king's riverside speech right and i said we have a guest who claims i don't know if it's true to have seen (laughs) been there at the riverside speech that he gave when when, when, you were not you were not taking notes properly i said he did the speech there first and on saturday he went to the united nations outside the u.n and did the speech that's where i heard it but the riverside church is more famous than the u.n speech no i don't think so well i mean for me it was because that's of course where uh, william sloan coffin and cora weiss and all the great leaders of the anti-war movement ended up uh, spiritually and uh, politically, but I think more people certainly saw him at the United Nations. But more people and talk about a, the Riverside Church speech. Now you were yeah, there as because, an FBI informant. What was your? Why were you? Uh, yeah, there? I was. Uh, I was trying to find a way out of the draft, and I figured the way to do that would be to show up at these and then have people take pictures of me, and then circle my face and put arrows and say watch this man and then i figured the draft board wouldn't take me so he was not as popular as we'd like to think he was especially in new york new york supposedly the bastion of left wing thought there was a poll taken in 65 66 among new yorkers and and they said they thought the civil rights, a majority of them thought the civil rights movement was going too quickly, 
that the Civil Rights Act of 64 and 65, we were getting a little ahead of, of ourselves on our skis and that Dr. King was mm. making too much trouble. In retrospect, a lot of people loved Dr. King. But at the time, when you saw him, what was the 67? Um, no. I think... Earlier. I th I think it was in 66. Right. Well, my memory's going. That's why I'm writing a book, so I can be forced to remember things. I don't remember the date. Right. I just remember the event. But... You know, you're, you're probably right. People did not trust him. Everybody did not trust him. We've done with deceased people what we tend to do, which is to give them more than the credit. Um, I mean, they their credit increases as the death becomes more apparent. And I think everyone uh, is likely to have that happen. But you went, I, I was not able to listen to Mike Gravel's former chief of staff. And I didn't know Mike uh, uh, in the Senate, but I certainly knew him when he exposed what were the Pentagon Papers and did probably the most courageous thing I have ever seen a member of the United States Senate do. He convenes, you can stop me if, if uh, his chief of staff mentioned this, but he convened a small subcommittee in the Senate on, on some obscure issue about buildings and um, nobody showed up except himself. And he put into the record, he asked if there was any objection to putting in the record, these documents uh, that outlined the course of the Pentagon's understanding of Vietnam. Nobody was there to complain. So he asked that it be put into the record. No one objected. It would have been in the record. And at the same time, as I recall, that this is when, the uh, United States Supreme Court was considering the question of whether the Pentagon Papers could, in fact, because they were classified, could be published by the New York Times. And ultimately, they did that. That was the, the court ruled that that publication was permissible under the First Amendment. But if it hadn't been that, uh, Mike Ravel's decision to have this whole thing prob published in the official congressional uh, hearing record would have achieved the same result. People would have seen the scandal after scandal after scandal that the Pentagon went through in order to justify the war in Vietnam. And I think Mike Gravel, who I came to know much better after he left uh, Congress, and um, he's to me one of the great United States senators in my lifetime. Right, right. Could we do it now? Could could the New York Times, Washington Post release the Pentagon Papers now? Yeah, they could. But here's, a, I think, a better question. What in the world could the June, the, the January 6th committee do with all the documents that they've now received? I posted something somewhere about a week ago saying I'm tired of having people, even though I respect Jamie Raskin and a lot of those members on the on the uh, committee, I just as soon not hear their spin on what it is. I want to see the raw, unredacted versions of every single document from the 700 pages that that committee is sitting on. I don't want to wait till the summer and 
and then have people go on CNN and try to tell me what it means. I'd like to see it like tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I think that in the event that anybody would question the legality of it, there is something in the Constitution called the Speech and Debate Clause. Any official activities of a member of Congress is protected against criminal or other penalties for the release of that information. In other words, if Senator Schmo decides to release uh, some document that he saw at the Environmental Protection Agency and also say, and by the way, my distinguished colleague, uh, Senator Pissant, uh, is a jerk and a pissant, he can't be held for libel. You can't, because this first senator is operating in the domain as an elected official, speech and debate clause is a near absolute protection against any kind of prosecutorial or other problems created if people don't like what you released. And I'd like to see somebody do that. The, the complaint is that the Democrats are going slowly when it comes to Trump. And yet we're, we're seeing Mark Short, the chief of staff for Mike Pence, testifying. Mm-hmm. We're seeing Peter Navarro getting subpoenaed. A lot of times these guys say they're not going to show up and that gets challenged in court and takes a long time to process these miscreants. Is the secret, there, there is no question that Donald Trump is a mortal threat to our country. There's no question that had he been allowed to get away with all this stuff, Rudy Giuliani calling up a prosecutor, telling him to seize sure. the, you know, br- bring us the voting, uh, the votes, you know, bring them to the White House. I mean, this sure. stuff is beyond the, it, it uh, my, my two questions are, are the Democrats going to wear Trump down? Does this, do you stretch it out and lead it to the midterms so that maybe the Democrats can keep the Senate, maybe keep the House? Because if they lose the Senate and they lose the House, Trump skates. And well, what do you, don't they have to prolong this yes. and, and weaken him politically? I think the, uh, the other possibility is that they don't weaken him, but they bore the American people. How many times, and I like all these people, Adam Schiff and Ted Lieu, and I love them, but I'm so tired of what they say on television. They say the same thing, and they're all becoming more and more defensive about the fact that they're not moving quickly enough. The elections, primaries start, and primaries are very important, particularly to Democrats. Um, And they're starting in uh, April, I think the first one is. So it's not too soon to get down to business. And you're right. They lose the Senate. They lose the House. There won't be this committee. Then everything rests with Merrick Garland. And all the people... I never knew Merrick Garland, but all the people that uh, I was working with uh, over the last five years or so who worked um, in the D.C. appeals court 
I'd have lunch with them. I'd say, what do you think? What is Merrick Garland? What kind of a guy is he? And they all said the same thing. We don't really know much about him because he never even sends to himself the cases about hot button issues. He sends them to other people, other judges. So um, you have to depend on Merrick Garland, who will still be the attorney general, no matter what happens in, in the elections in 2022. And uh, this guy, uh, I don't know what he's doing. Maybe he's secretly collecting all kinds of information, but he just doesn't strike me. And I will apologize in earnest if I'm wrong. He's just not the kind of guy who's likely to say we have a 16 count indictment against former President Donald J. Trump. I never expect to hear those words from his mouth. Focus, focus, focus. The the role of the Republican Party is to create gridlock in Washington, D.C. You send a Republican to Washington, D.C. to make government smaller by any means necessary. You send clowns in who will just gum up the works. As Mario Savio said, they will throw themselves on the gears of the machine for any reason just to slow things down. And what will happen when we lose the House and the Senate, there will be House Oversight Committee hearings. They will take something like Benghazi. They'll find, you know, they'll find something to start bringing hearings against Garland. And because it's the Republicans, you have to give it oxygen. And the Democrats will be once again as always, back on their heels, responding, being reactive instead of proactive. The the Democrats and the left, they must focus on some core issues. I, and I'm going to keep repeating this over and over again, because if you don't stand for anything, then the, the, the other side controls the narrative. And, and this is what's happened. This is this is the problem with the Biden administration. And this is was the problem with Obama and Schumer. They stand for nothing other than themselves. And my goal for this show in the next couple of weeks is to isolate. And I asked you this last week. What should we be pushing the Democratic Party to stand up for? And, you know, I have a quarrel with uh, the uh, Jimmy Dore, those people, yeah. you know, the fake lefties, but they are right about Medicare for all. They, they That you, you know, I don't know about the wisdom of forcing the vote, but there should just be one thing that we, we march in lockstep on and, and, we, we, we can march and, you know, the, the World Trade Center came down and this whole country was able to unify and go to war over a lie. Correct. We have a World Trade Center coming down every day when it comes to our health care system. We're able to focus, prioritize when it comes to war, keeping ourselves safe supposedly, even though war makes us less safe, why aren't we focusing on one thing, Medicare for all, 
everything flows from Medicare for all. And, you know, I, I keep hearing, well, we got to get rid of the Senate. We got to get rid of the filibuster. We got to get rid of the, the Electoral College. We got to get, you know, if we got to get into Wisconsin and, and North Dakota, South Dakota, fighting the health insurance companies and explaining mm -hmm. this is why every day your daughter died because yeah. of this health insurance company. Your daughter was killed yeah. by United Healthcare. Exactly. It's the only yeah. thing we should stand for. Well, I don't think most people to this day understand what Medicare for all actually is. Because if you just if you gave people the Medicare that I'm on, that I I spent two hours today just trying to get an appointment through Medicare for all. So I want Medicare that's better than Medicare right now. I think you, you, you don't you can put that Medicare for all on a bumper sticker. You can actually get conservatives who support it. In theory, they say we, we Medicare is great. We should have it for everyone. I think I mentioned that even Donald, one of Donald Trump's lawyers, Jay Sekulow, in a debate I had with him a couple of years ago, said in the middle of the debate, he said, Medicare is great. I think it should be for everyone. And people asked him afterwards. They couldn't believe it because he's such a conservative guy. He said, no, it's a good program. Everybody ought to have access to it. So we have to explain a little bit. But let me ask you this. Here's a question I have. I wrote a sense of the Congress resolution. This is what I would like Schumer to take to the floor of the Senate, a sense of the Congress that says no United States troops may be used in combat to protect, preserve or enable the military forces of the nation of Ukraine. Right. Think anybody would vote for that? Well, they, I'd like to see. It seems to me that when we were going to go bomb Syria, Obama asked Congress to vote, and the American people stood up and said no, and he didn't get to he didn't get to bomb Syria because he asked Congress. I think. Yeah. I, I think you'd get a lot of. Uh, I think you'd get a lot of senators to vote vote for that. You get. I think you could get. Yeah. I think you could get Rand Paul, Mike Lee from Utah. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe even Ted Cruz. Possibly, but uh, the question is, what Democrats would you get? As I said last week, every argument that's coming out about this Ukraine Russia conflict is um, is bolstering the idea of a kind of. Uh, equivalency. That is to say, everybody knows Russia's wrong. Uh, we we just want to protect the human rights of at least the half of people in Ukraine who actually want to stay a separate country. And I looked at Bernie's comments about it, and I looked at there, there's a document I saw nowhere except a listener to this program who I've, I've actually known for a very long time sent me an article a couple days ago uh, from about a hundred different progressive and anti-war groups in the United States who wrote a letter urging renewed diplomacy, criticizing the fact that back in 
when Jim Baker was the Secretary of State under Bush, when he said he promised we would not expand NATO, we would not move, I think the phrase he uses, one inch closer to the Russian border, we've 10 or 11 countries that used to be in the Soviet Union, we've now added to NATO. So even the Bush claim that we weren't going to go one inch further has been violated. So I can understand, it hurts me to say this, but I can understand why some of these people like Rand Paul and even, God love them, uh, probably doesn't, but who am I to say, Tucker Carlson, when he talks about why we have no vested interest in Ukraine. We have no we have no United States military interest in Ukraine. Nobody is lying awake at night worrying about, I wonder if the Ukrainians will bomb us tonight. Nobody's thinking that. So there's not an equivalent, but people are legitimately worried about Russia, mainly because of its of its goofy Putin, who runs the country, he, he seems to be a vicious and unprincipled person. Understand that. But when we start saying we need to arm Ukrainians, we've sent billions of dollars of military assistance to Ukraine. We have now sent um, three or four thousand ground troops already, another eight thousand uh, prepared to go at a moment's notice. What the hell do we think we're doing sending these troops to Ukraine if in the back of Joe Biden's mind is not the thought someday, very soon, we might need them and then they will go and cross into Russia and they will help the Ukrainians. This sounds to me so much like watching Lyndon Baines Johnson say prior to him becoming the president, uh, I do not want to see any American boys in a ground war in Asia. That was a lie. He what did Woodrow Wilson say before he got reelected? Didn't he what run? Did... He kept us out of war. Woodrow Wilson ran on the yeah. platform. He kept us out of war. And then he got elect, right. reelected. He says, oh, by the way, I don't know what war. Well, well, war. I kept you out of, uh, I just keep you out of the war in Europe. We're going there. So what happens if Russia invades Ukraine? Play that out for me. And we say, okay, I would assume the Ukrainian people I don't think it's is it easy is it ever an easy slog for an invading country? I would assume Putin would face pretty much what we faced in Afghanistan, what he faced in Afghanistan before sure. us, what we faced in Iraq. You know, it's easy to invade a country, not so easy to stay there. Well, I think he's going to find that that's the case because there is a strong, I mean, there is a strong piece of uh, Ukraine that periodically is polled or votes. They, they would like to get closer to Russia because they speak Russian and because they are, um, they, they feel culturally allied to Russia. Then there are people as you move further to the West who don't want further connections. They want their independence. So there is a kind of civil war that's been going on for many, many years in Ukraine. So if he wants to get into the middle of a um, of a uh, 
a war, he's going to face the same kinds of problems he faced in Afghanistan. And it cannot be the excuse. You know, I, I remember, I, I'm sure you know of him, and maybe you knew Michael Harrington, the author of The Other American, the founder of the Democratic Socialists of America. And he and I, back in the Carter years, used to be on the same platform or speak at the same rallies. And um, it was like, uh, um, we don't, you know, the fact that Russia has moved into Afghanistan, which Carter used as a justification for a lot of bad military decisions, you know, he that's not, um, that's not a justification for us becoming greater warmongers. Bernie, Elizabeth Warren, Warren all of the... Um, uh, the so-called progressives or real progressives maybe uh, in the Senate say things like, we really need to work harder at this. And we don't like the rhetoric, obviously the rhetoric on the part, not just of other senators, but the rhetoric that comes out of every talk television show and every network from CNN, MSNBC, the allegedly liberal ones, all the way to Fox. They're pumping this war machine, pump the message. We want more money we went maybe we're not going to say it too loud maybe we'll even send troops there and expect that they're going to go to war you know it's interesting in ukraine jeff zucker the the head of cnn had to step down because he didn't disclose that he was having an affair with a woman who worked briefly for andrew cuomo and now there's backlash at cnn some of the anchor yep. some of the anchor people are saying that was unfair to jeff sucker but it's company policy that if you are sleeping with a co-worker or an underling you must tell human resources what cnn doesn't demand what cnn doesn't provide to us is when they have Joe Lockhart on, or a general, Joe Lockhart is identified as former White House press spokesman for mm -hmm. Bill Clinton. And you go, oh, that's his job. He's the His job is he's the former press spokesman for Bill Clinton, which he had 22 years ago. So that's all he's done. No, he's a lobbyist, but no. they don't say that. <laughs> they don't, no, we're supposed to just go, they, they go, Bill Clinton's press secretary. He hasn't worked in 22 years. No, he's a lobbyist. And one of the of things course. he sells to the people he's lobbying for is going on CNN. They don't tell That's us who, they don't tell us who the lobbyists are. You do not see a general on any network unless he's a lobbyist for a military contractor. Every general who speaks, every single general who you see interviewed on CNN, MSNBC, or Fox is a military industrial complex lobbyist. And they don't tell us that. Yep. No, they don't. I'd like to see some network eventually in the interest of transparency, admit that they are going to put on that crawl line that tells you who they are 
what they're doing now. You're absolutely right. If you don't have a press that is transparent, if they're covering up things where there is a clear, unequivocal conflict of interest, then they shouldn't be on the air and the network should suffer loss of advertisers and loss of everything else. They're, they're, these are people that are lobbyists. Sometimes they're on the boards of uh, multinational corporations interested in war because it's where they sell their most product. Um, and maybe, but it's our press, absolutely our, right. the White House press spokesman, Jen Psaki. Yeah, Jen Psaki, her previous job, she was a partner at West Exec. That is a mm. a lobbying for, firm that was set up by Blinken, our Secretary of State, to right. lobby the White House, not Congress, to lobby the White Correct. House for the military-industrial complex. You're a member of the Supreme Court bar. You've been in Washington, D.C. most of your adult life. We always think of lobbyists as men and women hanging out inside the lobby of the Capitol. But that's not what lobbyists <laughs> do. They they lobby the White House. Not. They lobby the White House, right? Well, yeah. Oh, trust me, some of them lobby the chairman of the Armed Services Committee, the ranking member of the Armed Services Committee. So, I mean, it's not just that they focus on the White House because they know that there are powerful figures in the Senate and even a few in the House that need to be taken to dinner, that need to be escorted around on tours of whatever region of the world they hope will receive greater funding. So that it's it's not just the White House, but, but this idea that people are, are hired to go in and they're going to make rad. They're going to pull out a piece of paper, and they're going to say, "Senator, um, I, I just have a few points to make." That that it does not happen. That's that's Jimmy Stewart in Mister right. Smith goes to Washington misinformation about how the government actually works. Right, right. Uh, Barack, not Barack uh, Obama, but Tom Barack, the the friend of. Donald Trump, who was arrested for lobbying the White House on behalf, I think, of the UAE. He was he spoke at the Republican convention. He's good friends with Donald Trump. And apparently he committed a crime because he violated Farah. The you're not allowed to lobby for a foreign country without correct without registering or something. It, it, there's a whole process you have to go. Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I mean, you're. I can't verify. I don't know who this guy the is. The point I've is, heard of him. But, yeah. The point is, you can go into the Oval Office as a lobbyist, as a paid lobbyist, like for the National <laughs> Rifle Association, and lobby the president. It's perfectly legal. They're just a couple of ground sure. rules. You of can course. you can go walk around to the EPA and. I think even the Justice Department, I think you can lobby the Justice Department. You can. I've done that. I mean, for progressive groups, though. But no, you can't draw, you can't draw that kind of distinction. You can't say, well, look, if it's somebody like Barry Lynn, he can go in because he's kind of a good guy. Maybe we don't agree with everything, but he's a nice fellow. And then I say, but the corporate interests, they can't speak. You literally can't do that. It'd be a nice fantasy, but you can't do that. 
But, but it would be nice to see amicus, amicus briefs, for example. Yeah. Those are when, when a, a case is before the Supreme Court, fr friends of the court will write briefs on behalf of one of the parties. Correct. And we don't get to find out who paid for the amicus brief. That's dark money, correct? That is very dark money. So it yep. is theoretically the, amica the amicus briefs that came out, like for Citizens United, could have all been funded by one man and written by, there could have been five amicus briefs written by one person. Right? Yeah, that's correct. But we wouldn't know that. It would be. No, and people, and look, um, here's something else it's done. It may sound nefarious, but even good guy lobbyists and good guy organization, good woman organizations will sit down and say, look, we're going to file briefs. We don't want to be repetitive. Would you agree to do these three points and then we'll do these three points and then the person at the other side of the table will do the final three points that happens all the time because none of us who filed amicus briefs want to bore the court i mean we we assume and i i think there's pretty decent evidence that people do at least the staff members of these justices do read amicus briefs take them seriously and occasionally you know you'll see something i think i'm a footnote in two Supreme Court cases, Lynn said this, but the 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 point doesn't stop there. That I was about to talk about Ginny Thomas and the obvious conflict of interest that she has with her husband Clarence Thomas, who of course is the oldest member of the United States Supreme Court, and. We once attempted to uh, urge him, force him uh, to not pay, take part in a case because we knew that he had recently spoken uh, at a national conference uh, to one of the parties in the case. There's no rule about recusing yourself. And there are even some uh, progressive people who say, well, you can't blame Justice Thomas for the actions of his wife in helping to set up the January 6th riot. You could say that, but I don't think it's very, it, it, it pales in comparison to the obvious conflict of interest, knowing that some of these cases involving January 6th will eventually get to the United States Supreme Court and Clarence Thomas will be sitting there making the decisions that are certain to be in line with those promoted by his own wife. Right, right. She, yeah, uh, that's pretty bad. She also failed to pass the bar. She went to law school, but she never passed the bar. <laughs> well, uh, D.C. bar is a pretty easy bar to pass. Well, and I speak from experience, but um, yeah, there, there um, are no ethics codes with the Supreme Court. I think this is it H.R. one Nancy Pelosi that that. What there's one there's a bill the first bill she introduced in 2019 yeah. was uh, some kind of ethics board for the Supreme Court. Yeah, it was. Um, 
Yeah, I don't remember whether it was a mandated thing or that she wanted to set it up so that justices who felt there might be the appearance of a conflict of interest could go to this board and say, help me out here. Uh, is this conflict real or imagined? Um, the the, the idea is she, that there... She, the idea is that the Supreme Court has such a, a thorough vetting system that once you get to the court, you're beyond reproach. Right? That there's no possible but, way you can but, be corrupted. Well, that, that's, of course, that's another great fiction. I mean, that's like the next episode of Star Wars. I mean, it's not, it is not real. No one in their right mind could look at somebody like Amy Coney Barrett or Kavanaugh and say, you know, these were the best people in the entire country to determine what the Constitution means. One of them is so politicized, Amy Coney Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh is one of hundreds of corporate lawyers in Washington who are no better, no smarter um, than Clarence said, than uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Right. I mean, these are just hacks. They're truly hacks. And then they get the, all these law clerks who love to be law clerks to even to hacks. And then they do all the heavy lifting. And then the judges cast the vote. And then it's over. But I think anybody who thinks the best and the brightest judicial minds in America are sitting today on the United Supreme State Supreme Court are about 80 percent wrong. Right. Do we do yeah. we know if Supreme Court justices have to do financial disclosures once they become uh, Supreme Court justices or is that? Yeah. Well, there, there is a, uh, an organization that looks into the financial uh, status of federal judges at every level, but I don't know if they have the power to do that. I will find out for next week. Uh, I do know somebody used to work for them to see just what their powers were. But um, I'll tell you, it's... Um, we got, we've got a, a pretty pathetic set of people. I'm glad to see Nancy Pelosi has finally decided that she would support efforts to prohibit the trading in individual stocks, company stocks. But it took, you know, kicking and screaming to get her to that point. Right. I, I'd like to, if we have a few minutes, sure. I would like to talk about what's going on in Florida. Um, this parental rights and education bill, because this is a truly horrible measure. It's, it says basically school districts cannot uh, encourage classroom discussion of sexual orientation or gender identity. That's what people are constantly talking about. And that's bad enough. But there's a worse section that also requires that people doing counseling of students must also uh, give parents any information that's related to a student's listen to this mental emotional or physical health or well-being unless disclosure might result in abuse so there was a study done not too long ago by an lgbtq group about students in those categories and where they feel they're getting the safest information um 
one third of them said that they thought their parents were supportive were they to learn or had they learned of the LGBTQ status of their son or daughter. But then they were asked, well, how supportive is your school? 50% of those respondents said, we feel more comfortable talking about this in school because we feel more supported. So there's nothing, there is absolutely nothing that is good that can possibly come out of this bill. And uh, DeSantis, in his own befuddled way, managed to... uh, (laughs) managed to say he thinks he hasn't researched it, but he thinks he's in favor of it, which, of course, he will be in favor of it by the time. And it's almost certain to get out of committees. But so the idea that this is, um, you know, uh, don't say gay bill um, may may treat it a little less seriously than it is, because to me, it's when you breach that relationship between a student and a counselor or a teacher on talking about these kinds of issues. And there are people, there was a person on uh, CBS the other day who who said, I I came out when I was 11 years old. And I've heard of 10 and 11 year olds who say, I just knew at that early age, I'm still in elementary school, that I am attracted to people of the same sex. That ain't going to happen in Florida if they're facing this potential backlash from uh, from the teachers and others who might have to report their feelings to um, to mom and dad. Boy, the ins- and you can imagine. Well, you can imagine what they would say because um, they, they want to be nice about this. They, they they call their mom and the dad and they say. Little Johnny is, um, well, he's acting a little, and they wouldn't use a terribly cruel word. word. They'd use the word, uh, he's a bit fey, we think. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine what that's going to do that can destroy someone's life and any opportunity to feel like a decent person in America, or at least in the Florida of America? It breeds Republicans, Reverend. Uh, I've thought about this because... We all have dreams. Uh, And we all have dreams where you wake up and you think, wow, I didn't know that was on my mind. That's that's okay, okay. And there are certain people you can look in their eyes and they are Republicans. They are Republican men. And I know them. And they wake up from a dream covered in sweat or something, some other liquid, and it terrifies them. These are people who really need to see a mental health expert or somebody to explain to them what it's that their dreams are okay, their urges are okay, but they've been indoctrinated to believe that they're sick and that they have to kill what's inside of me by voting against the LGBTQ. I see people, I see it in their eyes. You see it in their eyes. These are Republican men who have had dreams 
They are haunted by their dreams, and those dreams are of them being with another man. And the more you tell a man not to be with another man, the more you tamp it down, then the more he's going to dream about it. And these people are crazy. They are absolutely crazy because they ha they cannot reconcile these dreams, these erotic dreams that they have for men. It's in their eyes. You can see it. They are, and they're insane. And it's it's pretty much an entire party of yeah of men who have been told that homosexuality is wrong and they keep dreaming about having gay sex and, it, and they're out of their minds they're out of their minds yeah. what else is on your mind yeah. sir you know i wondered in in to take uh, the uh, don't say gay bill one step further what if you see these will this will sound funny to some people but i'm wondering if somebody proposed the following that not only can you not use the word gay but there are other words that have a certain sexuality related uh, interpretation to some of its meanings like um you can't use say bum or how about hoe or boobies kind of bird edge a kind of fetish where you just kind of your partner never is allowed to orgasm. I mean, who, where are you? Keep, We're not going to use any this. of those words. Who can't? can't say what, did you, what did you just say? We can't use any words that have one, a sexual orientation as one of its meanings. It, I mean, but I think people in Florida would vote for that. They would know as little about those words and what their etymology is and what their significance is. And um, as they do about critical race theory, I mean, these people don't know anything. What if you just went to Florida and created a said to people at a, a meeting in Matt Gates's district? Um, we don't want the children in our schools to be to sound or think that they're smarter than their parents. So let's stop. Let's prohibit the use of any words of six syllables or more. Yeah. Like we don't want people, I don't want my kid coming home and asking me what anti-diluvian means. <laughs> you know, that's six. I mean, can, I'm a pro. But no matter how absurd it is, but no matter how ridiculous it is, th there are people who can agitate whether you can see it in their eyes or not. The, the most absurd things, it, people are always going out to interview people who are against critical race theory. And then they say, well, what is critical race theory? And, um, um, they don't know. They can't explain it. It's, I have reached a point where I do believe that it is possible to take any ridiculous premise, put it on a bumper sticker, give it in a speech to the right people in Idaho or, uh, Florida, or even upstate New York, and uh, you will be able to pass it. You will be able to turn it into a cause celeb, and it will guarantee the election of a bunch of 
idiots. I don't know if you remember a man by the name of Alan Abel, who was a friend of mine in college. He was a prankster. Mm. Yeah, he, I do remember Alan him. Abel. He, he passed away, and there's a documentary about yeah. Alan Abel. Yes, uh, you should watch it. He was on my show about 10 years ago to promote the documentary, and he was a professional prankster. He started with Buck Henry. He would go on TV shows in the, in, in the 50s and the 60s. He'd go on television shows to complain about naked animals on yes. television and movies that these these yeah. animal they're it's in, it's indecent and he would get exactly. he'd have to send it back uh he would have to send the money back people would took him uh, no. <laughs> and then i helped him in new york he this was in the 80s he was setting up pedestrian toll booths <laughs> new york was yeah. falling apart and he just set up these little toll booths to pay, you know, how much wear and tear there is on the pavement. And he tried to collect tolls from people. <laughs> it goes on and on. You should look up Alan Abel, genius yeah. stuff. People, what he taught me, what he said to me is, it not only will people believe anything, but the media will believe anything. Exactly. And he, would do these stunts where he had a uh, a, a beauty queen who won a million dollars in the New York State Lottery, and they had a press conference. It became a national story. He hired this very beautiful model and dolled her up, and she told the media that she won a million dollars, and then there was some prank but it just got reported they they they, sure. they never bothered to check and this was in the 70s and the 80s when i found out about him and then you realize that the media and especially now oh, oh yeah they will report anything without checking yes yeah like somebody says if you uh, lower taxes for the wealthy You'll balance the budget. <laughs> oh, okay. Write that down. Uh, the Taliban attacked us on 9-11. Okay. Rep uh, her name was Judith Miller, I believe. I believe Judith yes, Miller. I think that's her name. Yes, yes that is her name. Dick Cheney yes. got us into Iraq because Judith yep. Miller just was a stenographer who just took it all down. It's amazing what you could, the rumors that you can spread. Uh, going back to your original point, people will believe anything. Absolutely anything. Yes, they will. Did you ever hear Phil Hendry? Yes, they will. Ever listen to the Phil Hendry show? No, but I mean, I, I, I know your friend, and I used to have him on radio shows when I used to do them, but um, aside from this one and Fugal Sings, but um, I don't know who Hendry is. Phil Hendry. I don't think it. You know, Phil Hendry the best, the best radio of my lifetime. Phil Hendry, H-E-N-D-R-I-E. It's I have to have him back on the show. The yeah. best, the best. Phil Hendry. And and you would listen to it. He would come on, then he'd pretend to he would pretend to be 
a congressman or a senator who is saying something <laughs> like, you know, uh, women shouldn't serve in the military because they're too emotional or whatever it is. And then he would take calls and bait the call. Everybody thought he was, was real. True. And you go, yeah. I, anyway, we, we have to wrap it up. You get the last word, sir. Absolutely. You get the last word. No, I think you're, I think you're right. And I think that the, the quality of journalism today is much worse than it was in the 60s and 70s when uh, these pranksters were getting away with it. I think it's so much easier now, not harder, but so much easier because if you get the right media outlet and if it goes viral, even if it's an internet story, it can make or break someone's entire uh, life and career even though it's completely manufactured. Right. And that's a pretty sad state of journalism today. And let's not speak of Maggie Haberman. We'll talk about her next week uh, when we try to figure out why it was that she knew that, as I understand it, that Donald Trump was throwing a lot of important papers and trying to flush them down the toilet. She didn't mention that until going on her publicity tour for her new book, which I think comes out next week. Uh, it comes out in October, actually. Does it? Well, it, it, she's we getting a little wait. advanced publicity yeah. just from talking about the toilet issue yeah. one more time in reference to Donald Trump. Yeah. Wow. Uh Okay, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, okay. go to barrywlynn.com for a treasure trove of the man's writings and sermons and appearances on high quality TV and radio shows. And follow him on Twitter at Barry W. Lynn. Give my best to your, your wife. And where are you right now? I am uh, in Massachusetts. I had been traveling to the West Coast. That's when Joanne and I joined you a couple of weeks ago. Yes. And then we went on a, a skiing trip. I'll talk about that next week. I much prefer the West Coast to waking up to minus three temperatures in the middle of a mountain in Vermont. Uh, Professor Adnan Hussein is looking at you and saying, you're weak. <laughs> you're weak, right? <laughs> Professor Hussein, Reverend, you're yeah. weak. I can well, you got to enjoy the winter um, and skiing in a beautiful Vermont mountain, even if it's minus three is, is it's still beautiful. It's gorgeous. It, I will concede that from my window, uh, <laughs> it really looked beautiful. And uh, I do not ski, but I was, I think, lured into this visit because my daughter said, you know, my son-in-law is a really good skier. And I said, well, what are you going to do? You don't ski. And she said, no, but I'm going to do what you'll do. We'll sit in front of a fire and drink hot chocolate. That there would be, go. but three little kids, we didn't be sitting in front of no fires and the fire marshal wouldn't even let us build a fire in our little uh, cabana in the mountains. Oh man, freedom! Yeah. We freedom. got a protest. We need I freedom. Got I'm gonna, I'm gonna form a, a nonprofit, and um, right after I help uh, Feldman create the Church of Feldman, I'm gonna create one. Try to raise a little money, and we'll start with you. You should go to rahima.org. 
by the way. We should plug Rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A.org. It is a, a food pantry for refugees, I believe from Afghanistan, and uh, they serve food, the right kind of food uh, to our friends in the Bay Area. Go to Rahima.org and we'll be talking about that more. Thank you, Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Stay out of trouble. Thank you. Can, can you stay out of trouble? Only good trouble. Only good trouble. Let's pick up on something Professor Marianne Cummings said in the chat room about Phil Hendry and getting people to believe certain things. You were I saw something about teaching math. Oh, no, no. It was implied to uh, Saul. He said, you know, they're teaching Arabic numerals. Right. And I replied, that's even worse. They're teaching Arabic math. It's called <laughs> right. algebra. <laughs> right. I, I, I've seen people uh, get outraged about that. It is time right now for the professors and Marianne. We have Professor Marianne Cummings, Professor Ann Lee, mm -hmm. Professor Jonathan Bick, and Professor Adnan Hussein. And let's start let me i want to do this right and make good use of everybody's time so let's do the whip as they used to say on cnn let's go around and find out what everybody wants to talk about professor ann lee why don't you give us what's on your mind and i'll write write it all down oh moral turpitude that's what's on my mind oh so uh, what does that mean oh depravity but in in the legal sense and so it's all over the place. It's in Ohio, it's in Missouri, and it's in Indiana. And nothing against flyover country. I spent a couple decades in the in flyover country. So, but uh, uh, moral turpitude is is what has suspended the the McCloskey's path and uh, uh, Mark uh, McCloskey, the the two St. Louis lawyers who own. Um, a gentrified mansion uh, in uh, just next to uh, the park in uh, uh, in St. Louis in the central central West End, and uh, they whipped out their guns because BLM people were taking a uh, shortcut to go protest the mayor of St. Louis. Well, you know, I mean, lawyers and guns, and all you need is money, and so it's costing <laughs> them money. Um, uh, their licenses have only been suspended, so they're essentially on a one-year probation. And they, uh, if they screw up, then they'll lose their law licenses, but they probably won't because uh, despite the fact that it was only a misdemeanor that they got charged with. And, uh, and the uh, Missouri Supreme Court, uh, you know, uh, uh, as much as it uh, brought down this ruling, the governor of Missouri gave them a pardon for their misdemeanor. So when was this? Um, I think a month or so ago. He was, wasn't so, he um, running for office? The, the... Uh, yeah, it's, you know, they, it, it's a zoo, the, the I, you know, uh, the Missouri elections. But, you know, it's very contentious and highly problematic. Lots of right-wingers running around. And McCloskey himself is only running fifth in a, a field, in the, in the field for senator, um, including that guy Greitens, who... Uh, 
photographed his uh, his mistress uh, doing stuff and uh, tried to extort, uh, you know, blackmail her. Uh, what a guy. And mm-hmm. still he's on the ballot, too. And these and are all Republicans, of, right? These are all Republicans. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a moral turpitude party. And then in Hudson, Ohio, um, the mayor, who I have discovered from uh, people who live in the area that uh, the poor guy lost his wife in September, that she got she died of cancer. And so, but I, uh, he's become completely unhinged. And um, in a meeting two days ago, declared that... Uh, Ice fishing shacks would promote prostitution. Yes. So, um, was he speaking from experience? (laughs) I guess so. Something's going on there. And I mean, he's the same guy who thought that, uh, prompts in uh, creative writing, um, that, uh, included, uh, talking about, uh, having sex or something. It's just a prompt in a writing exercise. Uh, for high school but he thought that that was child pornography so that was another thing and he tried to fire the entire school board in hudson ohio which is a um an ex-urban area it's a suburb of akron where the rubber meets the road um apparently the rubber meets uh sex boxes too and uh, needless to say everybody who's lived in a cold climate and experienced ice fishing um (laughs) Uh, you know, had jokes about, you know, whether you're really going to want to have sex in an, uh, in an ice shack, an ice shanty. Um, I mean, you know, anyway. And then finally, uh, the college board got rid of that dimwit, uh, uh, whatever the hell his name is now that it, it, it escapes me, uh, who was also, uh, a uh he was speaker of the indiana house which is a part-time position but he was making nearly five hundred thousand dollars a year as a lobbyist for the college board those of you don't know what the college board is they administer the sats and the ap the advanced placement exams and uh needless to say they wanted to uh make us all afraid of CRT and and telling people that slavery existed and all that other jazz uh but uh, this guy, Todd, was the classic example of uh, the kind of person who, from the right wing, gets on school boards. You know, he's got a bachelor's degree in political science. He gets on the school board, then runs for the state house. And now he's the damn speaker. And then is starting to put in all kinds of weird state regulations. And this is a total, the absolute version of what corruption or if you want to complain about a deep state, this is what that deep state looks like. Anyway, right. that's my little. Fantastic. Can't wait to you. can't wait. to. But first, uh, let me introduce our hummus can. Let's go to Norway, where Chef Joe <laughs> is, is standing by for ASMR for the eyes. We're doing ASMR for the eyes. You will not hear Joe preparing his dish. But Joe in Norway, tell us what you're cooking for us. Good evening, everyone. I'll be making, in honor of Amnesty International finally agreeing apartheid is apartheid, I'll be making hummus maspaha, which is a very, uh, the simplest hummus you can make. It's basically tahina and cooked hummus that's still warm, tossed in the tahina with a little pickle dressing on top. So it's a bit clumpy and it doesn't require any and the food processor. 
simplest thing like we're, we're and maybe a little cucumber tomato salad on the side and you'll be cutting now i don't know if you can top what you did last week with the basil it was this one's going to be a little difficult okay uh no comment but uh <laughs> thank you joe i'm going to mute you uh and we will watch you prepare your hummus on the hummus cam all the way in Norway. The world is amazing. This is the best use of technology. The professors in Marianne with Joe in Norway preparing hummus. Professor Jonathan Bick. Hello, sir. Hi, how are you, David? Glad to see you. What is What would you like nice to talk to about you. tonight? So I'd like to talk about um, the imminent removal of mask mandates in schools, mm -hmm. uh, public opinion, and, uh, you know, whether this is a wise move or not. To, to say you're on your own, America, we, this seems to be what Biden is saying it's up to the states. The Supreme Court is saying it's up to the states, right? Uh, or is it yeah. up to Joe Rogan and Jimmy Dore? Is that is that it's they check with Jimmy Dore and Joe Rogan as to whether or not people should wear masks, right? Yeah, I don't I don't think they should check with any of those uh, people or institutions. Uh, I think they should do what's right uh, to protect the American people's health and lives. Right. Uh, but okay. I'll go into more detail uh, when we come back to that. Anything else you have on the agenda? Um, just a little bit about Ukraine, if you want to bring that up. Okay, very good. And Professor Adnan Hussein, it's good to see you, sir. What would you like to talk about? Well, I, I suppose I should be talking about the widening international network of truckers um, that are expanding. Uh, but actually, I did coordinate with uh, Joe in Norway about hummus cam. He said, I'm making hummus. Do you have any Levant-inspired or themed topic that you want to talk about? And I said, well, I could talk about the amnesty report that just came out uh, that um, is uh, the third, really, of major human rights organizations, uh, Beit Salem and Human Rights Watch, in applying the term apartheid to describe the systematic form of domination and racial oppression of Palestinians under the state of Israel. Um, there's been a lot of controversy about the term um, but it kind of avoids in some ways when we just obsess about whether it is or it isn't apartheid. Uh, the actual analysis of the report, which is a 280 page, very thoroughly documented report that looks very carefully at the variety and analyzes the variety of ways in which there is the system of domination. And so that's something we could talk a little bit about, but also talk about the politics of uh, what does it mean that there are now uh, that it's increasingly becoming mainstream um, in these human rights organizations uh, that exist on donor funding and have been in the past quite cautious about 
you know, discussing, um, you know, Israel's violations under international law and oppression of the Palestinians. So it's clearly something is changing at the same time that geopolitically one can see that there are more of these agreements with the Arab states with Israel. So what's happening in this divide between socioeconomic and geopolitical policies of states versus civil society globally. Um, there's clearly a, a divorce between these, you know, between right. these powers. And it's it's so interesting. I want to we'll go to Professor Marianne in a second. The word apartheid is the issue, not the treatment of the Palestinians. Words are so important and uh it's very interesting you you you're not the right wing believes in freedom of speech unless you say israel is an apartheid state then we can't do business with then then there are laws that forbid you from doing business with state governments if you believe in boycotting israel it's interesting how important words are and why we need to pay attention to what we say. That's not censorship. All we really have is our word. Professor Marianne Cummings, what would you like to talk about? Well, I'd be actually curious to hear more about this trucker business in uh, in Canada. I haven't said much about it because I really uh, don't know all the details about it. It seems to me that whatever the motivations behind the truckers that make the news. I mean, why aren't just people organizing, workers organizing around the fact that you can do this? You know, we we seem to have no control over our politicians. We seem to have the money has bought both parties. The money has bought uh, the big corporations have captured all the major uh, uh, all the major uh, regulatory agencies. But we have our labor we can withheld. Uh, withhold. And I'm just looking at, you know, somebody brought it to my attention the other day, what's going on in uh, in Seattle that the, constru- the construction workers are on strike, specifically around concrete. And that is holding up like, you know, $23 billion worth of business for the year. And I'm going, you know, they don't, we don't need them. They need our labor. They need our efforts. And you know, I, I get a little frustrated when they're when things divide into partisan type of squabbling because you know, basically Republicans need health care and decent living and decent wages as much as Democrats do. And when uh, when Jeanette was talking on Monday uh, about how he wants to focus on Medicare for all because that's one issue that. Like we can unite the country around. Most of the country wants this. You know, most of the country wants decent wages. If we fall back into our respective blue and red camps, we ain't never getting anything. And they want us to like be squabbling with each other rather than, you know, basically confronting the power that's destroying, that's keeping all of us from having nice things and a decent life. And also, by the way, destroying the planet. Right. So, uh, yeah, I'd be interested to hear a little more though, about the uh, the trucker strike in Ottawa. If there is any more broader coalition than just you know people uh, protesting the uh, vax mandates and vast pa- passports, which by the way, not exactly anti-vax. 
right. a lot of the protesters in Europe were against these were against these biometric ID cards, you know, and that is you know the kind of thing that uh, Bill Gates thinks is a great idea that's going to give business all kinds of information for new markets. Say what you know the, the Facebook model, <laughs> the Twitter model. Anyway, so before we move on, I just want to mention two things. Go to rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A.org, and donate. Find out what rahima.org is and give money, please. And our friend, well, he's not our friend. I've never met him. Mike Elk over at paydayreport.com needs your help. He is, I think, one of the best labor reporters around, if not the best, Please subscribe to Payday Report. Mike uh, organized the uh, staff over at Politico. They fought him. He got an NLRB settlement. This was a couple of years ago. And he took the money from the, the settlement with Politico and set up Payday Report. And he is amazing. He keeps track of every strike that's going on in America. He has long COVID and he's $400 shy of his rent. He's about, he's facing eviction and he's got long COVID and he's trying to keep Payday Report going. Go to paydayreport.com and donate. Become a recurring donor. He can't make rent and we need him it's February. He lives in Pittsburgh. It's cold. He's got long COVID. He's a good man. I've never met him. Go to paydayreport.com right now and make sure he can pay his rent. $5, whatever you have. By the way, there's no limit to how much you can donate. He's not running for office, so you can give him five thousand fifty thousand give him money go to paydayreport.com right now he's fighting the good fight uh so yeah let's talk about the the trucker strike uh, not the trucker strike are they are they striking or just clogging the highways and is it how is it affecting the supply chain and will we have to pay more for hummus because of this is this causing inflation? Well, it's probably good that Joe is teaching us how to make it because uh, the value add uh, right. we can save by making it ourselves if you can get the ingredients. But that's the right. whole point is that everything gets circulated through trucks. And in addition to the tie up in the streets of Ottawa around Parliament, um, they are also uh sympathy uh convoys blockades of border crossings uh that are preventing traffic um both sides of the border uh and so that is going to pose uh problems and cause shortages if it hasn't already um it is starting to cause cause shortages is there a, I think is the there a spokesman from the, is it the maverick party that started this 
Who's the yeah, it's basically leaders of the Maverick Party uh, are involved and also a couple other fairly notorious figures um, who subscribe to pretty radical far right neo-Nazi type uh, white supremacist organizations. I don't think that's the majority of people subscribe directly to that, but the leadership um, and this comes out of, I think, a couple of years ago, there was um, another kind of vaguely trucker based um, uh, uh, kind of protest that happened. It didn't get, um, uh, you know, as far as this one, but obviously there's much more, uh, you know, there's a ripe uh, sense of, of discontent to, you know, exploit that's based in real, you know, kinds of concerns. But there had already been, um, uh, a trucker kind of organization or organizations, for example, in the greater Toronto area that were organizing around uh, exploitation and abuse of of uh, of truckers. Um, none of their concerns, however, have been um, incorporated into this latest uh, kind of occupation of, of the city. Um, so you know, there's different ways to analyze it. Um, but unfortunately, it seems that it's not, well, it was never designed to be a workers movement. It, as um, Professor Marianne points out, however, should point the way to the power of withholding one's labor. Um, and if this could be organized with demands about working conditions rather than just this kind of political attempt to bring down the Trudeau government or reject um, public health uh, measures, it could really be very powerful. It's really unfortunate in a way that once again, the left is sort of the ones caught napping you know, and it's the right that makes all of the aggressive moves to put its agenda forward using tactics that could be used effectively to improve, you know, society on all our behalves. And so that's, I think, the real tragic part of it. Culturally, it, it just culturally, it feels since the 60s that the left lost construction workers to the right and they lost truckers to the right. They lost that country music became the domain of truckers. And we always associate, I don't know how accurate this is, but it, it feels like uh, they the, the truckers and construction workers view the left as elitists. Professor Marianne, what are your um, you know, it's we have lost the language. I think I, I I caught a little bit of your show earlier. I think it was what was that one of the what, young kids, one of the young guys that was with Gravel, with yeah. Mike Gravel that you were talking to. Yeah, Just yeah, and amazing. It, it, it's great because he he did talk about he did mention in the few minutes I listened about uh, Roosevelt's much lesser known Bill of Economic Rights. Which, by the way, Bernie Sanders kicked off his his campaign in one of these big meetings, early meetings in, in 2015, giving a big speech about this you know, this bill of economic rights and how he wants to pick up where FDR left off, and inexplicably did not continue on that thing. 
And I agree with Professor K, Harvey J. K. There. I mean, I wished I didn't want to. I, Denmark is great, but in the United States, if you're running for U.S. president, he should have been talking less about Denmark and the Scandinavian countries and more about FDR and all the unfinished business and how the Democrats stalled and failed decades ago on that unfinished business. I think, but I think even, but even so, I mean, Bernie Sanders resonated with people because he wasn't straddled. You get the idea when people talk like politicians, it's usually because they're straddling two different sets of forces at least. You know, you've got, you wanna woo the voters, but you've got to like cater to your donors. That's the fundamental problem we have. Bernie Sanders, when he talks, doesn't straddle with one exception when he was, two exceptions, when he was campaigning for Hillary Clinton, then nobody wanted to hear him talk about that. And when he was campaigning for Joe Biden, nobody wanted to hear. I mean, it was just, he was at his weakest. And, and he is sounding weak when he's trying, bending over backwards to try to push an agenda that Joe Biden himself either doesn't want to or is incapable of fighting. Right. So that kind of, and, and that's our fundamental problem. I Even as a kid, I sensed the Democrats were like, on one hand, you know, the construction workers and union people, and, and the other hand, hippies. And that's been a divide we have been dealing with ever since. Let, so. me, let me ask professors Bick and Lee and all of you this. I've been saying all day, Medicare for all, Medicare for all, we have to solve the healthcare crisis. All good flows from that. But then you look at the truckers up in Canada where they have a far superior healthcare system. And I think, well, stupidity knows no bounds. That I always think the solution is give everybody a safety net like they have in Canada and everything will be okay what 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 do you say when you when you see canada well, behaving this way i i don't know exactly i think hussein is a, a professor hussein should address this but i know in in england for instance and in in europe in general in the last 10 years there's been a big push toward austerity in fact you know some of the subtext of the girl with the dragon tattoo novels was this push for this, this tendency toward corporatism, toward liberalizing some of their policies? They've been, England has been, or the UK has been trying to privatize their national health care system. You right. see this. When you say liberalizing, you're talking about the markets. Liber, liber the market, liberalizing yeah. in the sense of neoliberalism. Right. And free markets, right? And that's everywhere. I mean, I don't think I don't regard Trudeau as any kind of progressive, or I think he's right in line with uh, American neoliberalism. Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I want to get the reaction of the rest of the panel to this, but um, the uh, complaints of truck drivers are very real. You know, they, they have a lot to complain about. I know that in the U.S., and I assume it's somewhat similar in Canada, uh, that the conditions under which they work have deteriorated over the decades and the compensation that they receive 
has deteriorated by one third in the United States since the 1970s. So they have a lot to be upset about. So I do think it comes down primarily to uh, material conditions of the, of the truck drivers. And if the government of Canada were to say, uh, look, uh, we understand you've been treated badly. Uh, this is what we're going to do. We're going to make sure that uh, your pay is increased. The number of hours that you have to work is decreased. The amount of surveillance that is uh, forced on you is eliminated or severely decreased. Uh, and, you know, we're going to do that. And you get your trucks out of out of the streets uh, of Ottawa. So. So, so know, the is it a deal, and that that way they could drive a wedge between the truckers and their real life interests, right. And these other people that mm -hmm. are extreme right wing, being funded by billionaires That's and etc. That's absolutely yeah. brilliant. If Trudeau really wanted to defang this movement, cater to their financial needs, not their psychosis it's the same thing it's you've really nailed it for me because it's like racism they use the the vaccine mandates the same way they use racism to get people riled up about critical race theory so they don't have to focus on what's really disturbing them their financial plight I guess the one caution I would have on this, because in general, I agree with that approach broadly, is that a lot of the see, we're also falling into the framework that this is a truckers movement. It's not a truckers movement. There are some truckers involved. One of the flashpoints involved, uh, you know, laws restricting truckers movement across the borders. However, um, uh, it's, uh, I heard, um, Christo Ivalis, who's a good commentator and a former, uh, graduate student in our history department. And he runs a great podcast called Left Turn Canada talking about the trucker strike and he, uh, you know, the freedom convoy. And he put it in terms of that a lot of the people who are parked there in Ottawa are owners of their own trucks not the proletariat wage you know earning drivers they are the owners so it's like the franchise owner not the mcdonald's frontline you know the staff um and so their investment you know they may not be wealthy incredibly wealthy but their relationship uh, you know to the grievances of truckers and changes in the industry is a little bit different and they're a little bit like the January 6th small business owners who are outraged they're the petty bourgeois and they have a different kind of class interest and different kind of politics so just promising you know to address these grievances is not going to get those people out of there although i think you're right that it might drive a wedge from people who are out at the blockades and on other parts of the convoys but the reality is is that this always was hurting truckers doing the blockades at the borders was stopping you know there's like hundreds of south asian truckers still stuck in montana that they can't get through because there's a blockade on the other side and they're losing hundreds of dollars or having to go way around to other other places.
Yeah, well, be. it's my understanding, though, that even owner operators are being squeezed by uh, large corporations, right? The people that they ultimately work for um, are squeezing them as well. So, it, you know, this this uh, response from government could be to address that as well. The yeah, it, well- it is, but it's 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 again, it's um, you know they're not wage workers, so they're but they're like failing businesses that you know, like a lot of small businesses that are being squeezed under COVID and COVID restrictions, and they're considering that the costs of their business are going up because they have to adhere to various vaccine mandates and you know and so on, and that's like a, a kind of concern that small business owners have had as well. So what one would need to do to placate them is something more like that UBI, more like um, other kinds of relief, like the relief that went to small businesses. But it's very important, I think, to recognize that this is never and never was conceived as a kind of workers rise you know, uprising over their working conditions. It was always organized and manipulated as a political anti-mandate and above all anti-Trudeau and not that I'm, you know, I mean, I'm an anti-Trudeau too, you know, I mean, he's a terrible neoliberal, but um, they seem to me a little bit like the people who rallied around in January 6th that basically just will not accept. We recently had an election here, you know, this last fall, the far right just will not accept, you know, uh, election losses, it seems at this point, they're just refusing, you know, to, to accept democracy at this point. Well, they're seizing. And- they're seizing on on certain spectacular points, uh, things that that create unrest. But they're not looking at the as as John was talking about the real relations. The all of these uh, issues are in in marginal. They work on marginal costs. They have, you know, they run because of of issues of time and motion. It, it, it's all problematic for for the poor truckers, and unfortunately. The front end, front end of this crisis was a right wing crisis. It was a it was a cash grab that that attempted to to manipulate the GoFundMe. That I mean, nine million dollars. It's an incredible amount of money that they uh, that they gathered in a week off of incredibly bizarre and superficial things. But unfortunately, there is a kind of reaction that. That governments are beginning to to react to because it's unfortunate that it did have a an effect on loosening up or at least making a public admission of loosening up the federal federal mandates issue, which created in effect loosening in very large U.S. states. Now the problem, of course, is that they think they've got a victory out of this. This is not a real victory, but it it. it it, it's so incredibly contradictory, and I, and I, I agree with, with Adnan that uh, you know there are other real relations that are that are being obfuscated in this crisis. The the, the issue of the drivers themselves, the 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 constitution of the uh, of of the population that's causing causing these kinds of uh, uh, demonstrations or whatever it is. What will be interesting is what what effect it's going to have on an American demonstration, because there is some um, spectacular interest in trying to do this at the quote unquote Super Bowl. And we'll see whether there is going to be an effect of that. It, it is unfortunate, but even these large spectacular 
cultural sporting events have had a political front end to them because the, the that's exactly what they talked about in the uh, NBC coverage of the Olympics, for example. Let me ask you about who benefits financially from the convoy. Supply chain issues have been used as an excuse for inflation. Uh, Starbucks can't get their hands on coffee cups. They're raising the price of coffee. When you look at the earnings of these companies, like Exxon had rec did very well uh, this quarter uh, they, because of the price of oil going up. Corporations do very well when there's inflation because it gives them license to raise their fees. Amazon Prime just raised their, their prices. Uh, Netflix uh, and Amazon went through the roof when, when they raised their prices for Amazon Prime. So would it be in the best interest of the ruling class to to create this astroturf truck convoy to goo up the supply chain and use this as an excuse to raise to raise prices for things? Well, that's that's one thing for the capitalists for neoliberal capitalists. But on the other side, there's an entire other apparatus at work. So, for example, uh, NBC interviewed the Secretary of Commerce today, and her response to inflation was that it, because uh, there is this related problem of car prices and used car prices, she blamed it on uh, chip shortages that are not about supply chain so much as they are on the production side, which has to do with Asia. So there's a lot of moving parts here. Right. And, and from, a, from a resisting this, this idea of, of falling into this sort of supply chain issue, because that has its own really bizarre xenophobic elements to it, it would, it would behoove governments to start addressing the real problems. We've had this chip problem now for several years. Is that because of the tariffs? Is that because of Trump's it's partially, tariffs? It's partially tariffs, but it's an industrial policy thing. There's automatic constraints being done on it to control uh, auto production in general, which is also being constrained by a demand problem. So there's a lot of other moving parts in this issue. Um, and and as I said, with all due respect to the pun, it is about parts. Uh, that whole issue of chip production and advanced technology needs to be solved. Also, if you're Joe Manchin and you want to yeah. kill the safety net, you can accuse Democratic spending of causing this inflation. That That is in the best interests of the pro-corporate right wing who doesn't want to pass Build Back Better to say, look, look at what the the bipartisan infrastructure bill Look, at it's already causing inflation. We can't keep spending money this way. He, he didn't bring the, uh, the essentially $4 trillion that we transferred to the financial sector in the first rescue, COVID rescue plan, did he? Uh, he never mentions that. That doesn't he, cause he never inflation. Or increasing just, spe military spending doesn't cause inflation. Uh, Professor no, but I, you know, I wanted to, yeah. to to ask Professor Anne, you know, 
there was a, a massive tax cut during the Bush during the Bush two administration, but more importantly, there were tax incentives for people to stop start offshoring all their factories. That included critical type technologies like chip manufacturing and everything else. Um, that's not an industrial. We never say industrial policy for some reason. I don't understand. It's a bad word. But if it's Boy. if your structure incentivizes people to offshore their their factories, then that's essentially a policy. Well, so yeah, are- it's, it's about industrial policy. There, the, what the Secretary of Commerce talked about is the Chips Act, which is not about the Highway Patrol, but creating helpful incentives to produce semiconductors for America. So it's really chipsa. But anyway, it, it, it is a way of trying to recuperate Build Back Better. And it's actually gotten bipartisan support. So on the one hand, it is industrial policy, but just, I'm sorry I interrupted, but it is the, the, the S word that, that industrial policy always means socialism. Oh, so let's go to Ukraine. I can't help but think it's about something other than Putin wanting to invade Ukraine. I can't help but think this is about some geopolitical financial play. Uh, Joe Biden said, is it Nordstr- Nordstrom? <laughs> What's the name of uh, the, is it Nordstrom's <laughs> Nordstrom. or Saks Fifth What's the, what's the name of the Macy's? Pipeline. No, no. So Biden says he invades Ukraine. The uh, Russian pipeline number two is shut down. Germany's not going to get any natural, any gas from Russia. So it seems to me this isn't about what they're saying it's about. I can't help but think it's about tricking us into selling more weapons to Ukraine and arming NATO and this being a big payout to our military industrial complex. They want to create an artificial hotspot to send money to our weapons manufacturers. Isn't that really what it is? And something else? I'd I'd say it's about three things primarily. And I I think you touched on most of them there. The first is... uh, you know, where Germany and other parts of Western Europe, where they're going to buy their energy, from whom are they going to buy their energy? Uh, is it going to be Russia with with that pipeline, gas, natural gas pipeline? Or are they going to get liquefied natural gas shipped from the United States, which has an abundance of it? Uh, but it's a, it would be more expensive to get it that way. Right. So the U.S. would rather have, uh, you know, the United States selling Europe the natural gas than getting it from Russia. So that's one thing. Um, Another thing is that, um, as you mentioned with NATO, the U.S. wants to continue uh, NATO, even though it has no legitimate mission that I can see at this point. to uh, to continue to expand NATO and uh, try to find a reason for its existence uh, because they get a lot of money. The defense contractors get a lot of money for building up the member 
member uh, uh, nations of NATO, they're military. You have and, to you spend, know, I think you have to spend like two, if you want to join NATO, you have to promise to spend something like two to 3% of your GDP on defense. It, it, joining NATO is a, you know how hedge fund managers get 3% off the top? If, if there's profits or no profits, as from my understanding, you join NATO, you're giving 3% off the top to the military industrial complex of your GDP, of your entire 3% of your entire economy has to go towards defense. Don't gangsters call that the vigorous? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the third point is, I think that uh, Putin uh, does care about the security of Russia and his place at the head of, you know, at the top of uh, Russian government, of course. Um, and, you know, he remembers that uh, the Soviet Union lost, uh, I think it was like 10 million men. Uh, defending Ukraine against the Nazis. Um, so to expect them to just surrender it to the United States, you know, to, to allow the United States to uh, create a sphere of influence there uh, without firing a shot, I don't know if they're going to do that. Right. Um, and, and we shouldn't forget that the U.S. was involved in a coup uh, in Ukraine, and that Joe yes. Biden, Joe Biden appointed Victoria Nuland to the third most uh, important position in the State Department. And she's she was neck deep in the uh, in supporting that coup, which yeah, was, wasn't that famous conversation with our ambassador and somebody recorded it and it was on YouTube where she said, F the EU. Yes, we're doing. That was Victoria Newland. That was her, yes. And, and of course, the other people in the European Union are, 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 were desperately trying to. They thought that that the U.S. were was on board with a big diplomatic push, and then suddenly we want to just overthrow a democratically elected government, which we claim was corrupt, and we replaced it with a guy that was even more corrupt. Plus, we've installed Nazis now in their now Nazis are just embedded in their national security forces. So, yeah, I guess from the Russian point of view, yeah, that's uh, history kind of repeating itself a little bit. Well, you know, on the other side, the, the, Russian, the Russian side of, of influence also wanted to get a coup going, what was it, last two months ago. So it, it's very contentious. I, I, I agree that... There shouldn't be probably any U.S. spheres of influence anywhere around there or NATO influences. But, you know, this is, uh, as they say in some of the literature, this is Soviet style negotiating. You know, when mm -hmm. you, you use a lot of force, but you don't do jack. You know, you just sort of sit on on your negotiating position for a long period. And I think that's what uh, th that's what Putin is trying to do in this. And he wants a concession. He wants right. that concession about Ukraine never, never joining NATO, or else some weird Finland, so-called Finland 
Finlandization of the Ukraine. I, I want to talk about. I mean, I mean, Biden could end this right and just say Ukraine is not going to enter NATO. I think I think Putin would take that. But it's also in Putin's and, best interest financially because uh, something I, I don't know the exact. I think it's either three percent or two percent of your GDP must be spent on defense. So Turkey, for example, they have a GDP of, let's say, a trillion dollars, right? Two percent of that has to be spent on weapons. Erdogan is threatening to buy F-15s or F-16s from Russia because our Congress won't. If you have to approve foreign sales of weapons through Congress. So if we don't approve these foreign sales, Turkey has to buy by law their missiles someplace else. They have to spend 2% of their economy. They, they're going to end up buying it from Russia. So it may end up being fine. If, if Ukraine uh, becomes a NATO signatory, they might end up buying their weapons from Russia. I think actually, I mean, I'm not sure exactly how it works. You're right that there are these requirements about percentages of GDP. But I think the assumption also is, is that they have to be NATO compatible. You know, you have to have the same command and control structures. You need the same parts, you know, replacements and advisors. Right. And so basically what you're doing when you extend NATO is you're extending the monopoly market that you have for the sale of your weapons and your military infrastructure, your security and surveillance uh, expertise, and so on. And so this is, in a way, uh, capturing markets. So that's the reason why they extended, you know, uh, NATO against agreements made at the end of the Cold War, you know, into Eastern Europe and into play and potentially into places like Ukraine. We had a pretty good discussion about this with Danny Haifong on his show as a collaboration with Guerrilla History. And that was essentially the point I made is that uh, the U.S., you know, main, you know, what can it supply and export to the rest of the world at this point? You know, it's violence, it's means of surveillance. These are the things that it has uh, still a bit of an advantage in, and it's worried about losing that market share. So AUKUS, that agreement that got Australia to buy a kind of old nuclear sub from us and instead of, you know, from France, uh, trying to extend, um, you know, NATO to Ukraine. These are, you know, mechanisms in some ways to make sure that we keep a military edge and that we serve with the suppliers and the military industrial complex. It is so, so, I agree it's with so blatant. It's so blatant. The Republicans, the right wing Reagan used to say you can't solve problems just by throwing money at it, right? We have to pull back the welfare state, get rid of the safety net and spend our money wisely. However, when it comes to NATO's defense, 2% of your GDP, no matter what, must go towards the military industrial complex. You have to prove to us that you're serious 
The only way you can prove that you're serious about being in NATO, the way you prove it is by giving 2% of your gross domestic product to the military industrial complex. That's incredible. Like, hey, no, but hang on, we're going to be smart. We don't need to give 2% for our defense. We we're going to do we're going to be smart in our spend. No, no, no. You got you have to be stupid in your spending mm -hmm. when it comes to defense. It's incredible. I'm so sorry. The, the left. The, so what I don't understand is, again, why is it that we have to wait? You know, uh, I've been against NATO, but it never gets anywhere. Why do we have to wait? You know, uh, you know, nobody on the left is really making a big deal of NATO about NATO. When we talk about foreign policy, nobody had been saying anything about it. We had to wait, you know, for Trump to say something critical about NATO. Like, what's the point of NATO? And, you know, of course, he frames it in this disgusting, ridiculous business way of like, we're being taken for a ride. All those other people are not ponying up. So, you know, he puts it into the politics of resentment that, you know, it's that, um, right. you know, right. we're paying for everybody else's security and I'm going to make sure that everybody, you know, ponies up. You know, that's like his concern. But he was getting at a genuine issue that you know, crickets on the left. Instead, the left, you know, comes out and, you know, defending NATO. It's like, no, you know, NATO doesn't have a rationale. It's been used, you know, and it's, it's costing us a huge amount of money. He's correct about that. But that money should be going into, you know, social development. Um, so I just don't understand why we're not capable of making maybe. Well, we are, but we, they never get a hearing. You know, I mean, right. nobody listens to us on the left saying we don't need NATO and we should stop spending so much money on military hardware. Yeah. Well, often it's the left wants to just simply reject some ideas, but doesn't focus down on the details. And that's, I think, where Trump helped Russia triangulate us on this issue of NATO and payments and divisions in NATO. Uh, half the problems we have with NATO allies is, in effect, trying to work through these alliances. I mean, even this current one is being manipulated by all kinds of opportunism. Macron trying to work out his own election issues by going in and doing, quote unquote, shuttle diplomacy. You know, it's just Everybody's got their own little agenda here, and it's very problematic. And the left has to get in there and say and call foul on all these uh, all this idiocy. Yeah, but the left is a very, very tiny voice in American politics because the Democratic Party ain't the left. And the Democratic Party appears to be solving some of its electoral difficulties by, you know, saber rattling and war. It seems to unfortunately always work. And, you know, I, I, I know that Trump is an idiot, but the thing with Trump is that he's not allied. I mean, he's a real estate dude. I mean, he's like mob, he's mob related. You know, his friends were not the military industrial complex, you know, so Trump could like jerk the Democrat, the Republicans around on stage during the debates and, and calling out something that the left should have called out 10 years before that Bush didn't keep us safe. Everybody has to be like respectful of 911. You know, I think that was a national security value of a massive type, on, and it's all on the Bush crime family. But um, the the problem, anyway, yeah. I want to ask about the uh, Finland and and fusion, the two Fs. Uh, fusion. Uh -huh. One second. 
the the problem the left has, if there is such a thing as a left, let me just say the problem I have with the people I know is they don't like to make nice with construction workers or truckers or isolationists because they do when when you say isolationist you automatically think of Lindbergh and the Bush family and Joe Kennedy and isolationists were the fascists so we don't we can make common ground with Rand Paul and Mike Lee and I, maybe Josh Hawley there are a lot of uh, ideologues on the right the same people who say audit the Fed are the ones who say stay out of war. Like th these endless wars have to stop. There is a left-right coalition, uh, unfortunately, with people like Ted Cruz, who who I think I think you'll find that a lot of these uh, ideologues on the right are not too keen on war and military spending. Well, I think we should be looking at what's happening in Seattle because, you know, when you when you do form unions or when you try to get unions coordinated, are you asking people what their political affiliations are or what they believe? No. You know, you're all getting, you're, you're not going to have these arguments at this point. You're not going to ask people what their ideas about abortions are, abortion rights are. You're going to talk about, do you want health care? Do you want better working conditions? Do you want control of whether or not you can get overtime? I mean, and the, uh, the problem is because the Democratic Party, the Republican Party are owned by the same people. They want to have this culture war perpetuated indefinitely. So we don't ever ask questions about class, you know, um, all of this, you know, diversity talk about diversity and wokeness well you know i'm so old i remember there was another term for it when you didn't want to solve fundamental problems but you wanted civil rights people off your back it was called tokenism right right very I remember I, <laughs> the guy in the reagan administration was completely politically incorrect when he says i've got a cripple i've got a jew i've got a you know he was i think wasn't he uh he was the interior department secretary before nancy reagan got james watt James Watt, thank you. The telescope is named after him. No, different James Watt. Um, <laughs> that's James yeah. Webb. That's James Webb. <laughs> All right, that's right. Thank you. I should. I very should. quickly, we, we, I, I, very quickly, yeah. fusion, nuclear fusion is. I read that they have been able to do mm -hmm. something with nuclear fusion. Is it safe? Is this the answer to climate change? No. I mean, in a word, only because you know they they've been able to keep they they've been able to keep a steady generate uh, energy generating plasma going for some period of time longer than they had before, and the big project in ITER in France I don't know what I T E R stands for, it's probably in French, but. Um, they are a long way from making that, you know, generating more energy out than you put in. But the first step is to at least get an energy generating plasma going. As I said before here, I mean, you know, ever, ever since before I was born, fusion has been just five years away because it's natural. It's the energy from the sun 
what's hard for people to grasp is that the core of stars are the most extreme places in the universe. Okay. <laughs> and so it's 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 very hard to keep that plasma with all that energy stable. Um, on the other hand, you know, if you could do it, then you don't need to mine uranium or thorium or coal or natural right. frack for gas. I mean, you can just, you know, pour garbage into your little Mr. Fusion. Well, we, we have to I mean, wrap it up to, to be continued. Fantastic job. We were going to talk about the Finlandization of NATO, which I don't think Finland isn't NATO because they are on the border with Russia. Let's ask Chef Joe in Norway on the hummus can, getting rave reviews on YouTube and here in the chat room. Wonderful. You are a, seriously, <laughs> this is a, a, the hummus can, hummus cam in Norway. Uh, tell us what the food is. And while you're describing the food, tell us about the Finlandization of Norway. What are we looking at? Finlandization. Well, this is hummus masbaha or swimming hummus. It's a mixture of, of chickpeas and tahini sauce. And I used regular chickpeas and brown ones. The The regular chickpeas will, will become mushy and the brown ones will still hold their uh, shape and have a bite. So it has a nice uh, texture combination there. Now is that oil? A, the, the oil, or what is that? Yeah, it's a it's a kind of salad dressing. It's it's olive oil and pickled juice, chopped up pickles, pickled uh, pepper, and pickled cucumber, with some coriander and parsley. And I I toasted some black cumin to give it an added um, flavor and. Uh, go to rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A.org, because this food is what the food pantry at rahima.org gives to people. And you can live on chickpeas, right? The chickpeas, hummus, this is a bean that provides all the fiber and protein one would need. What does it cost? To, to uh, in America, would you say uh, chickpeas would be cost? That would be like a three dollar, right? Three three dollars. You could feed a family. I imagine you could get a yeah. right five dollars. And th this this dish doesn't require cooking. So if you go to the grocery and all you have access to are canned chickpeas, you can just drain those and make the tahini sauce as long as you have the sesame paste. Right. And and what so what is what is cooking is not required either. And to the right, what what do we have over there? This whoa, now we're getting into political kitchen territory. This is called depending on which side of the apartheid wall you sit, <laughs> you could see different names. The Israelis call it Israeli salad or salat or salat arabi. Adnan. I just call it a Jerusalem salad. Jerusalem salad. <laughs> very, very vague. <laughs> Jerusalem salad. Very, very, very vague. Uh, and what is in this uh, ecumenical uh, this, salad? Uh, 
this one I uh, chopped up cucumbers, tomato, some scallion, uh, parsley or coriander, cilantro, and um, you can put mint in it, uh, salt and pepper, and olive oil and lemon juice. The Mediterranean, that would be the Mediterranean diet, correct? This is what we're looking at. Is it safe to yes. say? And is it is it safe to Fishly. say? I don't I don't want to dispense medical advice, but this diet you will live forever if you eat this food, and it is morally superior to to any other food that's out there. And this is what is in the food pantry that is given out at rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A dot org. $5. Uh, this is the food. Another way to look at it is that it'll keep you regular. I didn't want to say that. I didn't <laughs> want to say that. So I, I think moving forward, uh, anyway, this is, this. thank you all. Uh, it is not easy for anybody right now and and this uh is so inspirational and thank you all for for all that everybody here does uh i will see by the way and joe keeps office hours going joe in norway we we he really is uh the 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 the, the base of office hours does the scheduling and so is professor ann lee Thank professor Adnan hussein professor jonathan bick and professor marianne cummings i cannot thank you enough for uh keeping my pilot light going what are we going to see uh jonathan bick tomorrow on office hours what are we watching I will be a Twilight Zone episode, but I uh, haven't determined it yet. <laughs> right. And you'll be teaching Star Trek as well pretty soon. Uh, yeah, I wanted to see. Maybe you can uh, have a quick poll on Office Hours. No, no. We are no, 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 no. I, the, here, here's the thing. I cannot get into Star Trek, and I need you to teach me Star Trek. I will do it if you promise to show up. I show up to all your screenings are you kidding oh you do of okay course. all right you can't get into star trek in terms of getting hooked on i want i'd give anything to be hooked on star trek i can't get into it Can it's you... all about it's all about comradeship it could have been placed anywhere that's what gene roddenberry told me well okay did you talk to him Harvey? he gave a talk when i was at lsu back in Somewhere in the early 70s when I was doing my PhD, he came to speak there and, you know, we were asking questions and he said, well, really, and I have a feeling he had in mind almost like a World War II bomber. It just set out in space and, and it was multicultural and women included. And it was all about their comradeship and loyalty to each other. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, just uh, if that helps at all. We will. Uh, we're not polling office hours about some things. Just have to be taught. Oh. We are not. Students aren't consumers. We don't. They have to be. There are some things that just must be taught. 
and uh, I, I, I will do it then, David. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Joe in Norway. Thank you, Professor Hussein, Professor Bick, Professor Cummings, Professor Lee. Read Professor Lee over at Daily Coast. Daily Coast. And and your your slug line is what is your uh, Annie Lee A N N I E L I. And thank and, you. Thank you. And go listen to Gorilla History with Professor Hussein and the Mudgeless podcast. Well, you know what time it is. It's time for some music from Professor Mike Steinell. Hang on. This is. I need to write a song about him. About Professor Mike Steinell. I agree. Yeah. Uh, where is the song? Hang on. Uh-oh. Here we go. Misky and K, they go together like PB and J. Like Thelma and Louise, like Mac and Cheese, like Sacco and Benzetti, like meatballs and spaghetti. Allen's in LA, Harvey J's in Green Bay. When they get together, they got a lot to say, cause they're Misky and K. get together they have a lot to say breaking news the progressive democrats of america are calling upon all candidates to endorse a 21st century economic bill of rights and this 21st century economic bill of rights has been authored i believe it's been authored by our next two guests Alan Minsky, executive director of Progressive Democrats of America, and the author of FDR on Democracy, Professor Harvey J.K. This is a masterpiece. You know, you ain't talking shit unless you're talking about labor. I believe 
Professor Harvey J.K. said, like, if you're not talking about labor, you're not talking about you're talking shit. (laughs) And you read this press release from PDAamerica.org about a 21st century economic bill of rights. If you're not talking about this economic bill of rights, shut the F up. This is what this is the only thing people should be talking about. Everything else is a distraction to keep you from talking about a 21st century economic bill of rights. Professor Harvey J.K. Well, I got to say that I, I'm I'm really glad Alan invited me in on that. And um one of my former students who's a law who's a law student, one of my former students is a law student at and I don't get upset, one of the Ivy League law schools. He read it and he said, This is the sort of clear, unequivocal stance we fucking need. So uh and it it's it, Alan knows even better than I that the response, even just in the hours since it was released, has been very favorable. And uh mm-hmm. you know. let's discuss. Let's give a little history lesson. Go to PDAamerica.org to read about the Economic Bill of Rights and uh, tell us what's in it. You want to kick off? Yes, uh, we can do that. Indeed, Um, it is. um, It begins by talking about a certain president in the 1940s and his uh, State of the Union, second to last State of the Union address and how he was informed by polls that were conducted in 1943 that showed Americans wanted guaranteed health care, guaranteed employment, and guaranteed aid to students. He was very eloquent as he spoke. And since we need all these things still today, we call for a 21st century version of this. Then we borrow from the template that Bernie Sanders used in his 2020 campaign, which is very concise and succinct. And um, Bernie, of course, introduced this and said he called for this and then didn't say a whole heck of a lot about it. It's, that's certainly right. my recollection. This is really well. important to me. Are you your hands are on a keyboard or something? So I, I, if you can keep your hands to yourself, oh, I shall do that. OK. Yes. And um, uh, sorry about that. And and so we we introduce those uh, and then we say, of course, it could be. Expanded you should say, you should say what those are. Oh, the six? Yes, of course, we should do that. Uh, Trying to be quick in my summary here. The right to a job that pays a living wage. Two, the right to quality health care. Three, the right to a complete education. Four, the right to affordable housing. Five, the right to a clean environment. And six, the right to a secure secure retirement. Let's let's repeat this. Let's repeat this. Hang on for one second. Mm -hmm. This is really important. Repeat it. Can I say I'm, it this time? I'll, you say it. Go I'm going to say it, and we're going to keep saying it. Go ahead, Professor Harvey J.K. Okay, so this this template is from Bernie Sanders' campaign, and Alan is absolutely right. Bernie introduced it. It was firmly, you know, right there on the website, but he just never took it and went to town with it. You might say. So the, the, we're, we're grabbing it. The right to a job that pays a living wage. The right to quality health care the right to a complete education, the right to affordable housing, the right to a clean environment, the right to a secure retirement. 
And we, we fully accept and, and we make it clear that we do not see this as comprehensive yet. Right, Alan? That we suggest that the first one in saying that a job is number one reads that pays a living wage really in the American context needs to include guarantees, sick leave, and at least two weeks of paid vacation. Of course, I'd go higher on that last point. We uh, talk about possibly needing to include and likely needing to include the right to a voice in the workplace through labor union representation and collective bargaining. Uh, we feel that in the 21st century, we need added to these the right to broadband internet access. And then we uh, regret that the right to recreation, as which was in FDR's list, is not included. We then cite Martin Luther King um, and while not cited in the text, A. Philip Randolph's uh, Economic Bill of Rights that they advocated for in the 1960s. And we also cite some ec economists who are associates of myself and uh, Professor Kate, Mark Paul, William Darity, and Derek Hamilton. They laid out a nine-item 21st century Bill of Rights uh, a few years ago. And so we can all on the left eventually, when we put forward legislation, consents on what a 21st century Bill of Rights should be. And it's interesting that it could uh, rise from the six points that Roosevelt made up to 10 points, which would then match the Bill of Rights, right? And uh, however, we say just embracing Bernie's version as it's listed is something that we're calling upon all progressive candidates, progressive Democratic candidates, and any other candidates who would want to, to embrace it um, as part of their uh, policy platform in the 2022 election cycle. We lay out then that certainly in the, in the it's certainly PDA's belief that only progressive Democrats support the proposition that, of course, we feel is very, very popular among the general public, that if you do a full day's work at a full-time job that you deserve economic security and a promising life, only progressive Democrats support policies that provide health care, housing, and retirement security as a human right. Only progressive Democrats, in other words, not moderate corporate Democrats or the GOP, only progressive Democrats support well-funded public education, K through college, and the elimination of the student debt trap for past, present, and future generations. And then the last point we make is progressive Democrats support policies that actually address the climate emergency as we do, as we refuse to do the bidding of the fossil fuel industry, and we're for incentivizing investment in renewable energy and domestic manufacturing in the process. May I? And, uh, I think it's really, oh, sorry, go ahead. May I make a suggestion? Because uh, there are 27 amendments to the Constitution. The first 10 are the Bill of Rights. Why is this not being positioned as the 28th Amendment to the Constitution, all of which could be folded into uh, all, all the, these six points could be folded into the 28th Amendment to the Constitution. You know, the 14th Amendment is an omnibus. It's not just one yeah. right. It's uh, the right to equal protection under the law. Uh, you know, how, there's citizenship rights in the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment is where America starts anew. You You don't get the Voting Rights Acts of 64 and 65 
without the 14th Amendment. You it's equal protection under the law. I, I believe the 28th Amendment, it's time for a 28th Amendment to the Constitution, and it would be the Economic Bill of Rights, because that's how could you be against this? What's who would vote against this? <laughs> you know, it's, what we'll be telling is this. The it's OK, yeah, the, the progressives or who will be challenging the incumbent Democrats this coming year. I have a good feeling that this is the kind of thing that should appeal to them. And I'm sure Alan, you know, feels feels the same. But I, I can bet that a goodly number, I mean, forget the Republicans, that a goodly number of the current Democrats in the House would feel, un, would not just feel, they would be unwilling to endorse this set of this set of rights i'm have little i mean you i'm sure you agree um david right i mean well, but it's hard, them, to, it's hard them, to imagine in it the focus I mean, to me the focus on the left should maybe i'm wrong should be a yeah i'm sure you're not wrong you'll be right should be a constitutional amendment that secures these six economic bills of right bill of rights uh, it solves Citizens United. It solves the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court would be forced, would be bound to rule in favor of Medicare for all if you make this an amendment to the Constitution. They can't overrule. It would be very difficult to rule against it, whereas now there's a real reason to see that they would rule against it or try to rule against it and probably succeed in at least, at least to ruling how much it would have to stick depending on legislative adjustments. Of course, that's the future. But um, a question for the future. But how do you see it as affecting Citizens United? Because oh, I hear I, the, the 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 way you kick things down. You, you kick the can down the road by saying, you know, I'm going to take money from corporate, you know, corporate PACs because we need a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United, to which I, I say, you're not going to pass. It's really hard to get a constitutional amendment passed. And if you're going to pass a constitutional amendment, swing for the fences, go with this as opposed to some picayune Let's overturn citizens. I mean, it's this is the answer, I think, uh, or or one of the yeah, answers. Certainly, a, per, per Citizens United, over, overturning that is one thing. Of course, having fully funded public um, elections would be a hell of a lot better. How uh, quickly so can, can a constitutional amendment get passed? You need you need two thirds, I believe, of the states to ratify a constitution. I think it's or three quarters. I think it's three quarters. It's, it's either three, I think it's 75%. Yeah, 30, 37 right. and a half. You need, yeah. uh, the right to a job, number one, the right to a job that pays a living wage. Uh, that, I believe, that's the 13th Amendment, <laughs> the right, which outlawed slavery, I think. <laughs> but let's read. That's good. I like, I like the way you put that. I mean, we, that's, we that's should definitely. Yeah. The, the, right like to, the right much. to quality health care. Uh, who would be against the right to quality health care? Who would be against, number three, the right to a complete education? That's a beautiful rhetorical question, but I do recall the uh, 2020 Democratic debates when 
when Bernie did propose such a thing that he was met with the uh, outcry, you want to bankrupt the nation? Something to that effect. Okay, which is utterly ridiculous kind of notion. So, uh, of course, Medicare for all is, is massively deflationary. So they're so concerned about inflation these days. Yeah, they should embrace Medicare. For Medicare all. for all is deflationary. Explain that, please. The United States is estimated to about 18 percent of its gross domestic product is spent on health care. No other country in the world is above like 11. I think Germany is in like the 10 to 11 range, maybe 9 to 11. So uh, adopting universal single-payer health care and then having it negotiate pharmaceutical drug pricing, uh, eliminating the health insurance companies would, uh, you know, judging from the other countries that have the system, would uh, would uh, shrink that portion of expenditure in our society substantially. Okay. As much as by one-third. Uh, Professor Harvey so J. If, if, it drops in G, if it drops the GDP by 4% right there, that's, you know, that's deflation. Okay. That's less money circulating. Let, let's pause here. Uh, you know, teaching is repetition, Professor K. Okay? Teaching. Well, I used to have, I, it's funny you say that because this sounds funny. Somebody said there was a, a program at my university where uh, students who were not quite admissible were admitted in as part of an ongoing program and they were given extra tutorials and things like that. And when I was doing big intro social science kind of class, I had quite a few of them and there was a young, a young, well, she's actually older than I was. There was a woman who was responsible for those students in terms of basic skills. And we became friends and she figured out because she wanted to teach them how to take notes that when I thought something was important, I, without even thinking of it, repeated it three times in some fashion and, and in, in quick order, in fact. And, and I, and my students apparently appreciated that fact because they then number one, they knew that it was important. It might be on the test, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And second of all, they sort of heard it echo, as I said, it the third time. So yes, you're right. The power then, of repetition. repetition. So repetition can sound boring, but you can do it. You can repeat things in a good way. I mean, music has repetitions. Right. So they say a social safety net will destroy the dollar because it'll create inflation. The argument against a social safety net is we can't have inflation. But Alan Minsky you say a social safety net of Medicare for all. You're saying that that is deflationary. Why are we not hearing this over and over again, that the way to bring down the price of health care is Medicare for all? Negotiating drug prices with the pharmaceutical industry is deflationary. They, Joe Manchin wants to save us from inflation. Repeat <laughs> this economic lesson once again for the second yeah. time and pay attention sure. because this might be the most important piece of information you will hear all year. Okay, one of the reasons why um, we didn't hear a lot about how it would be deflationary is because 
deflation is itself a worry when there is no inflation. We've had very little inflation for quite a while now in our economies. So as of the last presidential election cycle, inflationary worries were not on the table. They have really jumped into things uh, since the pandemic, right? When we have these supply chain issues and we have uh, government large. I'm going to I'm, I'm sorry, I'm hungry. I looked at the hummus. This is why know, we, now, this I is why you, we don't know, win. Now, now Repeat what you just said. Repeat what you yeah. just said. Please. It's massively deflationary. Say, yes. say it again. Take, Explain why. Take, okay, if you take the uh, American health care, so-called health care system, and it's 18% of GDP, and you lower it down to, say, 13% GDP, uh, well, 5% of the GDP has evaporated. That's money coming out of the economy. That's money being saved. That's money that's not circulating. It's not going to the insurance companies, and people are paying less on balance for their health care. So they're saving money because they're not spending it on health care. Right? And you and don't have you to look at the average payment of eggs, average payment of cars, used cars, apparently really hard to get these days at a decent price. And then health care, big expenditure for households, right? Even when you get it through your through your employer, it's an indirect cost to the households. And now that is lowered very substantially on average. And that is taking money out of the con it's deflating the balloon of the economy. Professor Harvey J.K., do you find it infuriating that like, that is the greatest argument in favor of universal health care? You, you can't argue. It, it, it completely cuts the argument against universal health care off at the knees. I find every argument against private health care um, that's rejected infuriating. Okay. I, I mean, think the biggest argument is that you pay more taxes. That would be true. You would pay more taxes, but you would save money um, tremendously. Each household on average would save a lot of money. Yeah. And it would cut inflation. It would cut inflation. Even something as simple as negotiate, negotiating drug prices. Yeah. Here's the thing, though. The way that they do the inflation indices, you know, you'd have to see that healthcare is not generally a part of how they determine the inflation index, right? It's it's basically drawn off a set of commodities. Uh, you'd have to decide how they determine it. But I don't know that healthcare is included in that. So there could still be an inflation rate, but there's no doubt that people would be saving a lot of money, and the economy would uh, would shrink. You know because of uh, Medicare for all, which they don't like, by the way, either. They don't like the idea that you're cutting into GDP. They love uh, you know, good GDP numbers. Now, the way to, the way to uh, lift GDP in the United States is to address the tremendous amount of poverty that exists in the country. There's no other industrialized or technological society, not in Europe, not in East Asia. Uh, so sort of comparable industrial technological countries and societies in the United States that have this massive pool of poor people that we have in the United States, uh, both living in poverty and very close to poverty. And if you actually lift that population up into up and out of poverty, that will produce tremendous GDP growth. You can look at Chinese GDP growth, of course, industrial production, but industrial production has lifted 
hundreds of millions of people out of poverty and into becoming much more active consumers themselves and into the middle class, the Chinese middle class. So if we did that in the United States, which, by the way, isn't isn't particularly a, a policy they can pursue in, in Germany or Western Europe or Japan, where which are broadly still middle class societies with relatively low poverty, certainly compared to the United States. So you want GDP growth, you address poverty in the United States. Professor Kay, nobody will ever admit that they're hateful or bigoted or want to see starvation or homelessness. It's possible Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin would readily admit to it. At least every time he opens his mouth, he seems to do so. Nobody, well, admit, but but for the most part, nobody who is against Medicare for all says, I want people to die. They believe that they're, they're righteous. Manchin believes he's righteous. There's no way to convince him that he's got blood on his hands. When right. Roosevelt- well, sorry, David, but can I just ask you, as you're asking that question, did you watch the Republican debates in 2020? Yes. I swear, I, re- I swear- 2016? Well, I mean, 20, sorry, 2016. Can I take it back? It was 2012. It was 2012. The one in South Carolina? No, 2016. When when the guy says he should die? Trump was debating the clown car of Republicans. Right. And the Republicans were all coming out against basically Medicare for all or propositions of universal health care. And he actually, I do believe, said, do you actually want to see people dying in the street? That was Trump. By the right. Way. I mean, it doesn't matter if he if he cared at all of himself. The point was that he couldn't he couldn't imagine people saying what they said and not taking advantage of it. Right. And I and but but what's the difference between that moment, morally speaking, and once again the Democrats turning to Bernie and saying that he was going to bankrupt the country? Those folks who had all the money in the in the world in their bank accounts and were more than more than ready to, to go to the doctor whenever they needed it, could say that in front of the American people. Can you imagine? Right. Well, I don't know if you remember 2012. I wish I could play the clip. I, I'll find it for next week. Uh-huh. It was the, I, that's what I thought you were going to bring up. 2012, oh. the South Carolina debate, Gingrich, Ron Paul, and somebody oh. asked in 2012, well, what do you do... Uh, if somebody can't afford their health insurance, should they just die? And then somebody, that was the question from the audience and somebody screamed, yes. And the audience applauded and it, and Wolf Blitzer panicked. And I believe, I believe Ron Paul was supposed to be answering the question. And you just saw what, big portion of Republicans believe. Do you remember this moment? No, well, this I don't, goes, but it's, that's great. Do you remember that, Alan? I, well, I, don't, I mean, but this, this goes towards the question of who would oppose the 21st century Bill of Rights. And I think it's fair to say a good number of Republicans would. I do think Democrats would probably hedge, but you look into the details of it. You know, we went around, uh, I went around with a, a great activist, Susie Shannon, uh, head of the DNC Poverty Council, and we were asking the campaigns when there were, you know, 15 Democrats running for president in 2020, which of them would uh, support the statement housing, not health care, housing is a human right. Human right, right? Everybody gets a house as a human right. And we got about half of them to say yes, believe it or not. 
not everybody. What is happening in Wisconsin? Well, it's an interesting thing. There's a guy who I know very little about whose name of it's like his name is Ransom or something like this. I wish I I looked more closely before we came on because I've got these emails from people saying this guy is crazy and he's going to run for for the governor, the Republican nomination for governor. And Trump apparently will will uh, will back him. But there is actually somebody. I mean, there's a there's a woman who was uh, named Rebecca Clayfish who's running. It's possible the Republicans may well just do each other in, given the, the they range from you know sort of nasty to 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 being lunatics, and the because the current governor will not win unless the I'm convinced unless the Republicans take each other down a few pegs. That's what's happening in the state. And the Democrat is odd because we have a real race on the, for the nomination for the Senate uh, on the Democratic side. And the candidate who I, who I have most liked has yet to really present himself in a way that I thought he would in, in really stronger uh, progressive fashion. So keep an eye on in weeks ahead, I'll, I, things will look clearer to me and I'll be able to talk a bit more about it. But I will tell you this, as long as we're on the subject, a year ago or so, you may recall that I reported that here in Wisconsin, um, two young women, well, younger than I am, uh, proposed a Wisconsin Economic Justice Bill of Rights, and it had a favorable response in the Democratic caucus in both in the legislature, House and, and Assembly, in the Senate and Assembly. And uh, now that they've been seated for a good year, they are going to to propose it on the floor as a as a in a kind of promotional way in the state capitol and there'll be a turnout of progressives probably including mark pocan from congress if we're lucky maybe bernie sanders will come out i expect i i have an invitation to be on the floor as well um so i do think that this i want to go back for a moment to this economic bill of rights i think there's a certain i think this is a, an important moment and i've talked to some people around the country and they all just seem to say yeah you know, it was there with Bernie, but it didn't it didn't take off. And this could be a very, very strange year where, you know, progressives do challenge the mainstream of the Democratic Party. Um, what did I see just this just yesterday? Was it that Pelosi gave way on the stock trading? Did I see that? She said you know? she would. Yeah, that she would support uh, bringing it, I think, bringing it to a vote. Uh, yeah, well, I look those get, that's important. These every push progressives can make within and against the democratic establishment is essential. And I think that there are these things that I use the term. Alan's heard me say things are percolating right now. The trick is, can we make things happen before the fascists take power? Right. Right. Hey, we had, more, had by the way, the more we make things happen, the more the fascists are going to try to take power. That, let's, that, let's understand that. Right. Henry Williams, co-director and co-founder of the Gravel Institute, former mm. chief of staff for Mike Gravel's 2020 presidential election, was on the show. Big fan of yours. We he was on this show? Yeah, he was on earlier today at six. <laughs> oh, you're kidding. You should have told me. He's oh, going to come. Great. What oh. a boy. Uh, what a great human being. What? Yeah. And loves and you. This, and, it, Oh, that's what sweet. a brilliant, like, he, brilliant. He's only like 20 years. Like he's 20 years old. I think, yeah. Now. 21, 21. I mean, these... yeah, no, he, he there's a real 
there's a real dynamo there. He and David Oakes, his comrade in the Gravelia. When you, we, I'm, up, I mean, they, that he made my heart swell. You see, he's younger I than my imagine, kids. Yeah, he's younger than my kids, and just it, you just say, oh, these guys are so much better than than we are in terms of knowing the issues. But in the back of my mind, I think of Obama, who must have been just mm. as good. Uh, and they get them. They got David Hogg. Remember David Hogg? They get them. They get their well, hands. I, I think, yeah, sorry, I, I don't, I, you may be giving more credit to Obama than you realize. No, no, when he was, when he was that age, he was that impressive. David Hogg used to be that impressive, uh -huh. but then they uh, they yeah, get their uh, hands uh, on what him. What happened to Hogg? What happened to Hogg? Harvard. And then he's endorsed. <laughs> Is that what happened? Yeah. yeah. I, I want to make one thing clear. I'm more impressive now than I was when I was that age. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. <laughs> what happened? And they, I say that with, sure, with surety. I want you to know that. But they do, they, they tap, they, they find these people who are a threat to the system and they say, come here. Come on in. No? <laughs> Alan? Yeah. No, uh, they call that what? Co-optation. Co-optation, right? I don't think that was ever the case with Barack Obama. You Barack think from Obama's day one, Remember, he was a corporatist from day one. Bobby Rush is a, to the right of Bobby Rush when he runs for Congress. He's always a centrist Democrat. I'm talking about when he was Barack 21. Obama? When he was 21. Oh, it was right around the corner from me at Occidental, right? Talks about reading Fanon, but then how he doesn't embrace it. They tapped you. So, they got you, Alan Minsky. Yeah, wow. You, you um, got the tap. Yeah, I'm, I am considerably less impressive now than I was back then. So, <laughs> well, this. But I, you will, when you turn seventy in the future, you will be even more impressive. I look forward to that. Yes, I was saying earlier. I sold my soul to the devil and not didn't do well. You know, I gave it all. Full of laughs. Um, but well, by the way, David, I did promote you today. Really? To general? Yeah. Uh, here, uh, here's what happened. I, I just, Alan may not know this. I sent him a note before we came on. Things were very busy today, especially because of the release of this, this uh, economic bill of rights. And Late in the afternoon, I, I got an email from a producer at CNN who they want to do, a, you know, they do these documentary type things sometimes, you know, like First Ladies and, you know, that's a, they want to do a Franklin and Eleanor series. Great. And she said, and she said, uh, you know, can I can I call you tonight? And I said, well, here, here's the hours you, you can do it because I'm doing David. I'm doing Emmy Award winning David Feldman's show tonight with my friend Alan Minsky, blah, blah, blah. And she's and so she called almost immediately because she knew she can do it later. And she said, hey, so I, I just I just Googled that David Feldman. Tell me more about these shows he does. So I said, this guy's this guy's infamous. He does five hours on Monday, five hours on Thursday, and he does all hours on Friday night. So I don't know if she tuned I'm in tonight I, or not. Maybe but. they'll, you know, maybe I can get Chris Cuomo's job. Uh, maybe I can devote an hour on CNN to talking about union busting 
and cutting the military budget by and half. and and closing hospitals and yeah, I'm I'm sure yeah. there there's a an opening for somebody to uh, go on one of the cable shows and only fixate on the ninety nine percent. They're waiting for somebody to to talk about that. That is the lack of uh, that's the real censorship that that we have in this country. The, the real censorship isn't the cancel culture going after somebody for, you know, promoting uh, ivermectin. The real cancel culture is you cannot go on a cable news outlet and expose who the union busting corporations are. You cannot remind people of how Medicare for all would actually work. The reason it's a miracle that Medicare for all polls as well as it does, considering that the only person who was able to go on network television and explain it was Bernie. And he was fighting off 15 gnats on the debate <laughs> yeah. stage. He was being interrupted right. by 15 gnats. Uh, yeah. And, 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 to, and in those terms, I want to make it clear. Alan and I talked a lot about this. The fact is that. A statement like this, this Economic Bill of Rights, this call, right, for Economic Bill of Rights, and the call for progressives to and pro progressive candidates and politicians to embrace this and endorse this may seem like a radical act. But the majority of Americans, in some cases, the overwhelming majority of Americans, just as they did in 1943 and 44, want these things and are and are prepared to vote to get them. And then what do they find out that that Biden is not FDR? I did an interview with the with the Congressional Quarterly today, and we spoke about this. And um, and he, I made the declarative statement that um, neither the moderate um, neoliberal Democrats or the GOP have been able to solve the incredible amount of poverty that exists. The sort of economic dead zones that everybody knows exist in large population centers in the United States of America and also across the country in red states, right? And the collapse of small town America, et cetera. And uh, he said, they, they don't embrace it, but what, what do you mean? I mean? Wouldn't the moderate Democrats want to address those things? And I said, well, look, we, we have four decades of evidence to go on. This isn't just a speculative assertion. We have two two-term Democratic presidents at no point during either of those presidencies was there ever any real economic progress in the south side of Chicago, East Cleveland, Detroit, Michigan, all of the you know food deserts, health deserts, economic deserts inside population centers, nor was there any reversal of fate for um, you know the social pathologies in the Gulf, you know the white working class in small town America. Uh, to medium-sized town America across the country and whatever uh, communities uh, in terms of ethnicity uh, are present in those communities across the country. Not even a hint that they would be reversed. So no, they, they're not serious about addressing these things at all. And again, only the progressive Democrats right now are among the prominent political formations in the country as basically defined from the Sanders campaign going forward. And this Economic Bill of Rights is something that we want to make clear to the public. This is the case. If you want to see these things be addressed uh, right now, there's only one political formation in play that's serious about seeing them addressed, 
and seeing social and economic transformation as they're addressed. And nothing short of that transformation would be acceptable in terms of that political formation. And, you know, the idea that it can't be done, you know, point to me, point out the, you know, economic deserts in Western Europe, point out the economic deserts in Japan uh, or even in South Korea. As far as I know, they don't exist. Um, and, you know, that's, that doesn't, there's no authoritarianism going on there. It's not the Chinese Communist Party that's, you know, mandating these uh, uh, changes in industrial policy to pull hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. is just the way that these societies operate. If we adopt many of their principles and then apply a lot of uh, economic incentives to actually achieve investment in these communities, uh, then we can see a transformation occur. But the moderate Democrats and the GOP have nothing when it comes to this stuff. Here's a picture of President Obama scowling in Hawaii. He's, you know, he's got that place on Martha's Vineyard, but he now has a $10 million mansion in Hawaii. Neighbors are complaining that he's building a seawall that will contribute to beach erosion and damage the coastal environment. And this is him dealing with the architect and the builders, and he doesn't look happy. He doesn't look happy. Hmm, poor guy. Poor guy. He'll never stop working for us. Remember that? He'll it's never like he'd put on his marching shoes to turn out if workers are, are rights are threatened. Yeah. Yeah. Building his 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 second mansion in Hawaii. So that's his climate catastrophe insurance. If Martha's Vineyard becomes Atlantis, he'll go to Hawaii. Good man. I'll never stop working for you. Professor Harvey J.K. is the author of FDR and Democracy. Read his work by going to pdaamerica.org, the new economic bill of rights. It's fantastic. And Alan- Our co-author, not my work. This is Alan and my work. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm very honored to actually be partnering with you, Harvey. You are an absolute inspiration. That's yeah. all I can say. And, you know, we, one of the things that, that I, I've been close to my whole life are, you know, the mythology of, of left-wing university professors uh, who just somehow are unable to engage politically at all. And to meet you, Harvey, is just an absolute blessing. Yes. So it's an honor to work mm -hmm. with you. And you too, Feldman. And by the way, I should let everybody know, uh, it was 90 degrees in my neighborhood today in Los Angeles. Yes. I kid you not. Just look it up online. And uh, the Super Bowl will be in Los Angeles on Sunday, and the expected high is 86. So for these, including yesterday, for a five-day stretch in February, that's the weather we're having in Los Angeles. And it's, uh, um, it's something else. Remember, climate change is not real. So Yeah. Climate change is not. I wonder real. if they'll mention it on the Super Bowl broadcast. The weather in Los Angeles in February. Uh, it's so bad. By the way, it's for, it, supposedly it's going to be very hot even Sunday. Is that changed? It's still going to be the yeah, case. No, Eighty six is right now the high they're anticipating for Sunday. Wow! I so, hear they're changing February it. in China. They're going to start calling it the Summer Olympics. That's how bad climate change <laughs> is getting. That's we try to be funny on the show. Uh, I'm laughing all the way to, yeah. to hell. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Harvey. Thank you, JK. Dave. Pick up. Thank you. Take hold of our history, FDR and democracy. And of course, follow Professor Harvey JK on Twitter at Harvey JK and give money to the progressive Democrats of America. 
Thank you so much for doing this. And if this. you can't find how to give money to the progressive Democrats, you can just give it to me. It's yes, he'll know. <laughs> yes. Fantastic. We will take your calls. We have people in the Zoom room. We will take their calls. But first, some more music from the brilliant Professor Mike Steinell, who is a pig for love. I'm a porcine gourmand of the art of romance. I'm a maestro of the boudoir when I take off my pants. All of this is true, all of the above. I wouldn't lie to you, cause I'm a pig for love. But my capacity is dim I seem so audacious Some call me Gentleman Jim When all is said and done And the push comes to shove I'm second to none Cause I'm a pig for love suspicious please pardon me if i'm somewhat repetitious like a hand in a glove i'm a pig for love yeah i'm a pig for love Thank you, Professor Mike Steinell, for your incredible music. I want to thank Dan Frankenberger, who I think is no longer here. Are you here, Dan? Okay. Thank you for Dan Frankenberger for making all this possible. I also want to thank Sarah Bush, Andy Brown, and the Invisible Ninja for keeping the chat room going in both our Zoom room and our over on our YouTube channel. Thank you to Joe in Norway for your contributions, keeping the show going, and of course, for office hours. Thank you to Hannah Feldman, and I'm leaving, and, and uh, Professor Jonathan Bick came to the meeting yesterday. This, uh, 
this community is uh, remarkable. It really is. It's a privilege to uh, to get to know everybody. I'm going to thank uh, all our guests in a second. Rod Rigo, I didn't call on you on Monday. How are you, sir? Hi, David. How are you? I have a few uh, updates, if you don't mind. Yes. Uh, starting with, I don't know if you heard about Douglas County, Colorado, that saw the school superintendent first threatened into resigning, then fired. Then the teachers' union organized a seeking. That's when all the employees take a very valuable sick day at the same time to show solidarity. And on Monday, the students themselves staged a walkout. Uh, I'm not sure if during the show, and Corey Wise was accused of horrible things like being okay with vaccine mandates and children wearing masks to protect their older family members and each other. Uh, any actual person with a functioning brain can tell that all of these children will remember what conservatives do and how they mollycoddle the anti-vaxxer snowflakes and start screaming to stop it but of course the conservatives only care about winning now because they don't even understand how they are participating in their own oppression uh, another quick update this time from mexico i think i didn't mention in previous shows that the new rules for people getting government scholarships for stem careers we lose their scholarships if they attend political gatherings, both inside and outside Mexico, and if they get pregnant. Once again, the socialist, quote-unquote, I know the best people, Mexican president, is trying to save money by taking science and technology scholarships from students who are active politically or get pregnant. What are the leftists? doing well the owner of the company that makes coca-cola in mexico also owns a store chain with more shops in mexico than there are starbucks in the u.s he disagreed with the president and to prove how easily distracted they are they've discovered that they were always outraged about these purveyors of diabetes and uh, last week, I tweeted the following. Uh, there's half a dozen genocides and three dozen ongoing humanitarian crises. We must realize that worrying about the one or two crises that the State Department wants us to worry about when they want us to worry about them keeps us from realizing that this is what the system looks like when it works. And then apparently CNN spent the weekend talking about the plight of the Uyghurs while doing their best not to mention the Rohingya or any of the many ongoing humanitarian crises that only seem to exist when the State Department or the CIA decide that it's useful to hide behind them. 
which makes the video with Ned Price and Matt Lee about Alex Jones' territory all the more hilarious, if also poignant. Uh, I think you saw that video. I think so. Re refresh my mind about the video. Uh, Ned Price, formerly of the CIA, uh, said that he was going to show evidence that something, 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 and then a journalist, Matt Lee, asked him if they could see the evidence, and he said, I just gave it to you. And Matt Lee said, well, this is Alex Jones' territory. You, you say, do you expect us to believe that the evidence exists because you tell us that it exists and when we ask to see it you say i already showed it to you so that was okay we'll look into that thank you and a quick correction uh in last show that's last week you said in your rant that critical race theory is nothing but that's a bad example because smarter people than you or me have been writing about racism being part of the way current society is constructed since the 1970s. A better example, perhaps, is that Biden is in the pocket of Big Bernie and Kamala Harris, the Marxists who kept people in prison in California longer than they should have been because they make for cheap firefighters. You also said something about Joe Rogan and the anti-vaxxers, and I wanted to tell you that 110 shows of Joe Rogan have been deleted so far, but more importantly, all of these defending of anti-vaxxers by racists serves the purpose of making non-racist anti-vaxxers think that maybe the racists were right all along, and that's something serious. Oh, you're saying and, uh, that by removing them, it creates the illusion that he isn't promoting racist anti-vaxxers. Is that what you're saying? Uh, when, when people uh, defend Joe Rogan, and a lot of people are defending Joe Rogan, uh, it makes the anti-vaxxers who aren't racist wonder, hey, maybe the racists were, were right all along. Okay. That's what I was trying to say. All right. And last one is that everyone sort of agreed that to look the other way as the draft ended and the use of proxy armies to fight the wars of the U.S. empire rose, uh, today, partly because the hippies went home and the soldiers came back, uh, relatively well-to-do middle white middle-class people are beginning to feel the pinch of being treated the way the United States treats poor countries everywhere, and also the way people of different colors have always been treated inside the United States. Uh, we need to figure out how to make the mainstream media scared of leftists. 
I could go on for much longer about this, but the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, etc., are still refusing to send journalists, undercover or not, to verify the plight of the Uyghur people. And I'm not surprised because they're refusing to talk about the real reason Assange is in prison. Not for helping Trump defeat Hillary, not for helping Russia publish DNC emails, but for showing footage of Jewish soldiers torturing prisoners for fun and killing civilians by accident and not caring too much about it. And laughing years while ag- they're doing it. And it, wasn't, uh, it. and it wasn't classified. That's the other thing. That video was not classified. Just embarrassing. Yes. Uh, I can't stand Julian Assange, but his charges are about national security journalism, despite what the mainstream media keeps telling themselves. And despite Jimmy Dore and Tucker Carlson talking about Assange only to trick people into dismantling even more of the government. Uh, Thank you. Thank you, Rodrigo. I hope to see you uh, 8 p.m. Friday night for office hours. I will be there for the first hour, hour and a half. If you are listening to me and you want to talk to me, I am available from 8 till about 9, 9.30 every Friday night at office hours. Go to my website to get in. There's a link. If you would like to be part of our virtual studio audience, all you need is Zoom. Please go to my website and sign up. We'll send you, send you a link and you can participate in the chat and raise your hand and ask questions. And what else? We have a YouTube channel that's growing thanks to uh, the community here. Thank We're posting clips, highlights from the show. Uh, thank you. So check out the YouTube channel, please. David Feldman Show YouTube channel. Please subscribe to it. And subscribe to the show wherever you get podcasts. While you're over at my website, please sign up for my newsletter. Thank you to Henry Williams, co-director and co-founder of the Gravel Institute. Thank you, Professor Ben Burgess. Thank you, the Hershenfelds, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld and Ethan Hershenfeld, Emil Guillermo, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, the professors and Marianne, Professor Marianne Cummings, Professor Ann Lee, Professor Bick, and Professor Adnan Hussein, Alan Minsky, Executive Director of Progressive Democrats of America, and Professor Harvey J.K. Go read the 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights over at pdaamerica.org. It's written by Professor Harvey J.K. and Alan Minsky, the Economic Bill of Rights. This is something that all of us should be talking about. This is what we should be forcing our candidates to pledge that they're in favor of a 21st century economic bill of rights would establish that all Americans are entitled to one, the right to a job that pays a livable wage. Number two, the right to quality health care. Number three, the right to a complete education. 
Number four, the right to affordable housing. Number five, the right to a clean environment. Number six, the right to a secure retirement. For more on this, go to pdaamerica.org. If you're not talking about a 21st century economic bill of rights, keep your mouth shut. I'm David Feldman. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comics too. To tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Yes, it's time right now on the David Feldman Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way.